燃え上がれガンダムはい。
Maybe I will on a rainy day someday. Yeah, that's one of those Gundam things that most Gundam fans I do not think have watched. Yeah. Like, I watch those, and I like the second series of them okay, but yeah. You've watched, like, the major one-year war stuff. Yep, and that's going to be kind of our topic. We're going to talk about the other one-year war shows, we're going to talk about the movies, we're going to talk about uh, some of the different... Because I also should say, when I say I bought four Gundam books, I've also got here volume one of the origin manga, the English version, which is this super nice hardcover like art yeah, book nice. that's like 500 pages and it's all on like art paper. Plus I've got the first three volumes of Mobile Suit Gundam Thunderbolt, which is amazing. So yeah, I'm properly in the weeds and we will talk about all of that as well as we have some fun top ten lists. Yes, as we have promised in previous episodes, we... We've done what we do here, which is make dumb top ten lists. To kind of wrap up, this is the episode we're going to wrap up the one-year war, and then if we do more Gundam stuff in the future, we'll go forward in the timeline. Yes. Sticking with Universal Century for now, because Sean, I have gotten all my Universal Century stuff together. I'm not nearly ready to start figuring out what the fuck is all that other stuff. Yeah, no, I definitely think the path forward is at least, like, follow the linear progress at least through to Char's counterattack. And then from there, you can decide whether or not you want to do F-91 and some of the other later Universal Century stuff. Or say, fuck it, I want to watch G Gundam or some, or Iron Blood Orphans or some other uh, Gundam series. I know G Gundam was pitched, I I saw online, as martial arts Gundam. Yes. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to have to watch that at some point. Yeah, it's it's got basically a Gundam Tenkaichi Budokai is about half of that show, so yes. I think you'll probably watch it eventually. We are stopping this podcast right now. (laughs) You just said the words Gundam Tenkaichi Budokai, and I'm out of here. Yeah, it's very good. So where should we start? Do we want to start with the movies? Do we want to start with some of the other shows? Um, I I think we should start with, because I am eager to hear you talk about, kind of decompress some of the other Gundam stuff before we get into the movies. I'm eager too. Yeah. So let's, like, yeah, explain what what have you experienced now? Because it should be clear to the viewers... Um, while for them or the listeners, it has only been a week or two since the last episode came out. For us, it's been several weeks. So you've had a good chunk of time to just like really dig into a lot of stuff. Absolutely, I have. So I'm going to go in the order I watched these, not the order they were made. Okay. So we finished the original Mobile Suit Gundam. And I have to stress, I was holding myself back on not looking at any other Gundam stuff. Mm-hmm. Because while we were watching... Because the, the whole point of this series, the experiment, was... Gundam veteran, Sean, yes. Gundam newbie, Jonathan. If I like looked ahead and started reading spoilers or started researching the other shows, it, it wouldn't have worked as well, I don't think. Yeah, I agree. So we finished that last podcast, Sean, and I went, okay. And I took the needle out and injected it straight into my fucking arm, uh-huh. starting with Gundam The Origin, the OVA series. Um, well, we should back up. Gundam The Origin is the manga that was illust- or drawn and written by... Uh, Yoshikazu Yasuhiko, who was the character designer, art director on the original TV series. Yep. Then he went back in the 2000s and did a full manga that's like, like combines a lot of the different like story changes they'd made over the years to kind of try to make like a definitive version of the story. Plus, it's got all the prequel stuff that then they took out of the manga and made into six OVA movies. Yeah, um, we should say OVAs are original video animations. Gundam has a lot of those. <laughs> Yeah, and they're they're basically like think of it as like mini series, effectively, yeah. is what they are. And they're not aired on TV; they're sold to the public. Back in the day, it would have been on VHS, then on DVD, then on Blu-ray. Yeah. These were specifically theatrical OVAs because they also came out in theaters and are movie quality. Like mm-hmm. they've each got like six minutes of credits because they are movie ass movies. Yeah, and they're they're all at least an hour apiece. Yep, and yeah. then the last two are full ninety minutes, the the Loom Battlefield ones, and those are we should say being recut. 
and they're being aired right now. They, they're not quite finished, but you can go find them on Crunchyroll uh, into a 13-episode TV series that will have to excise some of it because 13 episodes would not be able to fit all that. But anyway, the origin is the uh, basically the story of everything leading up to the One Year War. It focuses on a lot of characters, but roughly Shar and Sela are the center of it yeah. because they were the children of Zeonzoom Daikun. And Gundam The Origin is so ludicrously good, Sean. Uh-huh. It is... So it's a it's a prequel, and it is a prequel ass prequel in that it is telling you like filling in all the details things some things like you knew roughly like you know roughly the outline of Shar's past and yeah. Sailor's past like Jim Burrell raised them Zeon died of a heart attack they think it was the the, the uh, zombie clan and that's why he hates the zombies they go into much more detail on all that and it literally ends with the white base coming over side seven and like Captain Bright standing well he was not a captain yet yeah. but him like standing there and being like I wonder what we're gonna find down there you yeah know? and it's like Char getting his Musai and Drin who's sort of like his right hand man and him like on the and him getting yep. orders to figure out what Operation V is from Dozel so it, yeah it ends right at that point and as these kind of prequels go, it's the best prequel I've ever seen. I agree. Yeah, 100%. I would put it above, like, the closest I would say is something like the Star Wars prequels, which you and I like, but are obviously divisive. Yeah. And by Star Wars prequels, we actually now have to clarify the prequel trilogy, not Rogue One and Solo. Yes. Which, Rogue One and Solo are, like, the bad version of Gundam the Origin. Absolutely, you know? yeah. Because Gundam the Origin is so creative with it, it leaves a lot more ambiguity in things than I think most prequels are content to do yeah most of the things that are left like del- very deliberately ambiguous by the original series are not clarified necessarily by by the origin yeah so like you don't know was Zeon Zoom Daikun literally killed by the zombies or was that just a political they they like he actually died of a heart attack and the and Giren Zabi is not Giren Dozel Zabi not Degwin. Dozel Degwin yes what the God, there's so many of these goddamn zombies, and they've yeah. all got silly names. And, so, but they all die eventually. They all die eventually. Most of them in the hamstar. But my point is, Degwin's a good politician, so maybe he just took advantage of it. You can read it either way in the origin, just as you could in the original show. Yeah. Um, Char, if you think they are ever going to pin down Char's exact motivations for you, no. Because that would be weird if Char just said, like, this is my manifesto. Because I don't think Char knows exactly what he wants. No, yeah, I think Char is very good at giving this impression that he has some kind of master plan that he never really has. Like, I think that's one of the reasons why he has his mask, is so that nobody can well, tell what his motivations are, so that he doesn't have to reveal anything or have anything. Yeah, because there's a lot of good thematic stuff in the origin, but I think the two most impressive thematic moments to me are at the end of episode one, which is all young Shar and Sela. A, young Shar is voiced by Mayumi Tanaka, mm-hmm. who you might know from everything, but specifically she is Luffy in One Piece, she is Kuririn and Yajirobe and Uranai Baba in Dragon Ball, yeah. she is Pazu in Castle in the Sky, just like all these different things. They got her to voice young Shar, which... Oh my god, what a good decision. It's it's an amazing performance. Amazing performance. And the end of episode one is Char gets in a gun tank and is like mowing down other gun tanks on the streets of Zeon. And this is like they're trying to get out of the city to... This is when the, the Rawl clan is like getting them out of side three. Yeah. And he gives this speech to Sela where it's like, they're our enemy, everyone's our enemy, every person we see, that's our enemy, and I'm going to like shoot them all. And I feel like that is one of the best clarifying moments for Char I've seen in this franchise so yeah. far. Because what episode one does, A, is it gives you such a good idea of why Char and Sela become the people they became. Because 
the trauma inflicted upon them as the children of Zianzam Daikun is extreme. Like, the zombies really fuck them over. Like, you yeah. really understand why Char wants to put a fucking bazooka through Kasila's <laughs> head. Yeah. Like, if you wondered why before, you won't wonder anymore. And I think you see how Char is just kind of broken from that. Yeah, and it's a really strong read of his character from <clears throat> both Mobile Suit Gundam and then, like, later stuff you see from him of that, like... He he is so he is like the ultimate loner. You yes, know? he is always like him. He he is only he's the only person that's on his own team. Yep. Maybe Artesia slash Sela a little bit, but even then, it's like castfall against the world. It is, and the other side of that is how like Sela is a smaller part of the series for obvious reasons because she's younger. She is not out there becoming the Red Comet of Loom. Yeah, all these things. But I also think where they take her character in that if Shar becomes the ultimate loner, she's the other direction where, like, she loses every family she's had. She loses her original family. She constructs a new family with the Moss family. Yeah. She loses them. And so she becomes the person who constructs families. And that's what she does in Mobile Suit Gundam. So I think putting them on that trajectory where they are come from the same origins but but take different things out of it is really interesting. And then the other thematic thread I love of Gundam the Origin is that it pretty directly implies that humanity wants this war. Mm-hmm. That like the one year there are multiple off ramps for the one year war in the in the like both before the colony is dropped and after, especially in the Antarctic Treaty, which is like the, the centerpiece of episode six. And basically humanity kind of collectively decides we're kind of jonesing for this. Yeah. And the whole ending is General Revel, who in a great bit of political theater is released from captivity by the zombies in a scene by with Char where he finds him in space and yeah. let's all is so good. Anyway, mm-hmm. and he goes back to Earth and gives this big speech for the Antarctic Treaty where he rejects it and says, we are going to fight and we are going to win. And that's what it goes out on, even into a credit sequence with like rip and guitar music, which I love. Yeah. And I think that's kind of smart too, because it's like, this is such a crazy conflict that humanity has gotten itself into. It, it does something that a lot of Gundam shows, I realize now, do, which is that... And it's, it's also, I think, a meta-commentary on our interest in this genre of war fiction. Uh-huh. It's like... We hate it, we despise it, but also it's in our blood. And that's kind of the overall argument of Gundam The Origin. And overall, like, through all of that, through what they do with Ramba Rao, through what they do with Hamon, his, his, like, not wife, but, like, partner, um, with Char and Sailor, with all the other characters, Gundam The Origin makes such a good case for its own existence. Like, you have to have seen the original series, but it's also its own thing. And it just... I don't think there's any other prequel that stands up on its own two legs as beautifully as The Origin does. Yeah, and I mean, that, like, Gundam The Origin is basically how this podcast happened because me watching that, because it was still, the OVAs were still coming out by the time I had finished my original watch through. So I think they were at, like, the fourth movie or so. Um, so I waited for all of them to be released as I typically do before I wanted to watch them. So then I watched them while I was doing a student teaching. I was like, this is so fucking good that I immediately started watching Mobile Suit Gundam again, which was then me talking about that on the podcast. Then was like, well, fuck, we should, now is the time. It's the 40th anniversary. The stars are aligning. We wanted to do something over the summer. It like, yeah. yeah. So, so Gundam The Origin was like the spark that lit like the Gundam flame in me again to be like, fucking, I, we need to do some Gundam shit on this podcast. It's a hell of a thing. Yes. Also, I want to point out, um, because you mentioned Hamon, 
Hamon in The Origin is, of course, voiced by Miyuki Swashro. And in an amazing performance, yeah. the final scene with her and Ramba Rao is in episode five, I think. Like, they don't appear in the final one. And it is, they are in their bar that they, like, work at together. And she just gets on the piano. And it's a full, like, six-minute sequence where she sings this mm-hmm. long, slow piano ballad. And it is genuinely one of the best scenes I've ever seen in fiction. Like, just, yeah. it's it's maybe my favorite scene in the entire origin. That and Char at the end of, I think it's episode three, saying red is a really good color. Yeah, he's it? licking through <laughs> his mask. Yeah, holy shit. But, um, which, that's all really good. But that scene is so haunting and, like... Part of me wishes there was a little bit more with Ramba Rao to tell us, like, how we get exactly from point A to B on him, where he is, where he is in the series. But also, I feel like the animators must have felt this, too. Like, you do that scene with Hamon and him and that song, it's like, that's it. That's kind of where his story needs to end here, because his life is literally unresolvable. Especially knowing, like, that song is so much about knowing what's, yeah. that there's no way out of this. And that they tried to be good people, but this world just, it's its not for them. Mm-hmm. And it is, yeah, but, yeah, definitely gets the Mayuki Swashiro Award for Peculiar Excellence. Yeah, it's its phenomenal. I love the origin so much. It's just got, because it also, because it's a prequel, it's where you get all the evil Char. Like, if your favorite Char moment is Char laughing in Garma's face, basically, as he betrays and kills Garma, if that's your favorite Char thing... Gundam the Origin has like 500 equivalently good, like good evil Char moments. I think it's episode 2 or 3 where the whole episode is them at the military academy. And it's basically just a solid like hour and 10 minutes of Char psychologically torturing poor um, Garma. Little, yeah, little baby it, Garma. Little baby Garma. And you realize, oh, he didn't just do this for a couple weeks on Earth as we saw in the series. He did this for years of their life. Yeah. God, it's so good. Yeah, you also have that great moment um, where because this like because one of the other characters that I think is really interesting in the One Year War stuff that doesn't get a huge amount of focus is Degwin Zabi mm-hmm. because he's the patriarch of the Zabi family. He's clearly a really skilled politician, but he's not the warmonger that Giran is. And when Giran takes over, like Giran is the main force that pushes the One Year War forward. And you have that incredible scene where Degwin is with Garma and he just he's kind of stroking his head and says old men shouldn't have children, which I think tells you everything about the relationship between Degwin and Garma that is a big part of a really huge like element of Mobile Suit Gundam, which is Degwin's choice to try to sue for peace, which I think is mostly just motivated by Garma's death yeah. and showing getting that like it's really only one scene, but that one scene between the two of them reveals so much about that character in a really smart way. Him and then Dozel also, in terms of the the Zabi family, yeah. get so much good stuff to like flesh out their characters. It's it's outstanding. If you've seen Mobile Suit Gundam the original, like it's an obvious next step. It's yeah. so good, especially now that it's all out there. I'm sure the TV version they're doing is fine, but I would recommend just the original movies because they're also just they work as films. In a way that, like, it's it's like the closest I can say is it's like if 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 they did a an HBO like prestige TV series of Gundam, it would be paced and like put out like this, yeah. And it's it's that level of of good stuff. But the good stuff didn't end there, Sean. No, yeah, because then I watched Mobile Suit Gundam: War in the Pocket. Yes, which is a six-episode OVA series of 20-minute OVAs, not ridiculous, no. massive movie OVAs. And it was the first OVA series they did. It was yeah. 89, and it like opened a big new door for Gundam to like be like, oh, 
if we're putting them right out on tape, we can do whatever the fuck we want. <laughs> yeah, we can we can tell very different stories in Gundam, and we can also we get a much bigger budget relative to the episode load we have, so we can make them look fucking gorgeous. Yes, because we're in the pocket. I think if I had to give the logline for this show, is it's like if Studio Ghibli did Gundam. Yes, that's a good yeah, that's a good way to frame it. And not Miyazaki Studio Ghibli, Isao Takahata Studio Ghibli. Because mm-hmm. yeah. it's it's Grave of the Fireflies with giant robots at a certain point. Yeah, I mean the main character is a kid, and when as a kid, not like Amuro, fifteen year old, like as a normal sort of Gundam protagonist age, like literally a child. Yes, he's like eight years old. Yeah. Al and he basically because I shall say it's six episodes it really is paced like a movie it's mm-hmm. a three act movie it's actually a very teachable three act structure for how it does it but the whole thing is Al lives on side six which is the neutral colony yeah. it's near the very end of the one year war you know this because Christmas is happening during the series yeah because which... in the full title of the series is Gundam 0080 War in the Pocket yeah and you know the war ends on January 1st uh, 0080 so it's a, the war is about to end these people don't know that obviously and Al is, is living on side six, so he's very distant from the war. It has not come home to them yet. And he and his other classmates idolize the, the Gundams and the Zakus equally because they don't really have a stake in this war. Yeah. He does not understand what war is. He is all of us who has ever like watched military fiction as a kid and thought it was cool and not realized that there are people behind that. Mm-hmm. And then one day, a Zaku lands in his backyard, basically, piloted by a guy named Bernie, yes. which... Yeah. Bonnie-san! Yeah. So good. So good. The names in Gundam are always great. Always good. Uh, And Bernie is an amateur pilot in a new... In a little unit in Xeon that is trying to suss out this uh, experimental Gundam prototype that is being built on Side 6 in secret because they're not supposed to build Gundams on Side 6. Yeah. And so he befriends Bernie, kind of helps him in his mission... He also has a next door neighbor who used to like babysit Al, and she has now come back. And Al does not know this, but we find out she is the pilot of the experimental Gundam. So he is friends with two adults on opposite sides of the war. And Bernie basically has this mission with his unit of he has to destroy that experimental Gundam, and Al befriends him. And if it sounds like your heart is going to be ripped the fuck out of your chest mm-hmm. by that show, it is very hard, and it is. Yeah, if if I could recommend any just like one two hour chunk of Gundam to people, it probably would be War in the Pocket. Yeah, for me, it is like the original Mobile Suit Gundam, War in the Pocket, and then Turn A Gundam, which is a later like mid late nineties Gundam show. Um, those are the three like the the Trinity or whatever of like the best of the best Gundam stuff for me personally. Um, yeah, War in the Pocket is fucking incredible, and the animation is out of this world because. It doesn't have a lot of mobile suit fights, obviously. Really only in the final episode. And so a lot more effort is just put into environments and character details. Like the amount of detail on character faces, you will never see that on a TV show. That's a movie thing. And that's when I say Ghibli by way of Isao Takahata. Isao Takahata is one of the only anime directors I've seen put that level of attention into faces. And I feel like they were very clearly inspired by him. Mm -hmm. Because there's a lot of that in there. Just like look at what they do with eyes in War in the Pocket. It's amazing. The music is amazing. And I loved it so much that Sean, I (laughs) cut all the episodes into a two and a half hour movie. Because I want that for myself in the future. Yeah, because the great irony of Gundam as a franchise is, is... Maybe not the majority of, but maybe probably about 50% of the Gundam shows have compilation movies like the Mobile Suit Gundam ones we're going to talk about. 
and yet one of the ones that does not have a compilation movie is War in the Pocket that basically is like three steps away from just being a movie like yeah. you have to do very little to it uh, it was, it was not a lot of work movie. but it was a lot of fun I have a copy of that if you want it Sean yes and um, I, I look forward to watching it again fairly soon then I watched another OVA series. These are all OVAs, I should say, because yeah. I did not watch another 50-episode Gundam since last time. Although, I guess if you put this all together, that's more than a 50-episode Gundam. Yes, yeah. You, you, yeah, you basically watch the equivalent of like a Mobile Suit Gundam side story show that's like 50 yes. episodes set during the one-year war. Because the next one I watched was The Eighth MS Team, which is the one done in the 90s, and it is... 90s ass anime uh-huh. in in just every facet of it. Like that's the other thing is that I watched five Gundam shows now from four different decades, and I love that like you can trace the history of anime through Gundam. Yes, yeah, because it's been there through all of it. Like something like Dragon Ball, that's a very long running series, has these big gaps, you know, where it wasn't airing or one show went on for so long that it doesn't really reflect the other evolutions. I feel like every one of these, I'm like, oh, these are all different eras of anime, and it's really fun to see that reflected. Yeah, and they're all, you know, they're all different stories with different characters, like, made by very different teams. And so, yeah, like, one of the fun things about Gundam as a franchise is whether you're watching some of the other, like, full series or the OVA kind of spinoff stuff, you're getting so many different perspectives on this one sort of core idea that the, that the 1979 show kind of put forth. Yes. And the 8th MS team is, you described it on the last episode as it's kind of like Gundam in Vietnam. Yeah. Because it's a group of fighters, the 8th MS team, who are in, where are they in the, on the planet? Are they in South America? I, I think it looks like it's supposed to be South America. Like I've yeah. always imagined them being somewhere like in the vicinity of Javaro because that was, it's the same kind of environment. That was my assumption. But anyway, yes, they are on the ground. They do have Gundam units. And their their leader is Shinji something, right? Shin- um, it's I think it's sh- yeah, I think it's Shinji. Yeah, you can look it up. But yeah, Ogawa, Shinji Ogawa. Okay, and so Shinji is like this new commander. Uh, he's like this is his first command. The series starts with an episode set pretty much entirely in space, where he goes out to rescue a friendly pilot who later becomes part of his team and is a really cool character. Yeah, and, and it has the one of my favorite action scenes in all of Gundam, which is he is in he's piloting a ball. Yes, which is great. Yes, the ball is the it's a it's a mobile suit that doesn't do a lot of fighting. It's it's the Gundam wiki technically puts it as a mobile pod. Yes, <laughs> it's not a mobile suit. It's not a mobile armor, it's a mobile pod. And the enemy pilot is, and I'm forgetting the name of the female lead of this series now. Um, um, Ina. Ina, yes. So it's a woman named Ina who fights with Zeon, and they wind up like stranded in the wreckage of this ship. And they're enemies, but like Shinji points out, like if we don't work together, we're going to die on this ship, and that won't help anyone. So they work together, they get out of this situation, they go their separate ways, but she leaves her like locket special watch with him. And they have, it's heavily implied, they have, like, fallen in love. And so, 8th MS team is, it is Gundam in the jungle, it's Gundam in Vietnam, it is also Romeo and Juliet by way of Gundam. And with all that said, though, Romeo and Juliet is a tragedy, Vietnam is very tragic. This is not a kill em all Tomino series. Like, it is a series where, where people tend to live... It does not go for the gut as much as other Gundam shows. That's part of what makes it feel a little more 90s to me, mm-hmm. in addition to like the animation style and stuff. But it has style to spare. The score is done by the great Kohei Tanaka, who we love from the Gravity Rush soundtracks. Yeah. 
And you can tell it's him because he has such crazy orchestration. It's got an amazing theme song. I fucking love that 8th MS Team theme song. Yes, that's the song that on the Gundam vs. game, that is the song that I uh, chose as the like main menu music because nice. it's very good. It's, it, gets you, it gets you pumped, you know? Uh, I, this one I almost wish was a full-length anime because I wanted more of like what the first six episodes are, which is Gundams in the jungle doing different Vietnam-style combat missions because that just like... I didn't know I needed the image of a Gundam standing up out of the jungle or like walking through like water and stuff, mm-hmm. but I did, and it's amazing because it's kind of like the first six or seven episodes are episodic, and then it becomes very serialized to like finish the story. It's all very good. It has a weird final episode that feels that's very much like an epilogue. Yeah, and I didn't. Lo- I thought it was an interesting idea, not perfectly executed, but the main eleven are so good, and it builds to the the two parter that is like the big finale is probably the best Gundam action sequence out there that I've seen in all of this. Because it's the one with, you've got the figure right here, this yeah. big custom goof that comes out that is like Ina's right-hand man is piloting it. Who is named Norris Packard. Fucking hell, Sean. These <laughs> names. They're very good. And Norris Packard is just a great character. And that fight, just like, if I were to pick one, I don't know if it's the absolute best, but I guess if I were to say, if I picked one Gundam fight to summarize what I like about Gundam action, I would pick that one. Yeah, because it's because he's got, I mean, he's got a giant Gatling gun that's like just bolted onto the end of his shield, and then he's also basically got a giant grappling hook um, in the goof's arm, and so he is using like basically these like kind of guerrilla urban warfare tactics in this mobile because it's just him fighting a bunch of like gun tanks and ground Gundams and GMs and this like whole assortment of kind of the ragtag Earth Federation forces that are a little bit beaten up by that point and he's just kind of like he's just fucking them up and it's really it's really it's it's kind of like a fully extended like version of the fight scene in uh, Garma Falls where where Amar is fighting uh, Shar and a couple of the other Zaku's in like the destroyed wreckage of like New York City wherever they are yeah but it's it's a great series. I recommend it as well. At this point, I was like texting Sean and being like, "What black voodoo magic are they using to make every one again?" I've done four different decades. How are they all this fucking good? Yeah. What is in the water for this series? And part of it is I know I'm watching OVAs that have like like eight MS team. The poor people who watched this when it came out, there were like. Because the director died halfway through the series, mm-hmm. so that series took like three years to come out, and there were giant like that final two parter. I think had a six month gap, which would be fucking torturous given the cliffhanger that ends on. Yeah, but the upside of that is that they got all the time in the world to make it as good as it could be. Yeah, and the animation is gorgeous. And the team that made the animation for the 08 MS team is also they made cutscenes for a like PS2 Mobile Suit Gundam game that's set like through the events of the original series. I have those cutscenes. Yeah, so they. So they reanimated a lot of the iconic... Like, they're very brief. It's probably about eight minutes total of footage across all the cutscenes. But you get some nice shots of, like, Amuro getting to the Gundam that are animated at the quality that way the MS team is animated. And that is very nice to have. Very, very cool. And then the final one I watched of this batch is also my favorite. Okay, yeah. And that is Mobile Suit Gundam Thunderbolt. Yeah, and I re-watched this after you talked about it so much. Because for whatever reason, the first time I watched it, it didn't... I might have... Because it came out literally as I finished my Gundam watch-through. So I might have been a little bit Gundam fatigued. Rewatching it, it is fucking amazing. It is fucking amazing. It's unfinished, we should say. Yes. So it is an ONA series. An original net animation. Because Thunderbolt is a, at this point, long-running manga series... 
and we'll talk about the manga in a second. The ONA is, it means that they released it online, obviously. They were shorter, like 15 to 20 minute episodes. Don't bother with those. There are movies that mm-hmm. they've compiled, and they're not compilations in that they like cut a bunch of stuff. They literally just sewed them all together. Yeah. And it's two movies right now, Mobile Suit Gundam Thunderbolt December Sky and Thunderbolt Bandit Flower. One is 70 minutes, one is 90 minutes, but they're both just good movies. And it, if, if you told me that they were just done as movies, you would never know mm-hmm. that like they were actually episodic at some point. So those are how you can watch those easily. And it is probably my... When I say favorite, I want to be clear. These are all like A-plus anime series. So it's just down to like what, what tickles my fancy most. Yeah. And Thunderbolt, if you know me... Is like it's so made for me. It is so synesthetic because the whole show is built around music, and this is right out of the manga. It's it's the, there's two main characters, and it all takes place in the Thunderbolt sector, which is the ruins of Side Four, where because of the specific mixture of debris, there's a lot of static discharge, and so there's lightning everywhere, and you have a unit of Zeon. Uh, forces who are all disabled in different ways, like they've all lost limbs in the war. Yeah, and there, the main character there is Daryl Lawrence, ends in Daryl Lawrence, who gets promoted to chief petty officer, who pilots Asaku. And then you have the Moore Brotherhood, who are the former residents of Side Four, who are now fighting for the Federation, and their ace pilot is Eo Fleming. <laughs> yeah, grand fucking name. And Daryl and Eo both listen to the radio while they pilot their mechs, and Daryl listens to. Oldies, so like vocal songs. Yeah, a lot of like blues stuff. Mm-hmm. And EO listens to free jazz. And this is all in the manga, but in the manga they can just kind of like write in some musical notes, and then there are lyrics for Daryl's songs that like kind of comment on the action going by. But for the show, they pulled out all the fucking stops. And they did fully original soundtracks with all this original jazz that is amazing. The second movie has a song called Groovy Duel that is one of my favorite jazz tracks yeah. ever, and I love jazz. It's amazing. And then they also have basically created all the songs for Daryl, which is basically they're like, what would oldies sound like in Gundamverse? Uh-huh. Like, not literally like pulling songs from Japan in the 50s, but like making songs that like for the people in 0079 would be like 50 years old. What are those songs? So it's really creative. And then all the action and a lot of the other scenes, which are, there's a lot of like big montages in Thunderbolt, are scored to this diegetic music that the characters are listening to. The closest comparison stylistically is it's like Edgar Wright's Baby Driver, but for Gundam, yeah. which, if you've seen Baby Driver, a really good movie, which is about car chases and bank robberies set to this character who's always listening to his iPod. This is giant fucking mech fights set to characters listening to their music, but it's all original music. It is so stylistically. Unbelievable! It is an a, incredible achievement. But it's also the story and the characters are so good. It goes by... It, but it's also paced really differently. Yeah. Because it goes by extremely fast. There's not a lot of... Di- this is true of the manga too. The manga has very little dialogue. It is... And you, you can tell they're taking their cues from the manga. Because the manga is experiential first and foremost. Like it is a lot of splash pages... It is a lot of chapters that are pure combat with no dialogue whatsoever. The contents of that first movie, Sean, which is only 69 minutes long, are all three of these volumes. Uh-huh. And each of these is 250 pages. And this actually doesn't even get to the Abaku stuff at the end of the first movie. So, like, you can tell, like, just the amount of effort put into the art is there where, like, they can do, like, 20 pages of art in the comic that will then become 10 seconds of the show. Because you have things like, like, this is a constant in this, is yeah. this kind of art. 
And it's it's all, you know, it's manga, it's black and white. A lot of it reminds me of Frank Miller's Sin City because it's got this, like, really high contrast. Like, you can kind of see it, Sean, here on, like, the buildings. That reminds me of how Frank Miller does, like, the yeah. noir black and white. It's really cool. Uh, and then for the for the show, it's a very faithful adaptation, but it's really fast-paced because I think the manga kind of demands that. And so it's just, it's a, it's absolutely breathless, but it is also really poignant. The The second movie, I think, is a little weaker than the first just because it's setting up longer-term arcs and isn't as self-contained. The first movie is a totally self-contained thing yeah. that basically tells this story about two guys who sacrifice everything for this feud and at the end are left with nothing. And the kicker of that first movie where it shows the Battle of Abawaku and Daryl Lawrence, who has sacrificed all his limbs to pilot this psychic Zaku, the, the psycho Zaku. Which he doesn't have anymore, and now he can't pilot a normal Zaku and is in trouble. And then Eo, who has been become a POW and is beat to shit, and both of their girlfriends are either dead or have been like gone crazy. Like it is dark as sin. It is one of the more easily one of the more ruthless Gundam things I've seen. Like it really embodies those ethos of like the middle portion of like the original Gundam of like yeah. everyone's going to fucking die. Yeah. And uh I fucking love it, and now I'm, I've read these first three volumes of the manga, which I got, and I can't wait to read more, because the manga is well beyond, obviously, where the show is. The last movie came out in 2017, and they haven't said whether they're doing any more. I really hope the anime comes back at some point. Me too, yeah. Because it would be a fucking sin to leave that unfinished. At the very least, though, the manga is still going strong. It's by Yasuo Otagaki. And it is very much worth seeking out. Sean, you would fucking love this. Yeah, and it's cool because it is also one of the rare Gundam manga that is getting, like, good official English mm-hmm. releases. Because there's lots of, like, big Gundam manga throughout the life of Gundam as a franchise. Most of it, stuff like Crossbone Gundam, which was written by Yoshiki Tomino and is effectively, like, a sequel to Double Zeta Gundam um, and Gundam F91... That has never gotten official English release, and like so, some of like the if you're an English language Gundam fan and you want to read some of the manga, it is you have to usually go by like weird scanlations online and stuff like that. So it's very cool that Thunderbolt is getting this kind of nice release over here. Yeah, because it's all it's Viz, but it's Viz's signature line, which means the books are oversized. They've got all the color pages in there. Um, they're a little pricier, but you know, not outside the realm of normal for manga and. Very, very good. Thunderbolt just has such an identity of its own. Like, it is such its own unique thing. Even though it's in the one-year war, it feels like the most different from all this other... Even though all of these are very different shows, Thunderbolt is just out on a fucking limb. And I love it to death. And I also like that this show doesn't care about continuity in the (laughs) slightest. There is a Gundam introduced in the second arc called the Atlas Gundam. That, like, if that thing existed... Zeta Gundam, Double Zeta, like, none of them could happen. Oh, yes, no, yeah. The Atlas Gundam is much more sophisticated than the Gundam Mark II uh, for the beginning of Zeta Gundam. Like, it's, yeah, ridiculous. But I love that it's, like, like, but at a certain point, like, you couldn't tell these stories if you didn't just go ahead and do it, so why the hell not? Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't If continuity anything. really bothers you, just, it's alternate universe. Go with it, you know? Like, uh-huh. you can find a way to enjoy it. Because also, it does not do any intersections with Char and Amuro and all that stuff, yeah. which helps it kind of be its own thing. But it is, like although you do have like that one scene for for the anime at the beginning or yeah for episode four where they're at Abawaku and you like see 
like they're not like they're not doing like the exact shots or whatever from the show but you see like oh that's a G fighter that's the Zeong presumably Char is in that thing that's maybe Sailor's flying around in yeah. the G fighter even though if you're going by the movies the G fighter technically shouldn't exist but yeah again continuity and Gundam depending on which versions you're going by are different but yeah I, I, that's one thing that is fun about Thunderbolt is it does give you a different perspective on so like either with Abakuda specific events or just like things going on in the world of Gundam during the one year war like the idea of them being from the, the Federation people being uh, people from side 4 which is the side that the Battle of Loom happened at that's the side where the uh, space colony that was used in the colony drop um, that's where that colony was from so they suffered like maybe more than anybody else it's in a, the it's opening a sh- phases of the war. It's a show about deeply broken people. Yeah, and it, it uses the the setting and like knowledge of the context of the one year war really smartly. It does, and it is, it is like I said, it is the most experiential Gundam series because it is all about what it's like to be in the midst of war. Like literally, the the big fight that concludes the first run of Thunderbolt in the anime is the last volume and a half. It's like 400 pages is just that battle. It's cut down a little bit in the anime for obvious reasons. Yeah. But like it it never loses steam. Like the first half of that battle is each chapter just kind of goes to a different character and does little stories. Like one story is just a 30-page chapter about one of the kids who is putting the GMs and spoiler fucking dies badly at the end. Yep. All There's friends. a lot of dead children in that. A lot of dead. Ch- it's oh my god! It is amazing. The yeah, manga or anime, seek it out. Um, the anime will just you'll get to the end of episode two and then be like, wait, where's the rest of this? It's so good. Yeah, the the first section of, of Thunderball for the anime also has one of my favorite shots in any Gundam anime, which is it's a like first person shot. From a Xeon pilot fighting the full armor Gundam that EO is piloting. And Ian, the full armor Gundam, is just zooming all over the place, like too fast for um, the pilot to catch up with. And it like captures that sense very visceral, viscerally of what it would have to feel like to be a, a normal mobile suit pilot fighting an ace pilot in like a high quality mobile suit like yeah. that. Of like, you have to imagine that's what everybody who fought Amuro in the last sections of Mobile Suit Gundam, they went through that exact same shit. Only on top of that, Amuro was like partially psychic, and so they would shoot at him and you just like magically dodge them and like, what the fuck? I'm so fucked. Like, you're so fucked in that situation. Thunderbolt also, like, not, this is actually interesting. None of these shows do any new type stuff, really. Yeah. Like, Thunderbolt, they say, there's one line where someone's like, is Daryl a new type? And they never bring it up again. And it's just like a kind of offhand comment. Eight the Mess team doesn't have any of that. War in the Pocket doesn't have any of that. Gundam the Origin, they talk about it, but obviously it's not a thing yet because no one's met Amuro or... I guess Lala is there in the Origin. Yes, they show him in meeting Lala for the first time. Which is a really good scene. Yeah. Um, but that's also just... It's nice to be... I don't mind the new type stuff, but it's cool to have shows where it's like, that's not a factor. Yeah, because it's definitely... It is... And this will be something to talk about with the compilation movies. There's something very nice about having Universal Century Gundam stuff, particularly from the perspective of someone who's seen all of it, that doesn't have to deal with new type stuff because it can be so all-encompassing when new type pops in. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's one of the nice things about the spinoffs, for sure. Because this is also true of, like, almost all of the alternate universe Gundam shows do not have... They like there's one that literally has new types. There's a couple that have a kind of new type equivalents. Several of them, like Iron Blooded Orphans, have nothing that are like new types at all. And so that's one of the nice things about other Gundam shows is that they can do some of the stuff that 0079 did for most of its run, which is more of a normal story about more normal soldiers in a big conflict yeah. than the, the the new type stuff that I like. But it can be so all encompassing when it pops in. 
Yeah. Um, it's one of those things that very much depends on how it's handled. Yeah. So, yeah, that's all the Gundam I have mainlined. And, Sean, just, just those five shows I've seen now are all 10 out of 10, amazing, wonderful anime. I have bought fucking books. I have downloaded a lot of anime. I have all the soundtracks for these two because the, th- the, th- the two Thunderbolt albums are so good. Download those if you haven't. They're amazing yeah, because Gundam is a franchise that, in my opinion, is like really consistently high quality. For like, it has obviously dips as any forty year old forty forty year old franchise would have, but generally it's really good. One thing that is always good about Gundam is the music. Like, which, even the bad Gundam shows have great music, which is amazing because I don't. I think these five shows are all five different composers. Yes, they are. Yeah, like that's amazing too. Usually, when you have a show that is long running with good music, you have like a a one or a set of composers. You don't have. They just happen to find great people every time, and always. They're just on the same page. It's amazing. Yeah, it's one of the weird things that is like just has always been amazing in Gundam. Like even Gundam shows that I don't particularly love, like a Gundam Wing or ones that I think are actually bad, like Seed to Destiny, still have fucking amazing soundtracks that I listen to all the time. So that's and that's exciting for me to hear because that tells me that there's something worthwhile, even if I eventually get into the dark patches. <laughs> yes, no, and, and there's only the dark patches are very brief. Right, it's mostly Seed Destiny and uh, Gundam Fighters Build Fighters Try. Which that is the only one that I'm like definitely. There's no reason to watch. <laughs> Even like Sea Destiny at least has some like bad good stuff in it. And I'm still deep in Universal Century, so that's way off for yes. me. Yeah. All right, but Sean, that is all the Gundam I've watched, and then I was ready to circle back around, and I was really excited at this point to watch the movies because I was like, now that I've seen all the other One Year War stuff, I'm really excited to like re-digest the show and like it, it, I'm not gonna watch all of it again, but the movies, the main story there. Um, in this new form, I was really excited, and now transitioning to the movies, yeah. I was not disappointed. Yeah, no, I so I have never seen the movies like properly all the way through. I had like sort of skipped through them to see some of the new scenes, and out of curiosity, like where did the movies begin and end? Like how did they change some things up? Um, but I had never just sort of sat down and said, "Hit play on the movie. Let's watch this all the way through." And I was really satisfied. Like I was pretty shocked at how how good these movies are. They're really good. Here's what I've... I've been trying to, like, figure out what my critical line on them is, Sean. And I think my line is... For the unbelievably difficult task of taking 43 episodes, which would be about 20 hours of content, and making 6 hours of content out of it, these are not only, I think, as good as they could possibly be, I think in the case of the third movie in particular, they're better than you would ever expect. Yeah. Like, I think the first and second movies have some things where I feel like... This didn't work, or I wasn't a huge fan of this. Well, overall, I'm very impressed by them. The third movie is just... If, if I was just taking it on the ranks of a movie, it's one of my favorite animated movies yeah. ever. Um, that third movie is is the part where I would say that goes pretty toe-to-toe with the show. The mm-hmm. first and second, I prefer the show versions, but there's a lot of compelling ways they tie it together. And I think the most impressive thing is they work as movies. Yeah. Especially the first and third. The second, I feel like there's a tension where that movie kind of is two movies. Yeah, it sort of is the Odessa Day stuff, and then it's Dublin and Jabro, and they kind of... Yeah. Which, in, for whatever reason, I in my memory, I thought that they had cut the Dublin stuff almost entirely from the movie. It's like, nope, they do the entire Miharu. Like, they do both of those episodes are almost in there in their entirety. Yeah. But I was really fascinated by where they move things around, how they kind of subtly alter arcs just through editing, how they more unsubtly alter things through new animation, new voice acting, new scenes. And then the third movie doesn't change as much as I think its reputation 
like tells us, but it does. It's the one that makes the biggest concerted effort to make a movie out of this stuff yeah. and really tie, I think, the story of Lala, Shar, and Amuro and Sela into one solid two and a half hour story. And that third movie is a punch to the chest. It is so good. And I think the biggest thing for me, Sean, is that like that. So I would sat down and watch that first movie, and you get to the end, and that movie builds to the climax is the fight with Ramba Rao, the first one, and then the Sieg Zion scene yeah. where it's the funeral for Garma, and Giren gets everyone riled up, and they're watching it, and like this is what we're up against. And it is so easy to understand why people went into that theater not knowing what Gundam was. And came out of that theater, and Gundam was a phenomenon. Yes, because that first movie—it's not the best of the three movies. I think that's the third one, but it is—it it builds to such an effective, like, get you pumped on your way out of the theater. There's no way to walk out of that first movie, no matter your level of experience, without wanting more, right? Yeah, and it's—it's it's the thing that I think is most impressive about the compilation movies is how just how much Gundam they get in there. Like, yeah, it is. Like, obviously, there are, I like, I my opinion has not changed that, like, absolutely watch the TV show. I think the TV show is better than the movies. Like, there's no way it wouldn't be. Like, right. it was designed to be the TV show. The the movies are a little bit Frankenstein together in places because, you know, they, the, like, all together, they're about seven hours long. Um, and doing seven hours of movie quality animation in released across about nine months, that's not possible. <laughs> like, so you right. have to, obviously, part of their mission statement was to use as much footage from the original TV animation as they could and then do um, new animation to kind of help fill in all the gaps. And then Although it also we, speaks to how good the animation in the show was that yes. it holds up. Yeah, and as it goes, like, by the time you get to the third movie, there's a lot of new animation in the third movie. Um, but So they're a little bit Frankenstein together. I still think the, the TV show is definitely the, the best, like, most definitive version of, of what I would say you should go to for, for Mobile Suit Gundam. But if you had no experience with it, if you had no, if you had never seen the show, had no conception of it, and yeah, like it was, you were in Japan in 1981, and you went to that movie theater and watched that first movie, like I don't know how you wouldn't fall in love with it because it captures so much of the heart and soul of Gundam, even if a lot of like the my favorite little character beats are not in there. The core of the story and the core of the characters is absolutely represented, and the fact that they can find room to do the entirety of Amuro going home and meeting his mom and like all that like the fact that those kinds of moments make it into the movie and not just that like we technically got this like story beat in here but we let that story beat breathe is really hugely impressive because I think the secret sauce of these movies Sean is that they don't do all 43 episodes yeah they're actually very careful picking and choosing and if they're going to take stuff from an episode they generally do as much of that episode as they can it's not like the first movie is roughly the first 13 episodes it is not 13 Gundam fights cut down to 5 minutes exactly yeah that wouldn't work so they do really creative stuff like episodes 1 and 2 are pretty much in there in their entirety because I don't know how you would cut those down yeah episode 1 I think literally it's just episode 1 there's like a little bit of new animation of the coming into the colony because they have to transition out of a title card that obviously didn't exist in the TV show. But other than that, it's just the first episode of Gundam. Like, as I literally posit, it's like, yep, 21 minutes have passed and it has just been this first episode and it's like the rest of it would have been the opening animation in the credits. Yes. <laughs> it's like, this is just episode one of Gundam. Exactly. And then, so for episodes three and four, which is the episode where Char gets um, his new supplies, yeah. and then the escape from Luna 2 episode, 
what they do a very clever cut where it's just they cross cut them so Shar gets his supplies and they go to Luna 2 but all the conflict is removed so it's just a breather and then we do basically the entirety of episode 5 which is the re-entry to Earth yeah. and, so, and then from there on out like they cut they basically do the beginning and ending of the Garma stuff they don't do a lot of the in-between fights which we love a lot of those episodes but obviously you could not do all of them so instead of doing a little bit of each of them which would dilute it all they present the the stuff they want to show to its fullest extent yeah and it's really smart and then they also move some stuff around so it works better cinematically um, but I think that's the secret sauce is that they they're not slavish to all the original content and what, with, if they're going to present something, they're not going to neuter it so it'll fit in the movie. They will just take, like, you know, we love the episode Time Be Still, for instance, which yeah. is where the guys come in and plant all the bombs on the Gundam. Not a frame of that is in here because it wouldn't work in a movie. Yeah. And that's fine. That's what the TV show's for. Um, there's a lot of things like that. Um, the Winds of War episode, which is the ceasefire where they're looking for salt. I love that. Don't know how they would have cut it in here. They don't try. So I think that movie one, which is the most just recutting the show does a lot of that and then movie two kind of continues it although that's where you start getting new stuff and then movie three is focusing on probably the shortest set of episodes yeah and and it gets to kind of go free the most but it is it, it's just you know this is a smart team and they did it very smartly and you know it's interesting compilation movies in anime are a very common thing that don't get talked about a lot because they're generally not very good. Yeah, every other compilation movie I've ever seen is just like the most sort of slapped together. Like, uh, this is just like, this is just a heavily compromised version of the thing you already saw in the TV show. Um, with like like three minutes of new animation in this like one scene. And you're like, fucking, why did I watch this? Like, what the fuck, what, what am I doing? It's funny because I, I do think compilation movies have a weird... Like mystical appeal to American viewers because we don't get a lot of them. Yeah. And so, like, I just remember, for instance, when the Death Note anime was airing, they did two compilation movies, and a lot of Death Note fans were like, "Ooh, what are these? We want to see." Like, they, we were kind of excited. Like, there's new Death Note animation in theaters, but we never got those until finally they did. I think on the Blu-ray they're on there, and we didn't have that context of like it's not a cultural thing. Like, we don't yeah. take. DuckTales or whatever our animated show is and do a compilation movie. So like... But yeah, or like you don't even... You don't take like season one of Game of Thrones no. and recut a, some movie version of it and put it out in theaters, which right. is something you could theoretically do something like that. Yeah. It just... The, the the tradition in the market doesn't necessarily exist over here. So I think for a lot of American viewers, it's like, ooh, what is this special thing? And the answer is, it's actually kind of disappointing. It's just there to make a, a quick extra buck. Yeah, and it's, it's you know, and I can see the there's like a certain appeal for it from like, if you're a fan of, I think it is an interesting thing to do like, of like, oh, it's another vector that you can maybe introduce this thing you really like to someone you want to introduce it to. Like, I can see... A scenario where you're like, I keep, it's very hard for me to convince my friend to watch, to start watching a 43 episode anime series. They just don't watch anime. Maybe I can convince them to watch this one two hour movie, the first Mobile Suit Gundam movie, and we can sit down and watch it together. Like that scenario for a lot of compilation movies can kind of make sense to me. Yeah. But other than that, they just seem kind of pointless. And to see it in theaters. Yeah, sure. To see some of the animation on the big screen would be very exciting. But. This this Mobile Suit Gundam trilogy occupies a really special place in that it it was not a slapdash cash grab. It was fighting for the soul of the franchise. Yeah. Like, this is our last gasp at, you know, we've got these toys, people like the toys, but, like, we've got to prove this can work as an anime. 
holy crap, because it feels like they are working to make this as good as it can be. Yeah. And I think that's the big difference if you've seen other compilation movies. Um, and it really is, it does stand on its own. I would agree. I would tell you, watch the show. But if for some reason you just absolutely cannot like commit the, the 20 hours to watch the show, I would not feel like you are getting a drastically inferior product watching the movies. They are yeah. good movies. Yeah, you're going to have a really good time and you will understand like the 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 fundamental core of what Mobile Suit Gundam was, even if again, like, you know, I love the T V show to death. There are lots of reasons why I would say watch the T V show, but you are not you're not getting a like tarnished Gundam experience if you're watching the movie. <laughs> and the joke will ultimately be on you because you'll get hooked and then you'll watch it all anyway. Exactly. So, ha, yeah. Ha, 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 ha. yeah. I, <laughs> that definitely seems like that would probably be the most likely path is either you're someone that for whatever reason you just do not like it at all and then you bounce off of it or if you do like it you're probably going to like it a lot and then you'll immediately start watching the show. Like, there's like 14 more hours of this stuff that I haven't seen. Fuck yeah, sign me up. It's literally what happened to the sovereign nation of Japan. Yes. Yeah. They, they were like, I don't really know if I want to watch this show. They watched the movie. Then they went back and watched the whole fucking show get in reruns. Yeah. And demanded more until they got way too many sequels to count. <laughs> so let's, let's break these down a little more, Sean. Um, do you want to just go movie by movie? Yeah. So we have Mobile Suit Gundam... Just the movie. Like, it's just called Mobile Suit Gundam. The other ones have subtitles, but not the first one. Mobile Suit Gundam 2 is the Soldiers, Soldiers of, of Sorrow. Sorrow. Mobile Suit Gundam 3 Encounters in Space. Which is a very kind of, like, laid-back title for a very action-packed yeah. movie. I think the, the Japanese title, which is, uh, what is it? It's Meguri Ein uh, Soda. Um, so it's like it's more like fated encounters in space, but it's also sorta means sky in Japanese, yeah, but it's written with the characters of space. So it's this like cool little stylish thing that they do in Japanese that I always think is very funny. Nice. Um, but yeah, so the first movie um, is you may have seen, heard this before. It's the first thirteen episodes. I mean, it's basically what I did in, in separating it. Like the separations are pretty similar to to where I yeah. made made divisions for this podcast. Um, so yeah, it's, it's 1 through 13. The main thing they do, I think the thing that I'm most impressed at with movie 1, is they basically take the stretch from episode 6 through 10, which is uh, Garma, like them coming in. So episode 5 is them coming to Earth. Episode 6 is the first encounter with Garma. And then episode 10 is Garma's fate. That's where Garma dies. In the middle, you have Winds of War. Winds of War is cut out entirely. But you have Garma Strikes, episode 6. Episode 7, the core fighters, core fighters escape. Episode 9, Fly Gundam. And episode 10, or not, I guess not episode 10, Garma's Fate is kind of done on its own. But those like 6 through 9 are kind of all put together and remixed into one really large battle. And so instead of having, here's a number of discrete encounters between the White Base and Garma's forces. They take all of those fights that are like the, you know, that this is where uh, Hayato and Kai kind of get their first chance to shine in the anime. This is where you have like Garma coming in with the planes. This is where you have like the Magellan attack tanks coming in from the ground. You have the Zaku's coming in. You have um, in the anime, you have a full fight between Amuro and Char where they're both in free fall together. That fight is cut out, but some of the footage is reused to show Char arriving as well. And so they kind of take all those elements of some of those different fights and put them together for one big action scene in the middle of the movie, which is also where you get the majority of your new animation to kind of put everything together. And it is fucking awesome. Like, that big middle battle is really good. Because, yeah, one of their big strategies is, in the show, how they show Amuro developing as a pilot is... Every episode, it's very gradual, so like you can't point to the moment where Amuro becomes a great pilot. It just 
over time it happens. It's like ice melting, you know? Yeah. In the, sh- in the movies, it's like, we can't do 13 battles in one movie. So let's pick a couple of battles and either expand them or just give them a lot of focus. And this is like the mid-battle second act, like, big action sequence to, like, really start putting it all together. And then they do Garma's Fate after that. And then Coming Home becomes the direct follow-up to that, which feels, like, very correct for movie pacing. But I yeah. agree. I think that's a really creative cut-together the, the biggest thing I feel is missing from episode one is you do lose a lot of Char needling Garma. Yes, it, yeah. Most of that's not there, and I think if you had not watched the show, I'm not sure you would know what Char is up to before he, like, plays his cards. Whereas in the show, it's very clear for several episodes that, wait a second, he's not actually this guy's friend? <laughs> You know, yeah, no, because I mean, basically, what happens? Because I think all the compilation movies, even though I like them and I think three is very good, they all have the same problem, which is that there is too much fighting and there's not enough characters talking. And that problem mostly just arrives from they are trying to take a story that was originally told in forty-three episodes, where every mm-hmm. single episode had some kind of fight, and there's just no way to reconfigure that without there being like four or five battle scenes per movie, which is what there are. Where normally you'd probably want to have like two to three, and there's like three or four more battle scenes than what you probably actually would have if they could have just totally scrapped it and like from the ground up made movies based on like the core story. Um, So you have just like too many different kinds of fight scenes in too much close proximity because they need to get through that kind of plot. And so you do get some of those more subtle character dynamics tend to get discarded. And that is yeah. probably, that is the most important one from the first movie is yes, you, you do get the scene of Char in the shower and Garma outside talking to him, which is a great scene. And they kind of extend that scene a little bit more with some dialogue to kind of get a little bit more out of that one interaction between the two. But yeah, you don't get like Char fucking unplugging the communications device and like fucking it up and plugging it back in to, to, to trick uh, Garma. Yeah, like a lot of those little tiny beats you get along yeah. the way have to get cut. And again, it was these were never going to get everything we loved in the yeah. show in there. It's amazing it works as well as it does. And I do think like, again, in terms of adapting a show that is like... Because Mobile Suit Gundam is a TV show-ass TV show. Yeah, it's extremely episodic. Like yeah. a lot happens every single episode. To, to make a movie that is the, as cinematically paced as it is is amazing. And I think, that, again, just their instinct of like... Char is sort of our first act villain who kind of brings us in. Garma is the big figure of the second act. And then the third act is all sort of picking up the pieces from what has happened so far. Very satisfying movie. Yeah. And because of that, it also gives you a little taste of everything Gundam has to offer across the sort of three acts of this film. Um, and again, sends you out on that crazy high note. But yes, I think that action scene in the middle is so much fun and extremely well done. But then when when Garma dies and they go... Because they cut all the... Isolina is in the movie, but they cut her, like, retaliation. Yeah, she exists in the movie just as, like, a way to humanize Garma. Yeah, Um, yeah, they don't have... Which is, again, like, one of those things where it's like, it's such a great episode. It's like, it's sad to lose that moment of her trying to shoot at Amuro in dying and saying, like, I'm going to take revenge on you. And Amuro being like, she wanted revenge on me. I don't even know who this lady is. Sad to lose some of those character moments, but it's the right choice. It is, yeah. But I don't know how you, you couldn't do make that work in here yeah. <laughs> because you, you just you can't like the show has to introduce a foe every week or you have a foe around every week. The movie has to once Garma is gone, it has to recenter, and where it recenters on is like the Zombie family for the final third. Um, Isolina would be a distraction cinematically, 
But I think they make the smart choice, which is they move Coming Home up. So Coming yes. Home is episode 13. They move it before we meet Ron Burrell, before uh, Giren gives his big Nazi speech. And so it is pretty much all of Coming Home, although some of it is reanimated. We'll talk about that. But it is also recontextualized because it's not Isolina that is the direct like impetus for and, and the Ron Burrell fight and all of the shell shock stuff. It is more just the sense of like being in the battle. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because it lands, it still lands a, the punch it needs to land. It just lands it differently. And it's really interesting because coming home, like the first episode, it's the whole thing. Yes, yeah. They basically put the entire episode in there. Like, they, they changed the end of the end fight a little bit to get Matilda to come in. But other than that, it is yeah. that episode. Matilda to come in and he doesn't get in the Gundam. He just stays yeah. in the core fighter, which I actually kind of like a little more because him just being in the core fighter, being more directly gunning people down, lands a little more viscerally. And I think if they didn't have to include the Gundam in every episode of the show, that's probably would have been their instinct making yeah, it. I'm, yeah, it is that kind of thing where it's like, when that happened, and my I was like, is that how it happened in the TV show? Because it was that thing of like, I had to go back and look a little bit at, at episode 13 to be like 100% sure... Because it is the thing that it feels like that's what they would have wanted to do, but like yeah, like they had they basically had to put the Gundam in every single episode. Yeah. Um. So so they had to have him be in the Gundam over there, but it does it, it, like that sequence of him attacking the 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 Xeon base in the movie. I do prefer that version of that scene as opposed to the TV version. Yeah. Which hey, improving on one of the best episodes of the show. You know, if if it did all, if that was all it did, yeah, worth it, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you have that, and then kind of bringing us back for the, the turning the first Rambaral attack into the action climax works better than I would have thought, and I think it's just because that's such a good episode. <laughs> yes, yeah, and it, and it feels like one of the main motivations for doing that was to they like because ending it with the the Zeke Zeon scene it was 100% like the best choice they yes. could have made in adapting the the first set of episodes. Yes. And and yeah, having Rambaral send us into that like teasing cuz this that ending is all about putting the hooks in the viewer so that they are hooked for the next movie. And I think the dual punch of Sheik Zeon and then and also meeting Rambaral, seeing the goof for the first time and having Amuro get his ass kicked and being like, oh shit, there is a much bigger threat on the horizon, and they've got a giant Nazi army. Yeah. Cut to credits. Holy crap, give me the next movie right fucking now. Yeah, it's a it's a great ending. I do think there's one, like, there's a little bit of messiness of having to flip those episodes in that I think Amro's thing from that episode, which that's the episode where he's, like, completely shell-shocked, and it's where that great shot of him sitting, like, cradling his knees in his bed with his eyes vacant and Ryu has to like literally drag him into the Gundam that scene doesn't make as much sense to me coming after coming home as before as opposed to before it obviously that like I am almost I'm like 95% sure that the people making this movie knew that this is like this is a slightly awkward way to order these events because they try to recontextualize it where they bring in a, like a little flashback of the mother and try to make it like yeah. I bought it because I think it works on its own terms well enough does it work as well as in the context of the show no, but I was impressed that they were able to give just enough of a sprinkling of like, well, obviously the mother stuff would scar him. The shell shock thing doesn't line up as well as it does when it's the Isolina thing that d- did it. No, but given that's not what the footage was originally done for, 
impressive. Yeah, like it, it is like someone had a really smart idea because it's the moment where at the beginning of that in the episode is at the beginning where Amaro's sitting on the floor tinkering with some dumb Gundam part, like wearing like a fucking wife beater in jeans, and uh, uh, Frabo comes in to give him his food, and this and it's actually like. And one of the interesting things about it, how it's sort of used in the movie, is it feels like it's because it's the first time Amaro eats anything for like the whole movie. Presumably, he's eaten something off screen at some time, but it's the ongoing like sort of you know Amaro bad like having trauma and depression. He just doesn't eat almost ever, and so it's a running thing of like the first time Frabo comes into his room before you even see Amaro, she looks at food that's on the table and says, "Guy, he hasn't even eaten yet." So he so in that episode, Amro gets up and eats some bread. And while he's eating the bread, they put in a flash to him, like thinking about his the shocked look on his mother's face after he just blasted that fucking Zeon dude. I also really like structurally that we meet Amro on the floor tinkering with with his toys, and Fraubo comes in and badgers him about eating, and we end on Amro on the floor tinkering with his toys, and Fraubo comes in. But the context is so different. I yeah. think that's also just a structurally. Very, and I think that sold me more than anything else is that it coming at the end of the movie and being this link between the beginning and end of the film is very um, dynamic filmmaking. Yeah, I think I think probably what I wish they would have done with that last episode was, um, or with the the Rumbarell episode, is just kind of take out the stuff of Amro being totally vacant and yes. you dragging him in to the cockpit, and you'd have to like stitch things together and reanimate a little bit because that's part of why he gets his ass kicked is he's just his head's not in the fight. But I think, like, that's the main thing that feels a little bit of, like, this, like, kind of messy leftover part from the TV show. Because otherwise, there are lots of cool parallels between the beginning and the ending that they find yeah. in those two episodes. And, of course, we're coming at this from the standpoint of having seen the show, in your case, three full times. <laughs> yes, yeah. So, like, I would bet that it would work for someone who hadn't seen the yeah. show. I, they might not even realize that there's something up there. So, you know, again, with what they had incredibly well done better than it has any fucking right to be <laughs> yes yeah there's a few other like interesting things from this section because going back to coming home I was just reminded of um, in the show when Amaro shoots that guy they have they give a line to one of the other people in that tent who like leans down to him and is like he's hurt but he's not dead yet and like as a way of being like I'm, like our 15 year old protagonist definitely didn't just murder a guy with a pistol that's not something we could just do in the movie, that guy has a totally different line, um, like like revealing something I had always supposed, which is like, I like in my head that animation, like when the animation was done, there was not that line in no. the in the episode, and eventually it had to get put in, like like they had to rip the script out of Tungus, like fucking cold hands, like no, it's, no, Amro murdered that guy because he's killed like dozens of people at this point. It's ridiculous to have that like hypocrisy. But of course, you know, in the TV show, they it, couldn't do it. In the movie, they got away with it, and that's good. Reminds me of the original Dragon Ball Z dub on Cartoon Network, where uh, it's like one of the early episodes where Nappa is like shooting all the guys out of the sky, and Master Roshi looks at him and says, Don't worry, I can see their parachutes! Yes. Yeah, it's a similar thing of just like, you can't just murder people like this, like, blazingly on what is presumably a kid's show. And, and, yeah. and Tomino said, oh, is, it, are you, is that a challenge? Tomino said, hold my beer. Yes, just wait. Just wait until I can make some of my later shit. Just wait until I'm making lots of money for you guys. Then you'll see how many people you'll let me kill on television. <laughs> All right. Movie two, I think, is the roughest. Yeah, I think because it, it's... 
I think I did enjoy movie two more than movie one, but I think part of that is I did stop watching movie two halfway through and then watch the second half of the next day, effectively turning it into two movies because that is what it is. Yeah, because I did it in one long sitting yeah. and it I was very antsy by the end. It's got all of the same qualities we said with movie one. I think it just, ideally, this would have probably been a four movie series if they could have gotten away with it. Because yeah. I feel like you, Odessa needs to be the end of a movie. Like, yeah. that's such a, because they also have to cut all of the Odessa fight. And I think that's the most awkward edit in any of these movies, mm-hmm. is what they do to avoid showing the Odessa fight. Because if you show that fight, it's the end of the movie. It's a climax. You can't go past it. So they kind of try to cut around it. I think the second half is really artfully done in terms of condensing all the Northern Ireland and Jaburo stuff together. And it, it ends where it needs to end because the third movie needs to have that structure yeah. of being all the space stuff and all the Lala stuff at once. But I think it's a little rough in terms of concluding that much. And the other thing is this is the movie where I think they overdo the new type stuff. Yes, because at the end of the first movie you get a new scene with Matilda... Where, where she says the term new type and like she says that too bright um, and so in the movies they, they I think that's the only time it's said in the first movie but they introduce the term near the end of the first movie in movie two it is all over the place new type this new type that new yeah. type you're a new type I'm a new type you're a new type Sailor's a new type everyone's a new type new type new type like it's so constant without there being the like movie three has a little more of the new type dialogue but that's also where the new type stuff is yeah that's where you have Amro is clearly a new type he's doing crazy psychic shit and he's fighting a psychic lady named Lala who is also clearly a new type so it's like them saying new type is fine because you're doing all the trippy psychic stuff in movie two it's just a lot of like the time like making explicit some things that were kind of implied in the tv show which is the white base is being used as like a test bed by the Earth Federation for new weapons and then here very explicitly as like these people might be new types let's figure out what the fuck that means so let's yeah. like kind of throw them into dangerous situations and stuff which there are scenes that imply some of that stuff in the TV show there are multiple new scenes with General Revel in movie 2 that just have him say it explicitly like two or three times and some of that I like like yeah. some of those ideas I think are interesting the problem is when they do it in movie three, they're building upon a foundation that exists. And so I actually like a lot of it because I think it helps build like the scaffolding up around it. In movie two, the new type stuff isn't actually there. So like I feel like you either have to keep it at the fringes or you have to ignore it entirely, which is what not, they don't not ignore it, but like not bring it to the text, just leave it as subtext, which yeah. is what the show does. I think movie two just gets over its skis on that. And it also has a few too many moments that does the thing that I'm glad the show never did, which is implying Amuro's talent is due solely to him being a new type. Yeah. Or and because they just directly they keep making that causality, like, well, of course you can do this. You're a new type, but that's not what makes Amuro interesting. If that's the case, I don't give a fuck. Like that's yeah. If that's all it is, then you know that's like the worst version of like midi chlorians in Star Wars if you took the like bad reading of that or if George Lucas went on like imagine a, a Star Wars episode 3 where they're going around being like his midichlorian count is really high that's why he's a great Jedi oh my god is my midichlorian count really high your midichlorian count is off the chart like that would be yeah. annoying right uh-huh. if they bring it up once we both kind of like midichlorians if you say it a million times shut up so movie 2 has a little of that all the stuff that's good in that set of episodes good here and yeah. I think other than that it's a little awkwardly paced, 
it is still a very impressive condensation, and we can get into that. Like, they keep all my favorite Ron Burrell stuff, so we'll get into yeah. that. But I do think, you know, ultimately the new type stuff in this trilogy paid off for me, because I think the third movie, some of the extra stuff they add con- contextualizes the Lala Amuro relationship even more for me, and I really love what a beautiful, like, vision of an evolved humanity is painted there. So I completely understand why Tomio and company wanted to build it up in the first two movies. I just think the second movie goes a little too hard on it. I could have used maybe half as much. Yeah, I think if they had waited to introduce the term new type, like, in the second half of, of this movie, I think that would have been around the right place of, like, after Ramba Rao has been taken care of. Because cause also, I think one of the biggest issues is that then... Amuro hears, is, hears and uses the term new type way too early. Yeah. Um, which means that one, you, you just can't do one of my favorite little Amuro moments from the TV show, which is when Sela calls him a new type and Amuro doesn't know what the fuck she's talking about. It's like, new type? I don't know. People always call me old-fashioned. He closes the cockpit. And so losing that moment is like, you can't. I love that fucking little scene so much. Um, and there so, might be no better moment to sum up Amuro's personality. <laughs> yes, exactly. He's such a sweet little idiot. Um, yeah, and so him, because he just starts to think about him or wonder about himself in terms of new typeness way too early for me, and it's, it's frustrating. Um, and so that's, yeah, that's like one of the, the issues with, and it's always the thing that like, you know, in, of like having skipped around these movies, it was a thing that like kind of irked me a lot of like, especially again, like, I love Zeta Gundam, Double Zeta, and Char's Counterattack, but there's a, so much new type stuff in it. Like, it's basically, like, uh, the way I would... A good reference point I would have for it is Mobile Suit Gundam 0079 in the context of the rest of Universal Century Gundam feels like like the Saiyan saga in the Namek, the Namek saga of Dragon Ball where it's like Super Saiyan is on the horizon and they start slowly building it up but it's nice to have a big good chunk of like this kind of stuff without Super Saiyan because as soon as Super Saiyan gets dropped everything has to be Super Saiyan because that's a new baseline. So Zeta Gundam and Double Zeta and Charge Counterattack are awesome, but you can once you've sort of like spilled the new type milk, you can't put it back in the bottle. Like everything has to be like used in reference to this concept of new type that we all know about because we've seen the show or we've seen the movies before Zeta Gundam. And so sprinkling it all throughout um, the the movies kind of feels like I don't know like the Lord Slug movie or something where it's like you're trying to do Super Saiyan stuff when we're not ready to do Super Saiyan stuff like let's have fun with everybody being able to have normal hair and it doesn't have to be big and blonde like it's we don't have to have everybody having psychic visions very explicitly at this point exactly I think it's a good comparison but let's talk about what this movie does well I was really surprised at how well it captures the Ramba Rao arc. Yeah. Stuff is definitely cut, but it's harder to pinpoint here than with the Garma stuff. I think they're very sly about it. And you still get the full arc of Amuro going out on his own. You get some really good new animation where he doesn't hide the Gundam in an abandoned building. He buries it in the sand. Yes, yeah. It's a really good shot. Really good shot. In his, like, cloak. Yes. This movie has two insert songs. One is, I forget what it's called. The other one is the Soldiers of Sorrow song, which we played as our theme song this week that gets played in several battles. The other one, it's like 
Winds of Hope or something. Yeah. And it's it's where and it plays a couple times, but it starts with like this Western harmonica, and it's this very like song about loneliness, and that plays there where he's like burying the Gundam in the sand and then like walking off to the town. That's just a great piece of animation. Yeah. That you could tell like you probably couldn't have pulled that off on TV because it looks expensive. <laughs> yeah, and it, and it, one of like consistently one of my favorite things about these movies is the new music. Yeah, and, it's really and good. the insert songs and some of the new music done. I assume it was probably the same composer because it's like very much fits with the soundtrack from the original yeah. show. I have acquired all the soundtracks yeah. and they're really cool. The insert songs are all by Daisuke Inoue who did not perform on the original show. So it's that's another thing that I think helps the movie stand out is that the music is in a similar style to the show. But it's different and it gives a different color and flavor to the scenes as well as helping connect them cinematically because the soundtrack does a lot of the heavy lifting for the edit. Yeah. And I think that that means like whether you've seen the show or not, this is a really valid standalone version of this. Because if you've seen the show, these are worth watching because it really gives you a different flavor on those scenes. I think the insert songs do that. The new music does that. Really cool stuff, and I think that insert song's great. Um, we still get the full version of the scene in the town with Rambaral and Hamon and them finding uh, Amaro and finding interest in him, and then with Fraubo there. They yeah. cut out all the stuff with Makuve and the mines. Yeah, Makuve is all like he's in a couple of scenes. They did, there's no new animation with him because they've, they've cut him almost entirely out of the story, which makes sense. Yes, because yeah. he's also cut out of movie three. Yeah, which because it would be like one antagonist too many. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think yeah. it makes sense. They condense it. They really make Rambaral the focus of these episodes. But we get, like I said, that full scene in the diner. We get the full big fight scene with him and the Gundam, which still is probably my favorite fight in the original Gundam. Yep, you still get some of those great money shots of fucking... Like, I, I, nobody will ever be as manly as Rambaral with his hands just pushing molten metal out of the way when his cockpit's been cut open. Um, and then, yeah, then Amuro cutting the, the, the hands of the goof off. Like, all yes. that stuff is there. And we get, it's condensed, but we do get the big attack that Rambaral leads, the like guerrilla attack on the white base, him dying for Sela. They've done, I should say, a lot of good work through these three movies, I think, of cleaning up the Char Sela exposition. Yeah. So that it's a little more unified and clear. Like she says Casval in the first movie. They t- yeah, there is no, like, the, their first meeting in episode two is much more ambiguous in the TV show, whereas when they redo that scene for the movie, it is very explicitly clear that they both know who the other person is. Yes, which I think... I'm fine with that scene in the show. For a movie, you've got to just give that motivation and go. Yeah. So they do that. They add a little bit of detail, I think, with the scene where he sees Sela on the ship. So we see a little more of their origins. Because some of this is also... You just want to pull a little bit of weight off of the big scene in movie three. So that scene can breathe more and doesn't have to do all the exposition. And also because... I mean, one thing is they basically do every single important Char Sela scene. So none of that stuff gets cut. So it gets kind of lifted in the edit. Which is smart. Also, I think like an interesting choice of something that I would not have thought they would have done is movie two opens with and basically does the entire Sailor's Agony episode, which is the episode where she takes the Gundam. That's the beginning of movie two, which is like like centers the movie on um, some of that stuff in a way that like this movie is not necessarily about, but like the the trilogy of movies kind of lifts the Sailor Shar stuff into a uh, kind of a slightly higher level of importance than they are in the TV show. And so there's something cool about the movie starting that way and kind of making you think about those characters. I agree, because then one of the pieces of the climax of movie two is their second meeting. Yes. So again, bookending, very smart. Yes, I agree, because Sela really, 
Sela doesn't you lose the G fighter stuff which makes me sad but Sela is is very important in these movies and if anything elevated because so little of her stuff is cut yeah and yeah because most of the other characters get a lot of their little moments you know and like well, I think one character that suffers a lot in the movies is Ryu doesn't have nearly as much stuff to do because he's not ever really critical to a major plot line so all of his little character moments get cut they even kind of fess up to that in the way they move around the deaths and yeah. give Matilda sort of first billing on the yeah. middle movie death stuff, which is smart because Matilda matters more in the movies. But yeah, I, I missed Ryu a little bit. Yeah, so some of those characters like Ryu get kind of knocked down a peg, but it then like by sort of like negative space or something, characters like Sayla get lifted up even higher. The the Sayla stuff, the Sayla at Sayla's agony episode also has a, an alternate version of the scene where she asks the captured soldier. Yeah, all the about, dialogue's different. It's really good. I, yeah. I I prefer that scene to the TV show as well, where she she doesn't do it covertly. She does it in front of everyone and just acts like she's interested in the Akai say the red comet. Yeah, and she's like, who is that guy? Is he still around? Is he alive? And everyone's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Sayla, it's it's a really good scene. Yeah, I will say that the I forget his name with like Akus or Kozen whichever one of the Ramaral yeah. uh, buddies it is he knows way too much about what's been happening to Char like it's a little bit messy in that way of like I mean part that's partially there because they we we know a little bit less about what's happened to Char in the movies than he did yeah. in the TV show um, so it makes sense that they kind of give him a little bit more extra uh, dialogue there but it is also like how do you know all of this about Char? Like, holy shit, dude. You're, like, really tuned in. He's a fanboy. Yeah, it's like, you know, everything about him joining, like, the Cassilia Corps and, like, all of that. You're just It's all exposed for you. I think it's in Thunderbolt Volume 1. One of the title pages for the manga has... I gotta show this to you because it's so good. It's a, like, fake version of a Xeon newspaper or news magazine... And it, uh, I can't find it, but it's really funny. And it has all these, like, different, it's like a propaganda newspaper. And I can just imagine, like, Char having his own issue. And, like, Kozun is back in his base, like, in his bunk, like, reading the Char issue and being like, man, this guy's awesome. He took out three ships at Loom. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's so, so, Kozun, big fan of Big fan Char. of Char. Yeah. Yes. But anyway, uh, but the middle part of the movie, like after Ron Burrell dies, is interesting because they move around so much stuff. I was getting a little discombobulated. Just It's not the movie's fault. It's just that I, I had watched the TV series so recently. I was like, wait, this, this goes there and this goes there. But they've moved it all around. I think it's effective. Yeah, I think it's the right choice. And it's like it's one of those things that kind of helps elevate these compilation movies is that they are not afraid to just like completely recontextualize what are yes. really important events in the TV show. So one is they've added like a lot of the new footage in movie one and had the first half of movie two is new stuff with Matilda. Um, there's it's it, most I mean actually most of the new footage is all like fight stuff. That's where the vast majority of like new animation is in. The new character animation is mostly Matilda stuff and, and general Rebel stuff. So Matilda is another one of those characters that both because they've added in some new scenes of her talking about like new type stuff and because almost none of her stuff has been um, cut. If it, it, it almost nothing is cut. Sometimes scenes are moved around, but they're still in uh, the movies. So she is elevated up a more because there's just, relative to the rest of the runtime of the movies, there's way more time spent on Matilda than there was in the TV show. So they put all the stuff of the Black Tri-Stars in Matilda's death, um, they put that in front of when Ryu dies and when uh, uh, Hamon comes in. So that happens afterwards, kind of with the Battle of Odessa, which is a really cool... Switching around, that also then means that they don't at all do any of the stuff of Bright collapsing and him not being a captain and Mirai taking over. And so there's some really smart editing they do 
Um, like it would be like it's a fun thing to kind of look at these scenes and be like, oh, they took this bit of footage of like, so they still have the shot of Mirai looking up at uh, Matilda and like getting this weird look on her face. Of, and now it's actually fully just contextualized this new type stuff of her having presumably some premonition of what's going to happen to Matilda. All that stuff is done, but it's been cut in such a way to make it feel like it's still happening in a room with Captain Bright there. And so the way they cut some of those scenes together is very smart um, yeah. to have Bright be in those scenes when in the TV show he was not there, but they don't reanimate most of those scenes. Exactly. If there is one character who I think suffers in the movies, it probably is Captain Bright. Yeah. If we're just taking... Because like Ryu does, but Ryu is not a main character. If we're looking at like the five or six biggest leads... Bright probably gets the biggest like reduction in pay grade here. Yeah, definitely. It's still good. You know, it's still you've got the character and you've still got Hirotaka Suzuoki doing awesome work, but like Bright would not leave as big an impression on you in this. Yeah, that's one of the things that like in in a hypothetical four movie version where they could expand some of the Rama Rao stuff and then expand the Dublin Jabro stuff, that's like that would be the space where you could put a lot of good Bright stuff. Yeah. But yeah, they end up because of the way they reorder events, Bright definitely gets kind of shoved into the background more. Yeah. I did think how they recontextualize Odessa is a little clumsy because it basically falls on the narrator to explain that this is not one big attack, but like an ongoing campaign that they are fighting in, but we never go see the front lines. Yeah. And it also means you lose the entire Odessa Day episode. Um, you don't get the cool thing with like the nuke that he has to cut across the dotted line. Yeah, you don't get like general like it is said that General Revel just pushed his hand, pointed his hand forward to continue the assault. Yeah, you don't get any of that stuff. Which again, if you put it in the middle of the movie, you would kind of have to end the movie there because you know that is such a climactic fight. So I get it. I do think it feels a little clumsy, but. It works overall. Yeah. I mean, I do really like the way they... The, a lot of the new animation they did for the ending of the fight with the Black Tri-Stars. Yes. Because in the anime, um, Amuro kills one of them, and then the other two survive, and then they come in in the Odessa Day episode, and that's and Amuro kills them while he's trying to go get to the nuke. And it's I like I kind of like better the them all kind of coming together and finishing off all the Tri-Stars, because then that's also where they have introduced the core booster instead of the G-Fighter, so they've gotten rid of the entire B-Parts thing, because I think Tomino just did not like the idea, the very super robot idea of having all these different parts and, like, a G-Bull tank and all that. So they just made a very powerful, big core fighter, which is also, that means that every single shot that the core booster is in has to be new animation. So the core booster always looks really, like, gorgeous and shiny. So yes. from this point forward, every single shot that has, like, Sayla in the core booster just looks fucking gorgeous. It does. I, I, I actually think the Matilda's death and the Black Tristar's fight is significantly improved in the movie. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's both the animation and the recontextualization. The music is also better in the show. The one big weakness of that episode is that they use one of the standard fighting pieces of music, and the music does not feel like it accounts for Matilda's death at all. Yeah. And I think in the movie, without losing the quality of, like, we're in the heat of battle, fog of war, we're not sure what's going on, they're they're able to account for that and and there's a little there's a, this beautiful like new type flash Amuro has it's uh, I think it, that's one moment that's like very much improved yeah and, and and having them just defeat all three of the tri stars in one fight is just a more fighting yeah. a more interesting sequence than yes. having two of them escape and it's just a day. great action scene yeah so. it's very well done so then you've got the the Dublin stuff I feel like there's actually not much to say because it's pretty much just what's in the show yeah no they cut been... down a little bit but. 
Yeah, but for the most part, they have, like, those two episodes with Miharu in almost their entirety. There's, like, little tiny bits that are missing, and some of the dialogue has changed. This is one area where they actually have cut down on action, because they do a little less with the Zagoks and the the Gogs and everything. Yeah, yeah, they definitely... Yeah, you don't get as like you you don't get as many of like the different military briefings, which makes sense. They kind of condense those all into one briefing when there's like three or four that happen in the TV show. Um, they do there, there's like a couple of like uh, awkward things that happen in the TV show because of the way that things have been or in the movies that because of things that have been cut. One that comes to mind is they don't have the sequence where Amro goes and gives his toolbox to Kai, which is another one of those just, like, I love whenever Amro gets to just be a sweet little, like, <laughs> nice teenage boy. Um, but they do have a shot, and they use the same dialogue of Kai coming out of the white base, holding a toolbox, and he says, like, oh, maybe I should open up a hardware store. And it's like, that's kind of a weird... I mean, probably if you just watched the movie you didn't know, you probably it probably would not stick out to you. But Or if you hadn't seen the TV show. But having recently watched the TV show, it's like, what the fuck? That doesn't even make sense for that big context. I agree, because it's, it's just part of... It, you and I both reacted so strongly to that character dynamic of giving the toolbox... Having the toolbox, giving it back yeah. is such a great little like ping pong between those characters. You don't get it. It's it's not like the movie is diminished for it, but yeah. But it's one of those things where it's just like a little bit of like continuity or something left over from the TV yes. show just kind of gets put into the movie, and they're like, "Ah, eh, fuck it. We don't need to explain why he has a weird toolbox." But I like that Kai still gets to shine in these movies, yeah. and all the Miharu stuff lands just as powerfully again, and and Kai, it's it's all very good. Yeah. But then you have Jaburo. And I actually, this is one area where I would also say emphatically the movie does better. I agree, Because yeah. what they do in Jaburo is they take all of the Jaburo content, which is like... Because Char makes two big attacks on Jaburo. Yeah, because there's two Jaburo episodes. 29 and 30 are, yes. are the two episodes that are set in Jaburo. They combine that into one assault by Char, which includes the thing where he puts the bombs on the GMs and all of the Kika Cats and Let's stuff, but also just his general trying to attack Jaburo. So it has the double effect of making that one big fight feel like a proper climax to the movie with a lot of action and a lot of character payoff for a wide variety of characters. It also makes Char look less stupid yeah. because in the show his plot in episode thirty is is emphatically dumb, and when you combine it with the plot in episode twenty nine, it makes a lot more sense. Yeah, it is. It's one of the smartest choices they make of where they flip the place of the events and collapse them together so that Char because so because because I think they also make the context of what's going on at Jabra a little bit more clear of where the Zeons know vaguely that Jaburo is somewhere in that area, so they're constantly doing bombing runs, um, which I think is happening in the TV show, but it doesn't make quite as much sense because the assault on Jaburo happens almost immediately after the white base arrives. Here, Char has followed them, and all the stuff with Miharu has allowed them to know where one of the major entrances to where Jaburo is. And so while Zeon is continuing to bombard Jaburo and preparing for a full invasion... Char sneaks in ahead of time in this context to put the bombs on the in the mobile suit facilities to kind of cripple them before the main Xeon forces arrive, which is really fucking smart because then, and then you then he gets into his red Zagok and then he fights Amro and all that is stuff that had happened when he was attacking with the rest of the main force in the TV show. Yes. And so editing around that and kind of collapsing those two things together into one big assault that opens with Shar trying to sneak in and then that is also what tips Amuro off for everyone to start preparing for a full assault. Like, it's a really smart way of reordering everything without having to use much new animation. 
it's incredibly well edited, and it is also just a great rousing climax yeah. where one, it actually makes the Kika Cats and Let's episode significantly more interesting than it yeah. was in the show. Because in the show, that's kind of like a black thumb episode of the show. I feel like it sticks out a little bit. Yeah, it's one that it feels like there's a lot of character stuff that needed to happen, and so they needed to create some sort of a plot for an episode so they could have some character scenes in yeah. there. But it all feels better justified here, and then all building to a final fight with Shar and Amuro as like our climax of the movie, and also a little encounter with Shar and Sela and all of that. It's uh, like I said, I got a little antsy near the end of this one, but it definitely picks up enough at the end of like I went out of movie two, same as movie one, being like, "Fuck yeah, let's watch some more Gundam." And because also one other thing that I think works really well is um, putting like Lieutenant Woody in the movie, like. I like his stuff in the show also, but it feels like having one making Matilda's death be more important relative to Ryu's death in the movie then makes like ending with Woody, Lieutenant Woody's dying in the fight with Char. Like that's another good structural thing that, that changing those things around does. Yeah, because they introduce Woody, then do the plot of episode 30 where he's dead, then go back and do all the episode 29 stuff. So Woody winds up being in the movies longer than he's in the show. Exactly. And yeah. so it does. And it's also the climactic death of the movie. So works very well, and then ending with them taking off for space and the flamingo scene. Yeah, it's a great in credit sequence where they use the flamingo stuff and they have the in credit song playing with like the end, but they still have all the dialogue of um, one of the the guys in the crow nest being like, "Oh, I'll take footage," and it's like, "Yes, you have my permission," and all that. And then also, then they they animate some new stuff of Char leaving as well and going into space, and yes. so it's a really good sort of like. This is the climax of this section of the story, but we are building up to shit going down in space. Like, down to, at the end, it says, like, in three months, Mobile Suit Gundam 3 encounters in space. And it's, like, awesome. That must have been a kick-ass moment leaving the movie theater. Being like, holy shit, I need to see this last movie. Absolutely, fucking lutely I love it. It's, uh, yeah, so movie two, maybe a little too much new type stuff. And you might want to take this one in two parts and just take a little break after Ryu dies. But definitely watch it. Yeah, no, it's it's still a good time. Like the and one thing that does tie together is the usage of that song multiple times in yeah. like the because I think it is also this is the movie that has all three of the most major I guess other than Lala Soon. So there's like four really huge character deaths in Gundam, and this has three of them of Miharu, Matilda, and Ryu. And so that does like that is the thing that and Captain Woody and and Lieutenant Woody, please. He's not sorry, a captain. sorry. Um, but yeah, that's the thing that kind of ties this movie together. Yes. This is where most of the people die. And it's also the movie where they become a crew. Yeah. So like, the other thing is that that Soldiers of Sorrow song, which despite its name is a very upbeat song. Yeah. And, and has that great, Daisuke Inoue is such a great crooner that uh, it one of the places it plays is at the end when they are all like uh, getting out to sortie with Char at the end of the movie. And like that feeling of like, all these like you know random civilians and amateurs now coming out and like they're a crew and they're going to go battle Shar again with that song. Fuck yeah, that's that's just that moment lands really hard. Where in the show it's just one of many scenes where they get out and go out in their suits. In this one, it is like the big climactic moment. Like we're a crew, let's do this, and yeah. it works. Really so it's well. definitely those, that thing where it's like it is. It's definitely messy because it has that weird middle movie split, but it is. In some ways, movie two is the most impressive to me because it's like, I don't know how the fuck you turned this section of that TV show into one movie. It's the hardest job. It's got the most episodes to do. It is the shortest movie by about seven minutes. Yeah. 
And like I thought, it's just structurally the hardest to get right. So yes, it, it might be the weakest in some ways, but it's also in some ways the most impressive from like, cause movie one has the advantage of it's, it's kind of like the Lord of the Rings problem where yeah. the two towers was always going to be the hardest movie to make because it's a middle chapter. Movie one, at the very least, you've got that killer two episode opening to start yeah. and you're safe there. Movie three, you've got one of the great all time anime endings. You just got to spice it up a little bit. Movie two, it's like 20 episodes. <laughs> that have no one unifying theme, they have to make that work, and they make it work. Yeah. Not perfectly, but I, better than I could do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's extremely impressive. Absolutely. But fucking hell, movie three is good, Sean. Movie three is really fucking good. Because movie three is also where, like, like there's a significant portion of the movie, percentage-wise, that is new animation. Um, because for most of the movies, it is like... Other than a couple of like the the dialogue scenes that is that is new animation, but usually when it's just focused on characters, it doesn't look that much better than the animation from the TV show. But all like the mecha stuff that gets new animation looks really fucking good. Um, and it's like just like there's lots of frames of animation and everything is nice and shiny and like the effects of like the jets shooting out of like the core booster and stuff looks so good. And but you usually only get it in like little like two or three second bits. In the other movies, in movie three, it's just like huge stretches of this movie are fully new animation, and, and it just looks so good. It does, and it's not even when because I, I knew there was a significant portion of new animation in this movie. It's not necessarily new scenes though. There yes, are, no, yeah, lots of existing scenes are just reanimated, which is awesome because you get to, like one of my favorites is all of the like new type flashes between Lala and Amuro. They're like what you remember them being in the show. Yeah. Which is, which is to say, they're the impression you have, but animated to like fully take advantage of that. Yeah, like so that, are, that like weird mental wave of water in Amara's head is very heavily detailed in the movie in a way yes. that looks fucking great. Because it's funny, I, I, I watched the movie and then I, because the scene that they, their big scene before she dies, where they have their talk about, like, where they almost like mind meld, basically. Yeah. That scene in the movie hit me so hard and I was like, it's the same scene, but it was different. And so then I went and rewatched that part of A Cosmic Glow. And indeed, it's the same like lines and roughly the same amount of time. But it's like every shot they've just souped up to like fully take advantage of what they are going for aesthetically. And there's a lot of that in this movie where they take the raw elements of the show, which as we've said are really good in that stretch. But they've just, especially because that stretch of the show was the roughest production-wise because yeah. they were out of money and out of time. It was also, yeah, it was like a stretch of episodes that originally they weren't even going to be able to make that they had to yeah. try to like like plead the production company like please let's make these last four episodes for the love of god and you can tell those last four are held together with like duct tape and prayer yeah. you know um but here there's like let's just do the full ex- expanse of it um you also in the movie and this is a big this is the biggest plus in the plus column for the movies is Char rides a fucking horse. Yep, uh-huh. Char is just in the buggy of a horse and buggy in the show, but he rides that fucking horse, and there is a sexy shot of Char riding that horse towards the camera, and it's our art this week, Sean. Yep. And I love it. Yep, it, it makes uh, all the stuff on the Texas colony and Gundam the Origin make even more sense. It's yes. Like, like, they saw Char riding the horse in the movie, you're like, fuck, we need more Char riding goddamn horses. Because this movie is also, I think, the boldest in how it moves things around. Yeah. Um, and it really does it to make a movie. Like, this is the most clearly, like, this is a proper three-act structure movie where there's a clear single storyline you follow through. Yeah. And it works really well. And part of that is 
you have basically the same start where they go out in space, they have a battle with Shar. They well, they don't fight Shar in the movie at the very beginning. They That's only true. fight Drin. So true. because they have a battle with Shar, and then they have the battle with Drin in the TV show, and they they just say like, let's just have them cut through Drin's fleet kill him and that's just basically the opening to the movie is the white base crew is 100% on top of their shit and they just totally destroy Drin's entire fleet before Shark can even get there yes and it's a great like onboarding into the movie great opening action sequence then you have kind of your your big sort of slower expositional phase on side six where they do most of the side six stuff. There's little yeah. character moments here and there. They because they mostly keep it focused on Amuro. They don't do some of the side stuff with Hayato and Kai. But you get the scene where he meets Lala. The scene where he meets Shar in person. All scene of where the, he meets his dad. Meets his dad. But they also like those are things that happen across two different episodes, and and so they collapse those together, kind of like the Jabiro stuff, where they're like, well, in because of the way the TV show worked. We had to like kind of manufacture a fight with like the whole fight where they're going to the dock in the TV show. Yeah. Um, like that's obviously completely cut, and that makes particularly all the stuff with Amuro works better because it gives the impression that Amuro has basically just spent an entire day in the colony, and he like meets his dad at night. Then later, like during the next day, he runs into Lala. And then he goes back to his dad, and like it's a more contiguous piece of time that makes more sense to me. I, I agree. It's it's very clean. Yeah. It's one of those parts. Like most of this movie does not have any of the problems the other movies have of like where it's a little Frankenstein. Yeah. It feels both because they've reanimated and because they just kind of have the ability to edit it this way, just very clean and purposeful. So the side six stuff lands beautifully. I I think the scene where he meets Lala, there's some new animation because it it's looks, mostly new. Yeah, because all the new type stuff basically they're like, oh, if we're gonna do new animation, let's make that new type yeah. stuff extra weird. The swan looks really really <laughs> good in the movie. Like the swan just looks gorgeous. I will say there's one thing that they don't do with Lala in their first meeting that from the TV show that I wish they did is um, when he meets her. You know, he hears her say like, "Oh, what a poor." thing when they're both looking at the swan and then he goes over and looks at her and they kind of start having this weird conversation and in the show he hears her thoughts saying like is there anybody who hates something that's beautiful is there anybody who hates something that's beautiful is there anybody who hates something that's beautiful and then she just says why would you think that i would hate something that's beautiful and that moment of him hearing her putting this thought together and then she says something slightly different is really good and they don't do that like the echoing thought thing in the movie and I don't know why they cut that because I thought like there's a couple of those little kinds of things between Amuro and Lala that I think is mostly improved in the movie but there are a couple of little bits that I wish they had left in yeah. there from the TV show and you've obviously seen the show more than me yeah. so like if I had seen the show three times that it did not occur to me mm-hmm. but because um, part of this is just I was thinking less about how they were restructuring things in this movie because it sweeps you along as a movie so well but I can see that I now that you say it I love that moment and you could have done that in the movie there's no reason they couldn't yeah. have it's ten seconds I will say though um, I think because this is completely reanimated the scene where Amaro and Char meet each other on the road I like much better in the movie it's it's like it, it's not there's nothing like hugely different it's more just like it feels like they took what is basically the exact same script um, and they just got way more time to think about how to like film and animate it it's um, framed kind of like a western where someone walks into the bar yeah and there's just like a couple of small details that are a little bit different about it like one that i really like is um so in that scene uh as it happens in the movie and the tv show shark goes over with like the hook 
to to hook it into Amaro's buggy to have them be able to pull it out of the muck. And while he's going over to do it, Amaro says, "Hey, please let me help you." In a way that like feels it's a very I feel like if you're a guy like this has always happened this happens to you all the time it's like a very emascul- weird emasculating thing where some other dude around you is doing some kind of like manly hardware thing of like I'm fucking fixing a car or I'm like nailing something into a wall and you're like standing there very awkwardly being like Kid, is there any way I can help you with this because me just standing here having you do some like generic masculine activity makes me feel weirdly emasculated in a way that makes me uncomfortable and like I'm thinking about this stuff in a way I don't like um, and so Amuro has that moment with Char at the beginning of that scene but in the movie at the end of that scene Char is rolling the thing back up towards his car and then Amuro says oh help, let me help you and he goes ahead of Char and unhooks the other end of the hook from Char's car and hands the hook to him and that's a really smart little detail um, that I feel like because they also had this thing with the mud on the pants yes. where Char gets his pants muddy and then Amuro does and Char says I didn't want you to have to get your uniform muddy too because Char is a very polite uh, sociopath yes. <laughs> and it's, it's a great little dynamic yeah yes. and, it, and it just feels like at the opening of that of the, their encounter our Amaro is so kind of like disadvantaged and by the end they feel like they're more on an even plane yeah which is like a really again it's just a couple of small things um but that and just like the way they frame the shot I also like they make um Char's car look more like a DeLorean or something instead of it's like a weird hover car or something in the TV show in the movie it's got like like wing doors that come up and stuff it's a very Char car yes yeah it's just like that it's one of those where it's like i like normally I would not have thought that they would have reanimated that scene because it is really well done in the TV show but it clearly they had some good ideas of how to slightly yeah. change it to, to make it worth reanimating that entire sequence which is like five minutes of animation I like to imagine Char at like the you know rent-a-car service at side six and they're like what kind of car do you want and he says he kind of points to his uniform and he's like what's your most flamboyant vehicle yes it's like <laughs> I've got a mask a mask on the mask with like and a helmet I've got a red shirt with like a black cloak thing over it and a giant weird gun and a holster at my side. What car do I I want the car that has the doors that open up top, even though it's like really inconvenient and kind of a dumb design. I want to, if I open my door, I want to look like the car's flying. <laughs> exactly. Why, why couldn't they have Shuichi Ikeda voice that scene? <laughs> yes, exactly. No. Um, the really interesting thing then they do is. They move around a lot of events and they recontextualize it as like the white base's mission as a decoy sort of lasts longer in the movie. Yeah. Because they're like, okay, well, we went to side six. Now what should we do? And and Bright sort of makes the executive decision that they'll go this way. And as they're on this track, they wind up running into the Texas colony. Yeah. And they just decide to like go investigate it because they're basically killing time. Like that's their job right uh-huh. now, you know? And so they move Texas way up in the narrative. Yeah, because Texas happens um, after the, the the Battle of Solomon and the Big Zam's Last Stand, and it's and also like that's like Machiavelli's episode. So they cut Machiavelli out of it. They pull the Texas Colony stuff out in front of the Battle at Solomon, and and then recontextualize it as being entirely Char is there doing experiments uh, on Lala with the Flanagan Institute and Machiavelli is not involved at all and the white base just basically kind of stumbles on it and it's like there's something weird going on here let's just have the Gundam go in and investigate it and it's a, like a really interesting way to recontextualize that sequence which is a really like one of my favorite episodes of Mobile Suit Gundam but like I don't know how you would do that episode in a movie and they found a really good way to 
take most of the important stuff from that episode and put it into the movie. Yeah. So spoilers for our lists later, minor, but A Duel in Texas is one of my favorite episodes. Yep. And the Gyan, Makuve's suit, is one of my favorite suits. Neither of those are in this movie. I mean, little parts of yeah. The Duel in Texas are, but the Gyan is not. And it's really the second episode in Texas that they have in the movie more. Yeah, the Sharn Sale episode. But I love this part of the movie because it is really smart about taking the raw materials of Texas. Most of it's reanimated, obviously. But like the foundation is there. And what they do is instead of having it be kind of this breather in the breather it's still Gundam and it's high octane and all this yeah but breather between Solomon and Abawaku and like it's kind of our last gasp before the final push which is where you put it in our series yeah we watched through um what they do is they make it the end of the first act of this movie where everyone's motivations get locked in at Texas where Amuro fully realizes what being a new type not fully but like he starts to realize like what a new type is and he's set on that path which is his path for the movie Char is sort of set on his path with Lala and we have um, the scene with him and Sela here that I think is also an improvement on the show. Yeah. Because they they just they state Shar's motivations more clearly. They don't make it hundred percent clear, as we said earlier in the episode, if we knew exactly what Shar was up to, Shar wouldn't be Shar. Yeah. But I feel like we get a because a, it's a longer scene, it's a fuller scene, and I feel like we get more of the colors that are Shar in it, and I really like that. And then also, of course, Lala really comes into her own here. And so being like the end of the first act of the movie, redoing Texas to work that way and really cementing these are our characters. Sela, Shar, Lala, Amaro, those who we are focusing on this movie, incredibly smart and having it there makes the rest of the movie better. Yeah, absolutely. And you also, it, it's nice that you get a like, a more proper fight between the Gundam and the Gelgoog because mm-hmm. the Gelgoog is a cool mobile suit that kind of gets a little bit short shrift in the uh, TV show. And so we're having like this like big, like, yeah, this is a proper fight between Amuro and the Gelgoog. They, there's some very smart editing around shots that Amuro in the TV show is getting attacked by Gyan. And then they, they, they make it so it's like, all of a sudden the Gelgook has not quite, it's weird, like, Darth Maul thing that has, um, it has a more normal beam saber because that's what the Gion had. So that's what our shot of him yeah. dodging the, the stabs and stuff. Because they give Char all the fencing stuff that Makuve did. Also cinematically smart because the movie is going to climax on them having an actual fencing battle. Yeah. So doing it with their gun, with their mech suits, makes sense. Yeah, very good. That, there's also just a couple of very smart things they do of, like, um, so in the TV show, Gyan, the Machiavelli's Gyan explodes, and then Char shields Lala from the explosion of the, the the Gyan. In the movie, they still use that little beat in that animation, but instead, it's because of all the the mines that um, he has kind of forced the Gundam into a minefield, yeah. and so they use that explosion. It's just like the constant ingenuity of of these people, like using little beats that they have from the TV show and finding ways to reuse that and in totally different contexts in these movies, like is incredibly impressive. And I'll say as someone who's only seen the show once, I was frequently having to fit like, is this new animation? Is yeah. this like, I know the minds are because that's just not a plot point, but unless it was like that blatant, I had trouble telling a lot of the time, you know? Yeah. Although because the first time when Amr goes into the Texas colony and he gets like, there are like weird mind things that fall on him. That's the recontextualized in this movie as that is just that he's in a minefield. In the TV show, those are traps that Makabe has set for him. Yeah. So it's like, it's because they, they're just really smart about how they reuse some of that stuff. Um, yes. It's very cool. And especially to do it with one of the more iconic and, and, 
the episodes that leads like a lasting impression is also very impressive. Yeah, because because like you know, I we have the duel in Texas episode. It's amazing. It's one of my favorite episodes in the whole franchise. I don't need to see that exact same episode yeah. put into a movie, especially because if they had done that, it wouldn't have been any of the new animations. Instead, yeah. like we, we, it's like the best of both worlds. We have our awesome TV episode. We also have a lot of like the cool plot points redone in a different way for the movie, and a cool new, effectively, what is almost entirely a new fight between Amuro and Char. Absolutely. So then we get the Battle of Solomon. Yep, and it is—it's probably probably the segment of the movie that's cut down the most relevant to uh, respective to the TV yeah. show. But you still get all of the major beats. You still get the sense of like this being a really big epic space battle, and you still get you know um, Dozel Zabi getting out there on that on that fucking tank, and he just gets in a machine gun and fires at the Gundam. Yep, no, uh, Slicker Law gets he gets got. Yeah, his his death is more graphic in the movie. Like you see, because he's also in a core booster, so every shot that he's in in that fight just looks very good. So when he crashes into that big Zam and fucking flies out of the cockpit, because I don't know, maybe he did put his seatbelt on. Um, seems like something he would do. Yeah, it seems, it seems like something he would do. It's like you see it in a lot of detail. It's like it's not like gory, but it's like yep, that dude is definitely dead. He yes. definitely just died right there. Yeah, we should. Yeah, because Slugger Law does get basically all his scenes from the show. Yeah. Um, so you have him. Cameron Bloom is also in there for the side six stuff. So you get all the Mirai stuff in here, which is nice. Mirai gets to remain a major character, yeah. which is good. Uh, yeah, I don't know if I have a ton to say about the Solomon stuff. It's been, it's like context in the movie has been shifted a little bit. Uh, because one other thing they do is they seed the Giren. Um, Degwin conflict more evenly throughout the movie. Yeah. So like before Solomon, they're talking about the solar ray. And Degwin, like, Sol- this is a really nice piece of context I like that they add, which is that Solomon sort of happens the way it does because Degwin is on the fence and trying to hold back yeah. Giran. And I think that, and, and fleshing out that dynamic over a series of scenes, because they still do the whole Hitler scene. It's reanimated here. But uh, I think it really adds to the context and makes the whole thing at Solomon feel like its place has more political consequence. Yeah, because you have to, you have basically an entire briefing scene that takes place that's new with Giran and Degwin at Zoom City. And then Cassilia and Dozel are both like kind of video conferencing in. And that's where they take some dialogue that is from the TV show, but they basically almost like effectively see the other side of it um, from more from like the Giran side of where that's where Giran tells him that we're sending you the big Zam. And that's where Dolza says, you idiot, like these war, like it's great that we have a big, cool mobile armor. These battles are won by numbers. We need like mobile suits, like give me just like a dozen Rick Doms because I can fight with that. I can do tactics with that. You can't just give me one big thing that one mobile suit or like one stray shot could potentially destroy. Um, and so they, they put more dialogue in and kind of fully flesh out that and show that one of the reasons why they lose at Solomon is kind of because Giran is petty and Giran is not giving um, because Dozel just asks him divert some of the people that are at Al Baku and send me reinforcements over at Solomon. And Giran tells him like, "Yeah, I'll think about it." And then when they cut the communications, it's very clear that Giran is not really going to do it, and he's just stalling. Which would have been the tactically smart thing to do because if you held Solomon, Al Baku wouldn't have been a possibility. Yeah, which is and this is all stuff that is like sort of in the TV show or is like implied and not directly stated that like this is a good scene. That makes a lot of those things very explicit in a way that I think is 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 smart. Absolutely. So then you have the third act, which is all the stuff with Lala 
and Amaro and uh, obviously her start basically where the five, last five episodes, which yeah. was our previous episode of Weekly Suit Gundam, starting with her doing the attack on uh, Solomon. They add a little bit of context where they reference Kaecilia's new type uh, crew or yeah, that she's making a new type unit. Yes, um, which and, is which, like a little reference to like their original plan for this stretch of the show, right? Yeah, and and I mean there are references to it in the TV show as well at this point because this is also like obviously they cut out Charlie and Bull. Yeah. Um, that's like an obvious thing that you would have cut. Um, and so there's like a little bit of that like Cassilia and Char are kind of trying to put together a new type thing. They ex- really expand out the scene between Char and Cassilia. Um, that is in the TV show and the movie they build out more where she reveals that she knows that he's castable and all that stuff. And that's where they talk about it a little bit more. But yeah, they make it more explicit that like if if Girin had actually believed all the shit he talks about about new types and had actually invested in them making a new type unit, they maybe would have been able to win the war. But yeah. it's only at this last moment that they have like anything in it at all. And in the movie, like they literally only have Lala. They don't even have Charlie Bull. Exactly. And this is an area where, again, they do pretty much everything that is done on the show, other than Chaya Bull, is done here. I do like some of the scaffolding they've built up around the edges. Yeah. Uh, for instance, you just referenced the scene, but the scene between Char and Kaecilia, which is completely reanimated and basically rewritten, yeah. uh, I think plays much stronger here. I agree. Because it's a good scene in the show, but it's sort of like I'm not 100% sure what to take away from her figuring out who Char is. Here it's like. They're kind of like teasing each other out and trying to figure out how close are our motivations. And you also see Char thinking in real time, he's not sure where he's at. Like he's, yeah. his motivations have evolved so much and he is so kind of fascinated and seduced by the possibility of new types that this is sort of where his allegiances lie, but he's not sure. It's a, it's a really good scene. And I also like, and I like that you can also read it as crocodile tears. Yes. But Char explaining that when he killed Garma, he didn't feel fully the revenge. And I feel like that's probably a half truth because yeah, he, he fucking enjoyed it. Yeah, I, yeah. It's like go back to the the scene because because I love that he has a good line in this movie with Castilia where he says like I was you know it didn't it felt empty I was laughing at myself and it's like. It's like, let's check the tape. No, you were definitely laughing at Garma. That is definitely a laugh directly at Garma, where you say it's like, like, blame your heritage, Garma. It's like, that it is because you're a zombie that you're going to die. Ha 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 ha. Like, it's just like, at the court, just like someone reading the transcription of that scene. Exactly. You definitely were laughing in his face as he like horribly died. Like, I think he's, he's, um, He's like souping it up for Kaecilia. Yeah. I do think there's a truth in him feeling probably hollow afterwards and not knowing where it leads him next. Which yes. I think is true of Char and is part of why his motivations are so in flux in the second half of the show. So I that's one thing where... And also just Ikeda's performance amazing in so that good. scene yeah so so i think that's an improvement and then i think you do get a lot of extra lala stuff like there's a really good scene they add during the side six battle where he and lala are on the couch together watching it on tv and one it's just cool because it's one of the only scenes where char is kind of laid back he's got yeah. does he have the mask and everything off or is um it... he the mask is definitely off in that yeah. scene yeah because you and you can tell lala is like the one person he is himself around well 
uh, himself relative to other people. Yeah, the around. most himself. Yes. yes. If if there is a true Char at this moment in time, yeah. so he's got like his arm around her. It's like a date night. You know, they're, they they make it more explicit that they are lovers. Yeah. Um, and it's it's a, it's kind of a sweet scene too. Like I feel like they do some stuff to also add some humanity to Char and Lala's relationship because. Char does not love like normal people. No. He, he has some a- aspects of sociopathy to him, but Lala matters to him. Yes. And, yeah. and she matters as more than a tool. And I think the movie gives us just a little bit of extra context on that. Yeah, because they do add in some lines in that scene in some of the stuff on Texas Colony where he kind of explicitly says to her, like, you do know I am using you for your powers, right? Like, he he just straight up says that to her. Yeah. Um, which is something that is implied in the TV show that that's something that he's clearly doing. Um, but just having that be out in the open between the two of them um, and, and having it be something where it's like, it, it makes you wonder, it, like him is just telling her that makes you wonder how much of that is true and how much is like, how much does he feel for her like as a human being? How much is he using her in this, his weird master plan of like whatever the fuck he's trying to do with yeah. new types and carrying on the Xeon name and all of that? Mm-hmm. So all the Lala, Shar, Amuro triangle stuff with Sela thrown in there as well. Um, it's cut down a little bit because they kind of, they do the thing where they, they meld two big fights into one yeah. again. Which again I think is smart. Yeah, because they have the Charlie Bull fight obviously gets completely cut. And right. So, and then yeah, the Lala's dilemma and the Cosmic Glow get kind of collapsed together. Yeah. But basically the last three episodes are done more or less in full. Just with a lot of different animation. Yeah. And... You know, in a lot of ways, I think they landed even harder for me. That might, that I think half of that is just seeing it again and knowing what's coming. I think if I watched the show, it would land for me harder as well because the first time you see the end of Mobile Suit Gundam, it's fantastic, but you're also not entirely sure what to make of it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely like my second time watching the TV show is what fully cemented to me that a cosmic glow is like this of fucking good shit in that episode. Absolutely. And it was for me watching it here. And and in part because I do think it is an improved version of some of that material in a cosmic glow. Yeah. like what I do think Amaro's reaction to her death is better in the show because it breathes a little longer where his whole I feel like he has more lines he does yeah. yeah like I mean there's definitely there's just some stuff that's kind of like I think it's there's some stuff in the TV version I like more there's some stuff in the yeah. movie version I like more there's not like for me there's not like one clear this is a better version of the scene absolutely but I but one thing to me is that putting it all together in one contiguous movie yeah. that has built an entire arc around this and that being like heading towards the climax, oh my god, it cut me here. And I think as much as I love the insert song in the show, I think the yeah. one in the movie is better for this material. Mm-hmm. And I think... Because it also it cuts... And then the way it combines all this stuff with the solar ray and Amaro's line about the light of hatred, just because like... You know, I watched all these episodes in one sitting when I watched them, but there's still the theme songs and the breaks and all of that. Having it all just as one fluid cinematic thing works incredibly powerfully. And it's, it's it's an incredible series of scenes. Before we even get to the Abawaku stuff... Um, it's just it's not that they've changed things other than like some better animation or alternate animation it's just I think the extra context they've given it in this cinematic version is really strong and smart and I think exposes how strong the underlying foundational vision of the new type stuff in original Gundam is yeah like for me the the stuff that is like a 100% improvement in the movie 
like throughout this whole stretch is the Lala and Char stuff I think is like their relationship is just better done in the movie. Yes. Because almost like every scene they have together is reanimated. There's just a little bit of the stuff on the Texas colony on the elevator is the only stuff that's like a, from the original show that they just pull that animation forward for this movie. Um, and in particular, I think the the Char's reaction to Lala's death feels much more like straight from his character in the movie yes. than in the TV show when Lala explodes he goes ah and pounds his fist on on the console which is good in the movie he he like has he says a couple of lines and then like tears just come out from under his mask May- that's fucking amazing uh, may- maybe my favorite shot in any of the three movies yeah. is the tears from the mask because of course you can't see his eyes he hides his eyes but the tears come down anyway it is such a quiet reaction it yeah, it, it cuts you really hard. Good scene in the show, better scene in the movie. Yeah, like that that reaction I think is just like that's one where like that feels like a thing that happened because they made the TV show and then when you reapproach the material someone is like this is good. It feels a little bit like his reaction in the TV show feels a little bit generic and everyone's just like looked at it because they'd already done it once. It's like, well, we know like who is Char? How would Char react to like legitimate loss? He wouldn't scream like that. He would be very controlled, except for like you have like one little chink in his armor, and this, having, and using the mask in that way is so smart. This is a dude who reacted to the death of his parents by stealing someone's identity and building a whole new identity for himself, and wearing very flamboyant clothes and a mask, and then like going on to join the army he wants to take down from the inside. Yeah, I believe that he would do the silent cry thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he, yeah, he doesn't do the no. He's he's really good at bottling stuff up, guys. Exactly. Yes. Like. To, like, he should probably go to therapy for that. <laughs> yeah, the, the Char in therapy is its whole own TV show, man. Like, that would be a fucking trip. I want in treatment, but it's Char. It's fucking, it's fucking Mobile Suit Gundam Sopranos <laughs> with, like, fucking Tony with the, getting, uh, yeah, getting his fucking therapy. Oh, Char, man. Holy shit. God, Shuichi Ikeda would kill that. Yeah. And I, I imagine him laying on the couch in the full red get-up with, like, the mask and everything. <laughs> yeah, with fucking Dr. Melfi. Holy shit. That'd be great. <laughs> Someone animate that for us. Yeah. Photoshop it in. Yeah, um, I also think that the big conversation Amaro and Lala have, mostly the same content, but the, just the way it's animated and yeah. scored and placed in the movie... Uh, loved it in the show. Hit me like a ton of fucking bricks in the movie. Yeah, I think that sequence of their them sort of slowly merging together. I do think that that's better in the movie. Part of that is just like yeah. the the being able to animate all the trippy stuff a little bit like more yeah. precisely. The stuff that I think I prefer the TV version is mo- is mostly the stuff like after they get broken out of that mind meld. I think there's something way more raw in the TV version about the editing of the fight. I think is much more like crisp. In the TV show version, whereas like the movie version feels a little bit more like this is like the standard way you would edit this fight scene together. The TV version is just like frenetic and like desperate in this like four way battle between yeah. these people, and the, and just like that, also that just the encounter between Lala and the Elmeth, Shar and the Gelgoog, Amar and the Gundam, and then Sela coming in and the the G fighter slash core booster. Um, that just gets cut down in the movie versus how much there is yeah. in the TV show. So it's like, I miss some of that stuff. The bones of that fight are still there and a lot of it is still good. Like you still have the, where Char is going to cut Sela up and then Lala says, no, Tysa stop. And he sees this, uh, Sela and stops and then turns around and immediately gets the arm cut off. Like that's still there, but it's not quite as, um, raw and impactful as in the TV show version. It's interesting because the animation is like, quote unquote better. Better, yeah. But I feel like 
I think part of that frenetic editing is that they're sort of cutting around the fact that they can't do the full fight in animation in the yeah. show. And that makes it stronger overall. I feel like it's almost a victim of too many resources in the movie version. Yeah, definitely. And then I think, like, a lot of... I, I, like, I wish we could have, like, a blend of the, like, Lala's death sequence of the TV show and the movie version. Because there's a couple of little bits in the TV version that they don't do. Like, I'm as weird as, as it is, and I, I really just do not have, like, a read of what this that sh- the shot is doing. But the TV show shot of, like, the egg getting penetrated by sperm... There's something about that shot that I'm like, I have no idea what this is. I don't know what it's trying to communicate to me. It, there's something hugely impactful to me about that. It's like shot. a David Lynch shot. Yeah, it, 100. It's it's yeah, it's like the episode from Twin Peaks Return with like the nuclear bomb and all that. It's like I cannot explain everything that, is, that it, this is communicating to me in words. There's something like deeply primal that that shot like hits me. Which is the point life. of the new type thing? Is it's yeah. beyond words? It's communicating beyond human uh, communication. Yeah, and so some of like a couple of those shots, I wish that they had done versions of in the movie but also i think all the stuff where they take that that the, the the sort of like weird pastoral landscape suspended in outer space they like the way they've reanimated that looks so good in the movie because just like just all the detail they can put into it of like the galaxies in the background like all of that is so good um but then also i do prefer amro's reaction to her death more in the tv version because that's also where like where it just feels like the fucking microphone they had was not good enough for the scream that Furio gives uh, for that scene. And it's just like, it just like the audio basically peaks and it's fucked up and crazy. And Amaro is like way more, I think he has the line of like, basically I've done something I can never take back. I think his, his line delivery in the TV version, I prefer a little bit more. Um, it's just raw. It's, it's, yeah, it's not as, I don't know how to say this, like, practiced or rehearsed, you know? Yeah. It feels like Furia almost like reading it for the first time. It probably wasn't, but I just, that's the feeling you get. Yeah. Versus coming back two years later and doing it again. Uh, not that he didn't give it his all. It's still an amazing performance. It just, there's something about that rawness I don't know if you could ever recapture. Yeah. So, so it's like, it's an interesting, and part of it is just like, you know, we'll find out maybe like how, just how much I love A Cosmic Glow as an episode of Gundam in a later list but it is one of it is easily one of my favorite Gundam yes. episodes so it's like me too and that sequence is I've watched that sequence so many times so so like it's cool to have a different take on it there's like a couple of things that's like you could have had like the the ultimate version of the scene if you had just gone taken a couple of things from the TV show and brought yeah. it forward alright um, and then the, the finale of the movie and the battle of Abawaku you know you can't uh, improve on a good thing so yeah. or like don't break uh, if it ain't broken don't fix it yeah and like there's some new animation but it is fundamentally the same like those two episodes are done mostly in full yeah escape certainly is like beat for beat the yes. same uh, with a couple of improved shots here and there and I had the same reaction and in fact it even strengthened how much I think it is a brilliant brilliant fucking ending uh, some of the new music is fantastic not necessarily better but just yeah. like really really good and just a great climax and proves how correct their instincts were on those last two episodes yeah like this is where i just i think i just fully prefer the movie version of the battle of abaku because it because again it is it's basically it's all the good with some better stuff yeah and 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 a lot of the the key scenes are reanimated um so it's like you know the fight between amuro and char the the sword fight gets reanimated and i mean all of actually basically their fight even when they're in the gun of the Xiong, most of that is new animation even when it's like the same beat so even like him coming up and shooting through where he thinks the cockpit is and the head ejects, like that's 
the same basic sequence of events, but they animated it um, again, and so it looks just fucking great. Yep. Um, and all of them fighting when they're outside of the mobile suits, and then they get, they get the fucking sword fight. And there's just a couple of, like, they've added some new little, like, beats in that sword fight of where, like, Amuro kind of gets pushed back and knocks over, like, a armor, like, plate armor that's on a stand against the wall and, and little things like that that just make it a little bit more... That are things that would have been complicated to animate with the TV show budget that they go, like, let's give this the attention we can with our full budget and, like, yeah. put in a little of these extra little, like, kind of physical details to kind of ground the fight more. Yep. Um, it's all so good. And it just, it works so well as the ending to a movie. Yeah. Um, it, it proves how good Escape is, which you'll hear later how much I love Escape. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure you do, too. But, like, it, it just... That it works sort of equally well as a TV ending and a movie ending proves how good it is. Yep. And, yeah, there's not a ton to say. I love the the song that they use several times in this movie that plays over the end credits. And I just... I felt so full watching the end of this, just as I do in the show itself. And it also ends with a very mysterious message in English that we yeah. should mention. I took a screenshot. The movie... Uh, they, they do the full credits great song and then yeah, and also during the credits you get like a weird shot of like it looks like Char like escaping or something to be like oh Char survives like yes. yeah okay yeah um, I should say one thing I know they didn't reanimate was him killing Kaecilia because I have gone frame by frame through yeah. that and they were like uh, we can't improve on that I feel like if they just like they kind of toned down the like the camera bloom or something like I feel like it's a slightly it's the same animation that you can just see a little bit more yeah. clearly like the, there's a lot of blood that comes out of that <laughs> yes. like a decapitated head yes um, but as I was saying so you have the credits and it ends in English with and now dot 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 in anticipation of your insight into the future and that's the end of the movie. <laughs> yep. What is that supposed to mean? So I like either that's. I mean, immediately I was like, "Oh, is, is this like?" I for a second I thought it's like, "Is there going to be like a Zeta Gundam logo just going to come up on the next shot?" Like, there's something like. I don't think I don't because I don't think they knew that they would be making Zeta. Like Zeta, Zeta Gundam didn't come three out years later until three years. Like it wouldn't have even been no. in pre-production at this point. Um, if anything, I think it's just like supposed to be. Um, I don't. I think. I think it's just like poorly worded English, and it's just like meant to be like we're moving forward into the yeah. future. And part of like in you know the themes of new types being the next step of humanity, and like all the there's like a lot of stuff in Mobile Suit Gundam, and then also like Zeta Gundam plays with this like sense of that eventually new types will be able to like see time itself. It's yes. like eventually the ultimate stage of the new types will will get to. Um, I feel like that's what it's trying to indicate. But they did it in English to make it very, like, stylish and, like, cool and exotic in Japanese. Yeah. And for us, it's just like, that doesn't even make sense. I love it. One other thing in the third movie that hit me harder in the movie than it did in the show, and it's not that this is added. The lines are in there in the TV show, but the whole idea of Amuro saying, like, I'll go to be with you, yeah. late Lala. And then at the end saying, I'm sorry, Lala, I can't now, but I can see you anytime. I think just because it's all one movie and the Lala, Amaro, Sela, Char, like, dynamics are so focused on through this two-hour movie, that really hit me. And I don't think it had hit me before how much Amaro is bent on death and chooses life. And it makes the ending even more beautiful to me. Yeah. Um, so, you know, honestly, my overall thoughts on the third movie is that... Movies 1 and 2, I think, are fantastic compilations, but I think the TV versions are better. Movie 3, if you take the equivalent material from the show, it's kind of a wash for me. I think, yeah. I don't know if there's one I prefer, and in some ways the movie hit me even harder as a holistic object. 
And I think that's an incredible achievement. And if nothing else, watch movie three. Yeah. If you've seen the show. Obviously don't watch it on its own if you've never seen any of it. But yeah, um, that'd be a very, you'd, you'd be very confused. I don't know how you'd be at this point on the podcast. Uh, but movie three is, is it's, a, it's a minor masterpiece, honestly. Yeah, I like, like I wish I had seen it earlier. Like I think I had, and partially it would just be that I'm very stubborn so I would have had to watch all three of the movies even though there's really no reason why I would need to. You can, you can just watch the third movie there's nothing there's nothing they like change about movie one and two that would make the context of movie three that different yeah it's it's really great like i'm with you that it is one of the best animated movies i've seen like it's just and part of that is just like the material that they're working from is like from one of my all-time favorite tv shows so like it's building on some really amazing bones and then they got to revisit some of those sequences and think about what are some like better ways to express some of the things we're trying to express here yeah can i tell you my dream sean Okay, My yeah. new dream. What's your dream? Well, I would love to see these movies in a theater. Because that's the other thing is like, I yeah. would love to, as you know, they're fun to watch on your TV or laptop or something, but a two and a half hour movie in that context just doesn't play as powerfully as I think it would in a theater. So I would love to see it that way. And I am a, I am a, a film teacher it's to true. a degree. And, you know, in the next mm-hmm. year or two, I'm going to get to have my own class. And we have a screening room that I'd get to teach in. And I... I'm going to find a way to screen these fucking movies for students just so I can watch them on the big screen, but uh-huh. also because I think people would enjoy them. We have one class, Sean, and I'm just going to put this, this flag down here so people can hold me to it, hopefully, in the future, called Film Club. And every semester, a different grad student gets to teach it. It's a one-semester-hour course where just every Tuesday night you come and watch a movie and have a quick discussion. And like it's for students just to get an extra credit. Yeah. And for grad students, it's an easy teaching assignment. And I, it's not my turn yet, but it will be in the next year or two. And I have to find some way where I could do this over three weeks. Do I do movie trilogies? Do I do just, I'm going to show anime movies? Do I do robots in movies? I don't know. Yeah. But I'm going to theme it so I can show these fucking movies in our really cool theater. Yeah, no. I <laughs> That's mean, my new life goal. That's very good. Maybe maybe I'll come up and visit you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's like, it's like, it's ever. You can, you can do these three movies. You can... Like this is maybe something to say. This like is one thing that's interesting is so they made movie versions of Zeta Gundam called the New Translation. But if you thought that like there are a couple of times where the movie animation, the TV animation juxtaposed in these movies feels a little bit awkward because the movie version looks so much better, and that's like three years difference with like two to three years difference with like movie level budget. The Zeta Gundam movies are like a 20 year difference with movie level budget. And so the scenes that are animated in like 2006, I think, is when those movies started coming out, versus the scenes animated in 1985 look very, very different. Yeah. Obviously. You know, maybe I'll just, maybe by then the rebuild of Evangelion will be out and I can really theme this around. I don't know, but I'm, I'm yeah. feeling like if they'll let me do it. And I, my understanding is you get a certain amount of autonomy on this. But I'm like, can I do three weeks of Mobile Suit Gundam? And will they... Three weeks? I'm saying that you can do yes. three Mobile Suit Gundam, then then the Zeta new translation. Unfortunately, there's no double Zeta, so there's a little bit of missing gap there. But you can, you can probably Shars go... Counterattack is yeah, a movie? You could probably go from Zeta Gundam to Shars Counterattack. There's some missing context, but you can basically... I mean, you know like the, the bulk of Amuro and Shars stuff has been dealt with by that point. So when you pick up the characters of Shars Counterattack, that's fine. And then, then also, like, Gundam F91 is not a, like, one of the best Gundam movies, um, because it is, basically, they were going to make a TV show, they couldn't make a full 50 episode TV show, so they took the outline, made a movie out of it, but there's some shit in Gundam F91 that is fucking rad, 
and 100 like and that movie can be totally watched on its own and there's some shit at least you can watch like the first 30 minutes of that movie are fucking amazing you can at least show yep. that uh 8th ms team has a movie yep well a 50 minute ova thing um War in the Pocket, I have edited into a movie that actually, that people would benefit from seeing that. No, no yeah. joke. Like, I don't that, have to make an excuse for yeah, that one. That, yeah, you really wouldn't. Like, it no. works well enough. The Thunderbolt movies. Thunderbolt movies. Um, yeah, no, I could, I, can I, this would be, if I could get through grad school having somehow taught a Gundam class, even if it's our one credit hour thing, uh, I think I would retire. And I think yeah. I would be happy because my career would be nowhere to go but down after that. And I would just love, like, like some other film professor walking up. like, I wonder how the, the grad student is doing with their new classes. Like, the, what is, what, what do you watch? Oh, it's Mobile Suit Gundam 3 uh, Encounters in Space. Like, okay. So it came out in 1982. It's really good. Yeah. I'm teaching them about the long, rich history of compilation movies in <laughs> anime. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Then it's like we're talking about it's like, and then you just have on like a chalkboard just new type written in big letters, and then you and then you have a drawing of the like a crude professor drawing of a Zeong that has eighty percent next to it, and then like the legs in an outline under it with like twenty percent and like a question mark. It's like let's really close read the scene with the engineer that is just in its entirety in movie three. It is perfect. So good. The other thing we should say about these movies is be careful about what versions you watch. Yes. We should have actually said this at the beginning. Um, the Blu-rays and DVDs that are commercially available in the States and in Japan, to my knowledge, have a new audio mix done in the 2000s in 5.1 where they basically redid the entire soundtrack. So new vocal performances, which means the actors are significantly older or in some cases dead and had to be replaced. Um, it's... Either the same music remixed or very frequently new music completely um, and all new sound effects that are not very true to the source. I kind of switched just a couple moments to see what it was like and I really cringed at it. I didn't like it. Um, You can find versions online with the original theatrical mono. That's what you want. You know, support the official release if you want to like give a couple bucks their way, but it's not the right way to watch these movies. Yeah, the audio mix is weird, and it's and it's like especially like it's losing some of the fucking sound effects, like the the particularly the beam rifle sound effect being different. Again, this is coming from someone who watched the TV show three times, but the beam rifle sound effect for the original Gundam beam rifle is so perfect and iconic, and like every it's one it's like. Maybe like 15% of the reason why I play Gundam video games is just so I can play as the original Gundam and fire the beam rifle because it's such, it's like, it's the Gundam version of the lightsaber activating in, in Star Wars. It's like the most amazing sound effect. I like I the needed. beam saber in Gundam more than the fucking lightsaber. I'll say it right now. I love good. that thing. Yeah. There's, there's some good fucking beam saber. From, beam from now on, when I use the beam saber in Super Smash Brothers, I'm not doing a Star Wars thing. I'm doing a Gundam yeah. thing. No, there's some good beam sabers continue to be good in, in in the Gundam franchise. That is for sure. Gundam, Gundam, show. So, do you want to do our lists? Yes, let's let's go over some of our lists, Jonathan. Which one should we do first? Um, I think we should end with the episodes one because I feel like that is the most substantial. Okay, that's fair. Um, so so let's start with the robots. The, the okay, well, mobile suits. Yeah, best mobile suits. Yes. So which I did. I I I and for me, it's like best mecha. Let's keep okay, it generally because yeah. because technically you have like mobile armors and stuff in yes. mobile, mobile yeah, suits. Yeah, I just well. wrote top ten mechs. Yeah. So, uh, all right, I will start with my number ten. Is the MSN 02 Xiong, 
which was not on my list when I first wrote it, but then I watched the movie again, and I'm like, okay, this Young has a small role in the franchise, but it is a damn good role. It has no legs. It flies around. It's got this awesome head with big two red spikes on the sides, and the head itself fights for a little while, and it's part of just the best fight in the series. Yeah. Not uh, one of the best fights, I should say. It's part of one of the best fights, especially in the movie version. Yeah. And so... I when I watched the movie again, the Zhang had not been on my list. It got on my list, and I would have felt bad if it wasn't on my list. Yeah, I will say the Zhang is my number eleven. Like okay. it was the like I I really wanted to find a spot on the list almost entirely for it just not having legs, which is the most is one of the best things in Mobile Suit Gundam. Um, so it's my number eleven. I respect that choice. I'm glad it's on a list. Yes. so we can we can have it. My number ten is the M A O eight. Is the mobile armor big Zam. The Big Zam, it's got one of the best names. Yes. Big Zam is fucking great. It's just basically a big almond with legs, um, and it's like, is ridiculous looking. And I, like, I, I both like it because it is dumb looking, and also because Dozo Zabi wears that fucking Big Zam real well. And, you know, when he gets up on top of the Big Zam, and, like, the incarnation, the psychic incarnation of his hatred spreads out behind him like a demon, and he's just fucking shooting the Gundam. Like, that, like, the Big Zam was what puts that all together. And and then also just Dozo's glee at getting in the Big Zam, and at first he was shit-talking, and was like, I just want a bunch of fucking Rick Doms, right? You give me this dumb Big Zam. And he gets in the Big Zam, and like, this is a big Zam. Holy <laughs> shit. And he just fucking melts goddamn GMs like it's a fucking microwave, you know? And, and Jomber just stumbles across these just like half fucking melted gun, like mobile seats in the sides of the walls of Solomon. And that's because the big Zam fucked him up. Big Zam's fucking cool. I agree. Not on my list. I'm glad it's on yours. Yeah, there we so go. So same thing. Uh, big Zam, definitely a memorable mobile suit. Or in this case, mobile armor? Yes, it's a mobile okay. armor. My number nine is the MS-14S Gelgoog Commander Type, a.k.a. Char's Custom Red Gelgoog. Char has a lot of custom suits in the show. You might hear another one on my list. But I like the Gelgoog because it is sort of the best match he has for the Gundam. Obviously, the Xiong maybe gets a little further in the fight, but it's a very different kind of fight. This is like the most traditional mobile suit fight we have between the two, is the, yeah. the Gelgoog and the Gundam. It's a really good fight, especially in the movie where it gets a little bit more of a showcase. That's what kind of pushed it onto the list for me also. Because, um, like, the Gelgoog on its own, we do see in the Northern Ireland stuff, I think. No, no it, it gets first introduced at the Battle of uh, Duel in Texas. Okay, okay. Yeah. That's, oh, that's the only one. Okay, never mind then. But I do love it's got a big old thruster pack, and it's yep. got all these different armaments. Um, and it is part of my one of my favorite battles in the series with the Texas episode. Um, and I think in the show, that... And the um, Rombaral's attack episode are the two that have the best mobile suit animation. Yeah. And so I think the Gelgoog also benefits from just... It's a good design, but it also has some of the best animation in the show and in the movie. So it got onto the list for that. And I like the red suits. We'll get into that later. Yeah. So I, I should say right now that I did not really distinguish between the Char Commander Specialist versions and the base versions. I just kind of like combined them together. So my number nine is the MS-14A Gelgoog slash MS-14S Commander Type Gelgoog. Um, yeah, the Gelgoog is great. It's, you know, I, I think probably, like, I like the Char version the best, although the standard Gelgoog is also awesome. It's got this good, like, Centurion kind of look to it. It's got a little, like, fin at the back of its head that is awesome. It's got its, like, fucked up weird Darth Maul sword thing it has, which is yep. also very cool. 
And the Gelgug is one of those of where it's like, you know, it doesn't feature that much in the TV series because for like the biggest stretch of where the Gelgug would have been, Char's suit got cut from the show. And so that kind of, like, it makes it extra special. And so when you watch something like Thunderbolt, where, um, like, in Abba, the Abba Q episode for Thunderbolt, um, they're, they're, they're flying around in Gelgoogs in, when he's lost to Psycho Zaku. Um, so every time you get to see a Gelgoog in another context, I just feel good because yep. it's like, here's this underserved mobile suit. And the Gelgoog also served as, like, the visual inspiration for the Tall Geese from um, Gundam Wing, which is one of my all-time favorite just all-time best uh, mobile suit designs in the whole franchise. So what was that called? The Tall Geese. The Tall Geese is a mobile suit. Here, I'll, I'll show you. John oh, there. my God. It's basically like a Roman centurion mobile suit from Gundam Wing that the, the villain rides in. And the thing that makes the Tall Geese extra fucking rad is that it's an old-type mobile suit that the the villain like kind of brings back into service because they're fighting the Gundams and they're like we've never seen mobile suits this good and the reason why the Tall Geese was discontinued was because it moved so fast that the G forces killed most of the people piloting it and the villain's like well fuck it I'll, I'll fuck it right in the Tall Geese and it is so cool I have um, my first uh, master type uh, gunpla is a Tall Geese that is on its way currently I'm very excited to build it nice I uh well, Gundam Wing is now on the list of shows I have to watch because it's got a suit called the Tall Geese, Tall Geese that has high G-forces. That sounds fucking awesome. Yes, okay. and, and the Gelgoog is basically the Tall Geese's like, grandfather. So what's your number nine? That was my number nine. We oh, both, right. We both had the Sorry. same number nine. That's a good point. Okay. Yes. Uh, my number eight is a little bit of a cheat, but I feel like these two kind of belonged together. It is the MSM 03 and 04, the Gog and the Ack guy, okay. who appear in the same place... Uh, in the series and are kind of they're not interchangeable but they're very similar they're like the, the Gog is they're both very amphibious the Gog has the big frog hands with like long sharp metal fingers it's got these giant rounded shoulders that extend out over the arms I love the sort of brown gold color scheme I love it's got this sort of cool belt around its midriff which is where all the weapons fire out of and it's just so cool in the underwater action. And then the Ack guy is sort of the Gog's little brother. Mm-hmm. And it looks even more amphibious, like a big fucking tadpole. It's got this big bulbous squid head. The arms don't have hands, just these big bald metal fists that fire out shit. And I love that about it. And I just, when I think of the Gog and the Ack guy, they're kind of always together for me. So I put them together and I... This is one part that gets very much cut down in the movies, but all the stuff in Northern Ireland where you have the underwater combat is so cool, and I'm sure it's something that future Gundam shows build on, because I love the amphibious... Uh, you actually get a lot of that in Thunderbolt, and the, the Gog and the Ack guy. I love those those little guys. Yeah, we, we are like on similar wavelengths, my friend, because uh, my number eight is the MSM-04 Ack guy. Okay. Um, like I, The Gog is not on my list. I like the Gog okay, but for me, like... When the Ack guy came on the scene, it just stole the Gog's thunder. Because the Ack guy is just so adorable. He looks so cute. Like, yep. I just want to cuddle him. Um, <laughs> he's, he's in his, like, weird, dumb little hands. And he's just, he's so cute and great and perfect. And I love him to death. And he's good. And then, of course, he serves as the inspiration for the bear guy from Gundam Build Fighters. Which is an Ack guy with a big teddy bear head on him. And the bear guy is one of the all-time great mobile suit designs. I've shown... You've just blown my yeah. fucking mind, Sean. I showed Jonathan a picture of one of the bear guys and his, his jaw dropped. It's, yes. It was like a comic, oh my god, 
I need to go watch that show and order that Gunpla right now. Gundam Build Fighters is very, very good. Actually, I think that's the first Gundam I've seen or or mech that I don't want a Gunpla of. I want a giant plushed animal. Yes, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so the Bear bear Guy features in the original Gundam Build Fighters, which is the good one. It's the Build Fighters Try, which is the sequel, is the bad one. So you can watch Build Fighters and have a great time. Does Try have the Bear Guy in it? Um, It has, yeah. There there are different versions of the Bear Guy in all the So it's not worthless. It's not. It's not <laughs> worthless. Like there are. I mean, there are great fucking Gundam designs in all those shows. But yes, yes, Bear Guy. All right, Bear Guy is good. My number seven is the MS09R Rick Dom. It's purple. It's black. It's red. It's got a metal skirt slash. I think of it as like a battle kilt, which is cool. It's wielded by the Black Tri-Stars unit, so it's involved in some of the most memorable action of the series. Um, it's used in a lot of the other One Year War series. You see yeah. Rick Doms all over the place. And they're just consistently not my favorite Xeon mobile suit, but I think it, it really exemplifies all the things that are cool in the Xeon mobile suits, which is maybe a little bit of a form over function, you yes. can say about the Xeons, but it is so cool. It's like our first proper big sort of black-themed suit in the show, which we don't get a ton of in the original Gundam, but I really love the color scheme of it. And uh, yeah, it's, it's you know, if Darth Vader had a mobile suit, it would be the Rick Dom. Yeah, no, and I, we are on some weird energy right now, Jonathan, because my number seven is the MS-09R Rick Dom, um, which is the space variant of the MS-09B uh, Dom, but the Rick Dom is, is what oh, we all know. Also, about. this one gets points for every time someone has to say its name in Japanese, Rick Dom. I love yeah, it. The Rick, the Rick Dom is great. It's also, it is used as the basis for a mobile suit in Zeta Gundam called the Rick Diaz, which is also a very good name, and the Rick Diaz is very cool. Yeah, the Rick Dom is awesome. It basically becomes like the the sort of Xeon standard in the last phase of the war, so you get a lot of it. It's got fucking just dope uh, shoulder pads, and it's and I love the the eye like setup because it's one of the Xeon mobile suits that kind of plays with their weird like kind of slit red eye, where it's instead this like cross that the eye can go in all four of the directions, and then that's great. And then also in all the, the because it basically flies around on little like hover skirts on its legs, um, it it gets like a good different kind of aesthetic when it's moving. And then also when you play as the Rick Dom in any of the video games, it has that same kind of hover movement, and that's a very cool detail that kind of helps separate the Rick Dom from from its uh, Zeon brethren. Absolutely, my number six is the RX seventy seven two Gun Cannon, which you'll see whether or not I have the Gundam on this list. But in some ways, I almost prefer the gun cannon because I like the color red so much. Uh-huh. And it's this, you know, big, blocky red design. My favorite move is when it gets down on all fours and fires like a cannon, which they, they reuse that animation a ton in the show. It's in the theme song and it's in, like, every episode of the gun cannon, which I think is awesome and also kind of low-key hilarious that this thing is built to just bend over and shoot. Yep. Like fucking blast toys with its like blasters on the back. Uh, the gun cannon is great. One of my favorite things in the movies is they give both Hayato and Kaya gun cannon instead of just one of them tra- yes. like trading it off. Um, and so, or I guess it's really just Kai and the gun cannon in the show, but Hayato more goes out in the gun tank. Which they, the gun tank in space makes no sense, and so right. then giving him a gun cannon for the last movie makes a lot of sense. Yes. And I just, the gun cannon, it's got a lot of personality. It kind of looks like the doofy younger brother of the Gundam, <laughs> and it looks like it's wearing like a big red sweater or something. I don't know. The gun cannon is, is very cool, and I like it. Yeah. So so this, we finally have a break on the list. Oh, I God. did not have the gun cannon on mine. I like the gun cannon a lot. I 
One, you just blew my mind if I had never thought that Blastoise 100% is designed after the gun cannon. And I just had never, because my frame of reference is so reverse. Yes. Because um, I knew Blastoise as a child and it came to know the beauty of the gun cannon as an adult. But obviously it would have been the reverse for the, the designer that made Blastoise. Um, gun cannon is great. Also, there's a part in the TV show where the gun cannon just picks up and throws a fucking boulder at like a Zaku. And I love that shot. It's <laughs> great. Um, so he's not on mine, but I love the gun cannon. My number six is the MSM-07 Zagok, um, which also has a red mobile suit type, uh, specialist yes. type for Char. Um, the Zagok is like... So you have your family of aquatic mobile suits in uh, Mobile Suit Gundam, where you have the Gog, you have the Guy, you have the Zok, which is the weird big dumb one. He's not on my list. But then you have the Zagok, which this is the the Zagok feels like the most fully realized version of the aquatic mobile suits. It's got just fucked like fucked up big claws, and the, the shot where Char just fucking stabs through a GM with the claws. Um, they they kept that shot and didn't reanimate it for the movie because like it's already so good because that looks so cool. It's got this very sleek design of where it's like shoulders just kind of come straight off of where its head is. Um, it's got a very like distinct and imposing silhouette um and again like the the sort of slit red eye but it goes all the way around for the zagok so it has like 360 degree vision instead of like the zakus and, and the goof and stuff like that um i think it's just like the most well-designed well-realized coolest looking of all the aquatic mobile suits and and when char just fucking swings on the rock ceiling with its claw arms stabs through gms it's very very good my favorite part of the Zagok is definitely his Tarzan sequence in the caves yes. under Jaburo. The Zagok did not make my list. The Char custom Zagok is my number like 11 honorable okay. mention. I do love it. I think I prefer the, the Galgoog personally, so that's why like that was kind of my tiebreaker there. But I don't disagree with anything you said. It's fucking yeah, awesome. There's no wrong choices here. Yeah, they're all very good. I think one of the main reasons why the Zagok is so high is legitimately just for the shot, which again, they just took it from the, for the movie because it's so good. Of Amuro seeing Char again for the first time, a red mobile shoot. It's Char, and then the Zagok slowly stands up, and then it cuts into the cockpit as Char looks up and smiles in like cut frames at the same rate that the Zagok is standing up. It's like, Probably, oh my god, just yeah. fucking, just let me marry Char now because he's so beautiful. I have that shot right here on my desktop, Sean. I love it so much. It's one of the it's, all-time great Char smirks. He it's, is. It's my favorite shot of Char in the show, yeah. definitely. And, him, that and him on the fucking horse. Just, you know, I could go back and forth between those all day. Horse in the mobile suit. Horse, mobile suit, they're so good. Yep. Anyway, um, absolutely. My number five was the hardest mobile suit to place for me. Okay. That's the RX-78-2, the Gundam. Okay. Because the Gundam is, a, it's, compared to most of the Xeon suits, it's kind of boring. Mm -hmm. it's, it's this big, blocky design that sort of, whether it's because a lot of, Obviously, mech anime took inspiration from Gundam, or because Gundam also was sort of working within some existing frameworks, looks fairly typical to a lot of like giant robots. Like, like Optimus Prime is the Gundam. If yes, you look at Transformers, yeah. like he's just the gun. Like his face is just the Gundam face. So the Gundam is a little. It's it's not the most visually striking of the major mobile suits in the series. But the more I watch the show, and especially Sean watching all the spinoffs and OVAs. It occurred to me that, like, that's kind of the point. The Gundam is sort of this 
open canvas they can do so much with. And that's what made it hard to place. Because yeah. if we're just going with the show, I think this is roughly where it would be for me. But I think if you went with the overall like canon of the One Year War stuff, the Gundam might have to be higher, maybe even number one, because so much is done with it. Like I think one of the great things in the show is how it transforms. Without the, the suit physically transforming, the Gundam becomes scary in the show. Yeah. It becomes kind of an object of fear because it is used as like a weapon of mass destruction. And then I think a lot of the OVAs are really smart with how they capitalize on that. War in the pocket more than any of them in terms of making the Gundam an object of terror. But I think 8th MS team, which has my favorite Gundam designs, because it's it's just like it's got that big giant fucking 8 on it. And yeah. it's a little, the color scheme's a little more subdued. I love that. Um, Thunderbolt does a lot of really good stuff with the Gundam. And I think leaning into over time that the Gundam is... Low key, like like the color scheme, the big blues and yellows and reds distract you, but the Gundam is scarier than any of the Xeon suits. It is more imposing, it is more lifeless, it is more emotionless. And I think that is the brilliance of the Gundam. And it also has the fucking beam saber, which I wrote in my notes, which is better than any lightsaber fight me. <laughs> which I wrote in a giant run-on sentence. Mm-hmm. So Gundam, absolute hardest to place for me because there are there are other suits, which you'll hear about, that just tickle like my aesthetic fancy more when I look at them and we'll talk about those so I thought like kind of right in the middle for me especially splitting the difference between Gundam in the original mobile suit Gundam versus Gundam in the larger universe of Gundam where I think they did more and better things with it um also hard to place because it's the franchise yeah and it's it's a thing where it's like you're so overexposed to the design yeah. of the Gundam that it, it, it can be hard to yes it's, ne- it's never it's like fresh for Someone living in 2019 versus like if you had seen the anime as it was airing in 79, it would have yeah. been a much more striking new design. But even then, you see the Gundam every episode. There's no yeah. other mobile suit you see every episode. Yep, the Gundam has to carry the show yep. on, it, on its sturdy shoulders. Which it does. So that's my number five. Very good. I respect that choice. My number five is the YMS-15, the Gyan. I like it. We'll very you'll good. hear my yep. thoughts on it later. It's Makabe's personal mobile suit, that fucking weird antique loving motherfucker. Um, the Gyan is interesting because it's one of the most unique of all the Xeon mobile suit designs. Like, it still has a lot of the sort of core aesthetics. It's part of, like, the, the overall uh, Xeon color scheme, which is either green for the Zakus or it's, like, black and purple for most of their other mobile suits. So it's got this nice little purple look. It's got the slit eye that also has kind of, like, a very, like, thin version of the cross that the Rick Dom has. Um, but then it's, it's, it feels very smartly specialized to Makabe's character. So having the little buckler shield that has the missiles implanted in it as like a little like trick. And then it's like fencing sword gives it this very elegant knight-like look. And it's big um, hel- helmet that is like based off of, you know, actual medieval knight helmet designs. It, it, it strikes a very interesting aesthetic. It is also, you know, heavily featured in one of my favorite episodes that has one of my favorite fights in the duel in Texas. And it, it going toe to toe with the Gundam is, it's it's a good mobile suit for that fight, and and it's so fun to see you know mobile suits having like actual proper like sword fights. And the Gyan enables that with its fencing kind of design. Um, it's an elegant mobile suit for a total fucking dick in Makave, and it is also like it is going back to like um, the build fighters. It is also the one like good thing I really like about um, mobile uh, guild fighters tr- or build fighters try is the character Gyanko, who is a lady that is just entirely obsessed with the Gyan, for, and so all of her mobile suits are designed after Gyan, and she has little like he has a. Uh, 
pigtails and the like hair ties for her pigtails look like the Gyan shield and Gyanko is very good. Well, now I know my favorite character in the Gundam franchise. Yeah. No. I thought it was Char, but no. Gyanko's amazing and then there's a similar character in the first uh, Build Fighters that is also obsessed with the Gyan that I think is technically her older brother. Um, but Gyanko gets more time in, in the show and she is very cool and I like her and I like the Gyan. Nice. My number four, and I should say my number four, three, and two are very themed and they kind of tell a story. But my number four is the MS-06F Zaku 2 because the Zaku is fucking amazing. It's this big green suit with all these rounded edges. I love the red eye in the middle of the head, the weird sort of breathing apparatus tube around its head, which is not a breathing apparatus thing, but that's what it looks like. I just, the spikes on the shoulders, the Zaku just speaks to me in a way like if I were enlisting with one of the armies, I would enlist with the Zeons, even though they're weird space Nazis, because I'd get to fly a fucking Zaku. And the Gundam is cool, but it's no Zaku, because it's also green, and it is it has so much attitude, and again, it is a completely form over function, but the Zaku, which is the first suit you see in the series, yep. I just love it to death. I don't even know if I can fully explain why. I just see the Zaku, and it is the one that Sean, like, the base design, because the next two might might build on it in a different okay. way. interesting. As a base design, like, that's when I knew I liked Gundam mechs on their own terms, was, like, realizing how much I loved the Zaku. Because it also, if we're just talking about the animation of the original series, I think the way the Zaku and its descendants are animated is, like, makes the best use of the very, like, rounded animation style, very handcrafted. It just looks so good. Like, the Gundam, honestly, sometimes benefits from, like, the CGI-ification. I feel like the Zaku loses a little something when it is not this, like, 70s ass, like, very rounded, very, like, mid-period anime style. So, that's the Zaku. I respect the choice. Before I say my next one, I've pulled up. I just want to show you a picture of Gyanko. Because I think you'll like her. She's very good. And this is from the show you think is the worst Gundam show. Yeah, no, it's, it's an incredibly boring show, but like the character designer is the same character designer from the very yeah. good Gundam Build Fighters. Can't be that bad. Scott Gianco. I'm kidding. We'll find out in maybe two or three years. Yeah, if you ever watch Gundam <laughs> Build Fighters, try We'll see if you are able to watch all the things that show. Because it is very... I mean, it's mostly that the main characters fucking suck. How, like, how, how many episodes is it? Um, It's like 24. 20, I can 24 to 26. Yeah. You did it. I, I definitely I did it you know eventually I'll get around to build divers which is the next one Sean I've been into this thing for a month and I've bought four books come on <laughs> <laughs> alright let's move on to my number four it's the RB79 the ball my boy my beautiful boy the only mobile pod I believe that exists in the entire franchise of Mobile Suit Gundam I don't think that page has anything else on the Gundam wiki the ball is not a mobile suit it's not a mobile armor it is just, it's, it is what it is. It's a fucking ball with a big cannon on the top of it and like little tiny wimpy arms. Um, it's not featured all that much in the original show um, because they only kind of have it in at the very end. But it is just, I love the visual of like this. This is why the Zaku is the most devastating fucking invention in the history of warfare is because the thing that people were using before the Zaku is this dumb fucking metal ball floating through space with a little viewport and little tiny arms and just a big gun on top is the goofiest looking thing in the world. Um, Again, like one thing that really elevates it is it does have one kick-ass 
action sequence from the beginning of 08th MS Team, which is just fucking cool. And it's a really awesome way to like show off that your pilot for this show is going to be very good, is that he's able to be cool in a ball in like the objectively dumbest mech ever created. Um, but like, but it's supposed to be the dumbest mech, and that's why I love it so much. Like, like you said, like the bear guy is one that you don't want a gunpla of; you just want a big fucking plush doll of. I want a bear guy, but I also want just a big plush ball that, like, just like you could use as a pillow because I love it so much. Yeah, I considered the ball, but thinking that its most standout sequence to me is in a different show, and we're thinking about like the specific yeah. original Mobile Suit Gundam, kind of was. The thing that allowed me to kind of leave it off the list. And it also is very different than the others. But I'm really glad it's yours. And I'm glad it's that fucking high. Because the ball is awesome. I mean, because one of the things that also is just factors in it for me is that as someone who's seen all the gun like series, there is nothing that looks like the ball. They've never done the ball ever again. There's there's the Kapool from Turn A Gundam that's also a little bit in Double Zeta that has a ball-like aesthetic. But it's not the ball. It's not as dumb. It doesn't just have a big fuck off cannon on top, on top of its head. I love the yeah. ball. I love awesome. balls. Sean Chapman. <laughs> quote me on it. Well, now I know I'm going to have to rewrite our iTunes description. <laughs> <laughs> okay. My number three is the MSO6S Zaku 2 command type. Also known as Shars Red Custom Zaku. And I just wrote in my notes... It's a Zaku, which is already awesome, but red, which is even better. Uh-huh. And I feel like I don't know it's what's... three times as fast, baby. Three times as fast. It's fucking cool. And this is one where I think some of the other Gundam shows does feed into this for me. Because the... It's, I mean, it's not a different design, necessarily. It's, it's, like, altered a little bit. But when you see the red custom Zaku in action at the Battle of Loom mm-hmm. in Gundam The Origin... Um, which that is the gunpla I have my eyes on for the one I want to buy first. I'm just like, I haven't pulled the trigger yet because I'm also not at my actual home right now. I'm yeah. in Colorado. Um, that's the one I want to build most because it's like they just, they perfected the design just enough and like seeing it fully in action and it expresses Char's personality so perfectly and the red looks so good on that Zaku. God damn, I love this suit. The, the, yes, the custom command type Zaku is very good. I know that because my number three is the MSOX or 06F Zaku 2 slash S, the command type. Because again, I, I squashed them all together for my list. Um, yeah, I mean, I've agreed, I agree with everything you've said about both the Zaku 2s. I think my personal favorite little detail for the, for Shar's Zaku 2 is that it's not just red, it's also got a little tiny horn on top. It's it like, does. It's like, it's, other than that, it's almost identical. It's just got a little... I don't know why he did why the horn. I don't want my fucking little horn. So I got two. I got three things. I need you to paint it red. I need you to remove the limiters. And I need you to put a little horn on top. Yep. <laughs> it's, 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 and it's perfect. That is my biggest complaint with the origin song, Sean, is we don't see the scene where he like makes his custom. I want to see the scene where he's talking to the mechanic. And I want it to be the same guy who does this young thing. <laughs> and yeah. be like, okay, you've got my Zaku. Great. I need you to do these three things. And that guy being like... Who the fuck are you? Like, I just, like, imagine him, like, he's walking into, like, the fucking construction yard, and there's just, like, a big discarded piece of metal that was, like, ripped off of, like, one of the other mobile suits, and it's just, like, kind of in the shape of the little, like, curved horn. He's like, 
put stick that thing on its head. It looks awesome. Now I'm imagining like a montage where he's doing that and like he takes off the cloak and like ties it around his waist because he's like <laughs> getting ready to work and he gets a fucking can of spray paint and he just goes up and they do like a big musical montage as he's like spray painting his Zaku. And he's just got like seven different spray cans that are all different shades of red because yes. it's like he, this part's like a deeper red. This is slightly more pink. Yeah. Yes. Whole, whole nine yards. So yeah, the special the command type Zaku is great but also just the core... Zaku 2, um, it's, it's one of like the all time great mecha designs in the history of the genre. Like, I mean, it is one, it is the mecha design, I think, from Gundam that more than anything else changed, um, the way that mecha were designed from that point forward. It is the, the, the design from Mobile Suit Gundam that to me, like, epitomizes the idea of the real robot. Like, it, the, particularly the, the standard grunt version that is green doesn't have the horn to make it look extra cool. Um, it is like a big stocky tank, but it is, but it still has enough like the human form um, to to like give you all like the stuff that I like from mechs that I like to have them have be bipedal and look like people. I don't want them to just be like Metal Gears or something. I, I'm not into. And the Zaku Two has that of like it's the perfect middle ground of like it has the kind of human elements that you want that like super robot shows have to make it kind of uncanny while it is clearly designed as a mass-produced, heavily manufactured weapon of war. It's got um, one of the best, like, weapon designs of, like, both the Heat Hawk, which is his big axe, looks cool, but then also the uh, machine gun that the Zaku-2 has, which is, like, based off of a World War One design that has a big round drum magazine on top. Like, it's just, it, it's a really sort of striking design that that... Both like because guns normally don't quite look like that. Um, you it does it looks a little bit fantastical, but it is so based in a real like actual rifle design that it still evokes everything you need um, to get across like this sense of the verisimilitude of the conflict that these people are engaging with. You know, like that first shot of the Zaku two eye coming into frame and the noise that they use for it. The um, eye really ties it together. Yeah, the eye ties it together in that, in, in just everything in that first episode and the way they're shot in that first episode in particular, like the Zaku coming up from behind the tree and the birds flying away, or the Zaku firing on a hangar full of people and the shells from the rifle falling down and being the size of the car that Amuro is driving in. Um, it's really the the way they're filmed in that first episode in particular that elevates the Zaku to, to uh, this high up on my list. Got one last thing to say. Yeah, everything is red. It really is a good color, isn't it? It really is a good color. I was just—I have such a giant collection of sharp pictures on my desktop right now. He's a—he's 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 a beautiful boy. I love him. All right, my number two is the MS07B Goof. So now you're taking a Zaku but making it bigger and giving it big shoulder spikes and a giant electric whip. And it's blue? Fucking fuck yeah. I love this thing. Plus, Ramba Rao pilots it, and he's the best, so... Dot, dot, dot. That, those were my notes. Which was just kind of breathless. I love the goof. Sean, you have all of your gunpla here yep. that you've built, and you have the big custom goof, uh, which is from uh, 08MS team, which yeah. is probably the best version of the goof, but it's not that far off from the original, and the original goof is just... 
it really cemented for me watching the movies again too. I think the goof is probably the most striking of the sort of mass-produced Zeon uh, ones because yeah. it's got everything you love about the Zaku, but it's just even stockier. It's even more sort of outlandish, and I think blue. As much as I love red as a color on these suits, there's something about the just the blue that really works with these episodes, and I think it also works with the characters who pilot it. Like I think it being Ramba Rao being the most notable goof pilot in the original show, and then. Uh, what was his name? Norris something? Uh, yeah, I forget the full name. In, yeah, in HMS team. Like, I feel like people who pilot goofs tend to also be sort of big personalities who, like, fit the suit. It just, I really love it. It is so cool. Uh, the one you've got here, the biggest thing that the custom one has is it adds these big spikes on the shoulders that come in. And I love that. Um, and then also the weaponry, of course. But, of course, in the original show, I love all the stuff with the fucking whip and how yeah. they have to design that. And the goof is part of probably... There's, my two favorite fights are Duel in Texas and Ron Burrell's attack. And it's always hard for me to choose between them. I think just as a fight, the goof versus the Gundam is the best one in terms of choreography and animation. Uh, it's a very close, though. And the goof definitely gets points for that. The goof is very good. But my number two... Is the RX-782 Experimental Prototype Close Combat Earth Federation Mobile Suit, codenamed the Gundam. Um, the, the, the original Gundam is not my favorite of the Gundam designs in the whole franchise. Um, I particularly like the Gundam Mark II from Zeta Gundam. But the first Gunpla I made, I'm going to grab him, my boy, was a model of the original uh, Gundam from the first show. Because it felt like, if you're going to pick a first mobile suit to build... It might as well be the first mobile suit. And I think when I watched the show the first time, I probably felt similar to how you were talking about the Gundam. Of that, It's not as sexy as the, the Xeon ones. It doesn't get it like kind of be as weird and kind of offbeat. It has to kind of follow a certain set of design principles, partially from the super robot shows that preceded Gundam, and then partially because the Gundam design has become so ubiquitous, both obviously within the franchise, where every single new Gundam show has to have its own version of some kind of Gundam, but also in Mecha in general, it is just a design that has, you know, suffused entirely into like Japanese culture and our culture, and you cannot escape um, the design of the Gundam. Like seriously, I feel like someone who made Transformers should have been sued over this. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, definitely. But when you, with your own two hands, your own trembling hands, that have never really put together a plastic model like this, and one wrong snip, and the whole thing comes apart. When you are you are taking the pieces of this thing and fitting it together, and you're putting together the torso, and then you build an arm, another arm, a head, and the legs. Because you're like, well, the legs aren't necessary, but I well, might as well make it. You know, it, might as well make it 100% complete. And you know, and you're shaving off the nubs at the end of each piece, and you're putting together the 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 beam sabers and putting it into the slot, and trying different poses with the different weapons because you have a bazooka and the beam rifle and and the shield, and then you're and then especially then you, when you get and you get out little markers and you make little panel lines along the little to, to add extra sort of shadowing to the details, and you're learning all of this for the first time you get to understand the design of a mobile suit so intimately. And I think the mobile suit Gundam, Gundam, the original Gundam, is, it, it, like, it, there's a reason why everything has been designed off of it as a model. And we are so used to seeing it that I think it's easy to kind of pass over what it is and kind of, you know, you don't kind of take it all in. 
but the elegance of the balance of the colors, the way that it evokes everything about the super robot show, but then of the super robot kind of design, but then also centering it in something that can be made as terrifying as you point out, as the Gundam often is in this show. Like it, it is the epitome of what Gundam does in blending the super robot genre with this new, more realistic genre. It's time to bring in. Uh, to existence and it is where all the friction is met between those two things and if the zaku 2 is the show is the design that sort of the the whole concept of the real robot is centered on it is the gundam as this anchor point between those two things this fulcrum that sort of creates the interesting friction that designs the show um and defines it like the gundam is the suit that does that and there is a reason why from that point forward Every single one of these shows needs to have some sort of mobile suit that is a response to the design of the RX-78-2. Um, it, is, it is a gorgeous design um, that, that, is never, that, that has the right amount of detail and the right amount of blockiness. Um, so it always has a distinct silhouette and a distinct aesthetic and you never lose it in the middle of a fight. It is designed so purely to the purposes of the TV show and also... Um, as a toy, it just fills all the kind of mission statements that it needs so elegantly um, that that it, I you know there's one other mobile suit I maybe like a little bit more, but the RX seventy eight two Gundam has left its mark on on the history of culture of 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 all of humanity in a way that is undeniable. Absolutely, my number one is the YMS fifteen Gyan because it's a fucking Arthurian knight as a mobile suit. And it is also, I think, and again, this is where I'm not sure which fight I prefer. They're just so good. But I do think in motion, just on its own, the Gyan maybe gets the best animation in the TV series. Because it's only there for one episode, but it leaves such an impression. It is so outlandish. It is so a part of Makuve's very flamboyant personality. I, It is so memorable. I love it so much. I've been thinking a lot about the different genres of games I want Gundam versions of. Uh-huh. My biggest one is I do want a Gundam Fire Emblem, or if your frame of reference is XCOM, Gundam XCOM, because I feel like that would be actually truest to like the show of like doing tactical battles, but then you get to like zoom in and see the robots fighting would be really cool. But the other one is, because of the Gyan, I want Gundam Dark Souls. Oh, 100%. Yes. I don't really know what it would be. But I want Gundam Dark Souls because the Gyan would be a fucking amazing Dark Souls boss. It basically is. The Gyan is basically a Dark Souls boss as a giant fucking mech. And uh, that's, you know, I feel like my two big discoveries of passions this summer were Dark Souls, which if you've heard the main podcast, you heard me, you know, wax poetic about, and Mobile Suit Gundam. And I feel like the Gyan is where they meet and make sweet love. And so that's why it's my number one here. I'm glad, Jonathan, that, that I had not thought about it. That like you, you in a very short span of time, you have been able to awaken to the reality of the best video game that will unfortunately almost certainly never get made is Mobile Suit Dark Souls. Like <laughs> it's something that many of us have been dreaming about for years now. Of just like, it, it, and especially it is like the Duel in Texas episode is the episode that does it. Of like the Gundam coming into this. Just like devastated, like destroyed space colony with like just t- little tumbleweeds and just dust blowing through the air, and the Gundam silhouetted against everything with this long shadow as it's coming into this empty, deserted space colony, and then fighting this giant, weird knight 
uh, mobile suit. It, it is like the epitome of that dream. And yes, I, I can only respect your choice of the Gyan. That, that centers something that we will, that you now have to suffer along with all of us waiting for the day that Miyazaki sees the light and decides to make mobile suit Dark Souls. <laughs> Absolutely. It doesn't even need to technically be the Gundam license. I just want him to do it with big mech designs and go hire some of the Gundam people because there's been a lot of them now. And someone could do it and it would be awesome. The Estus flask would just be oil you pour over the joints. Uh (laughs) It'd be great. It'd be perfect. All right. Well, I'm excited to hear your number one. I think I know what it is. My number one. This is a choice that the moment this boy stumbled onto the, the screen the first time I watched Mobile Suit Gundam. I just knew immediately this is this is it. This is the second gunpla I ever made. Is the MS 07B Goof. My beautiful blue boy. He is just I made the MS 078 Goof custom from 08 the Mess team before I had even seen 08 the Mess team because it was the nice. only one that was available. And I was like, this is a goof that just has a giant fucking Gatling gun attached at the end of the shield. That is very, very cool. Um but it, and, and I love the Goof Custom. It is my favorite version of the Goof. But we are talking about Mobile Suit Gundam. And you cannot talk about the Goof without talking about the mustachioed, the mustachioed hero that is Romba Rao that pilots the Goof. And it is that moment where the Goof comes on screen. And at this point, Amuro has, you know, you know his fights have not been easy because he doesn't know what he's doing. But Amuro has had never been at like real physical threat at that point in the show because the Gundam is so overwhelmingly more powerful than everything else. And then all of a sudden, over this hill, comes this big blue mobile suit that looks enough like a Zaku that you see where it comes from. You see why the Zaku is the MS-06 and this is the MS-07. And, but it has, you know, it has the little horn, it has the little horn that, that, uh, that Char got on his Zaku 2, and it has big fucking shoulders on its spike pad, or on its shoulder pads, it's got a fucking sword, it's got a big heat rod whip that comes out, that, that fucking will whip you and then shock you, um, and it's big and bulky and intimidating, and it's, it is piloted by a big, bulky, intimidating man, and is the thing that teaches Amuro that the Gundam is not you know, the biggest, the bad, baddest thing around. That is not just about your mobile suit. It is also about whoever is piloting it. And and when that, that moment where the goof comes in and just kicks Amro's fucking ass, you have no choice but to fall in love with it. And then everything else of its his fight, uh, be, the fight between the Gundam and the goof is gorgeous. And the, when the hands get cut off or when Rob Rao pushes aside the molten remains of his cockpit so he can see better... Um, and everything with that fight and the way that the goof is used in Mobile Suit Gundam and then in the extended, the rest of the, the whole franchise, it is just beautiful. It is big. It is scary. It is, it is the Zaku that has come to show up to fuck you up. Um, and it is, as Rondel Rao very emphatically tells Amuro in their first encounter, this is not a Zaku boy. This is not a Zaku. Oh man, I love it. I'm so happy we got this. We haven't focused enough on the suits, so this was a fun list to yes. do. They're the mobile suit, the original mobile suit Gundam has by far my favorite overall mobile suit designs from the whole franchise. There are lots of mobile suits from all the other shows that I like quite a bit, but the first show just has the like all the fucking designs are just fucking killer. There's only a couple yeah. of like some of the mobile armors at the near the end of the show are a little bit kind of whatever, but other than that, all the major mobile suits are just one killer design after the next. 
Oh yeah, it's it's part of what keeps it so fresh. Like we've talked about this before, the episodic structure of Gundam would not work if every part of it wasn't firing on all cylinders. Yeah. It would get real boring real fast if the if like the goof wasn't there and it was just like a purple Zaku or something yeah. like like without the other little changes that make it look so good. All right, let's do the top ten character names, and instead of going back and forth on these, I just want to deliver them separately that's, because that's, makes sense. Yeah. Mine kind of tells a story. That was the easiest way to rank these for me. Yes. So, uh, two honorable mentions on mine. Okay. Tem Ray, great yeah. name. Amuro's dad. Amuro Ray is a cool name, but then you realize his dad was just named Tem. Tem <laughs> Ray, love it. And I also think Cameron Bloom deserves some love because it's the closest Gundam comes to a real person's name, but it's still just like 10 degrees off. Yep. And I love it. All right. My number 10 is the lowest because I don't actually think it's said on screen, but it is his canonical name. Uh-huh. This is the original white base captain, Paolo Cassius. Mm-hmm. Captain Paolo Cassius yep. is a great fucking name. It's, yeah, you're right. I do not believe this ever. Maybe they say, like, Paolo Taicho or yeah. something like that at Sorokancho at some point, but they never say his full name. It's, but it, but it is, but they, that doesn't matter. They still came up with the best possible oh, yeah. name for that character. Absolutely. And it, it, it's funny because I wasn't even aware of it until I was on the Gundam wiki doing research for this, and it came up, and I'm like, that's on the list. Yep. So there you go. My number nine is Chalia Bull. Got cut from the movie for good reason, but he has a great name. Uh huh. He is Chaliable. Just also, again, most of these you also have to imagine them being said by the actors in Japanese. Yes. And it's even better. Number eight, the best part of an unfairly maligned episode of Gundam is Kukuru's Doan. Because yep. Kukuru's Doan is an amazing character name. And Kukuru's Doan's Island sounds like the best children's show we never got. <laughs> where he just teaches you things every week while fighting off big mobile suits from Xeon. That'd be pretty great. Because Kukuru's Doan is great. Number seven is Woody Tai, Lieutenant Woody, who, I didn't know this, his last name, his full name is Woody Malden. <laughs> which is even better. But I also just think there's something about saying Wurudi Tai, which is like, you have to like include in some of these their like ranks in Japanese because yeah. that completes the picture. And Woody Tai is just, it's just really good. Really good. Number six is Isolina Eskonbach. Which again, Eskon they don't say the full name ever, I think. You know that she is an Eskonbach because you hear like her father's name. Yes. But Isolina Eskonbach is a great character name that also just is a memorable figure in the show. But I love that their idea of like, okay, we've got to introduce, they're going across North America right now. There's like this noble family, they're really rich. What's what's the last name of the family gonna be? Eskonbach. Yeah, that sounds good. That sounds like a rich, wealthy, like elite character name. What's the, like, daughter who's in love with Garma, who's kind of an elitist himself? Isolina. Put it together. Isolina Eskonbach. It's like chocolate and peanut butter. I love it. Yeah. And, and specifically, I want to point out, because I think it's even better. In Japanese, it's pronounced Eskonbacha is how it's said, which is, it's fucking, it's a great name. Yes. You'll notice I mostly avoided main characters here because... I did the same. Yeah, it Sh- was too hard to rank. Right. Yeah, like Shara's novel. I don't know how to... Shara's novel is great, but I don't know where to put it. Yeah. There's one major-ish character who I couldn't leave off, and that is my number five, Frau Bo. Because Frau Bo, and I just love... They never say Frau... It's always... I mean, I know they do sometimes, but usually it is you have to say the full name. You have to say yeah. Frau Bo. And it is such a 
Japanese version of a Western name. <laughs> it is. It's like the. It's kind of like the prototypical Gundam name in a sense, especially because it's one of the first ones you ever hear. You know. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Frau Bo. And I also just want to say the mobile suit that she never pilots but would be born for her is the Brow Bro, <laughs> which is Jolly of Bulls. Giant psycho mobile suit. I feel like Frau Bo and the Brow Bro never got together. That's too bad. Yeah. So hopefully we could create some sort of like manga spinoff of yes. the, the, the Elseworlds version where Frau Bo gets in the Brow Bro and finds that she's a new type. She visits Kukuru's Doan's Island. Yes. And does that. All right. Number four, Slegger Law. Uh-huh. Which is great on its own. Slegger Law. But especially in Japanese, Sregachui. Yep. I love every time they say Sregachui, and I think that's why he rises this high. My number three is Rambaral, who you know I love. I love especially if you roll the R's, Rambaral. It's so good. He is my Twitter avatar right now because uh-huh. he's a big, beautiful, handsome man, and I love him. But my number two is Jimbaral, because <laughs> it's even better that Rambaral is a character, and he had a father named Jimbaral. Yep. And my number one... Is the only one it ever could be. A beautiful blonde boy. Job John. <laughs> Which I don't know if you've been following my screenshots of this. But my Dragon Quest Builders 2 character is named Job John. Uh-huh. And it is so perfect for that game and that story. That everyone's coming around asking me to build shit. And they're always calling me Job John. Yep. I named my dog in Dragon Quest Builders 2 Job John. <laughs> nice. But yes, Job John... If I ever get a dog in real life, I might just name the dog Job John. Like, oh, that'd be a great. great dog name. Great dog name, absolutely. Job John is not really a character in the show. He's in the background of a couple of shots, but he's got the best fucking name. Job John. It's very good. Again, if I ever have a kid, he will be Job John Lack, and I might get divorced over that, but it's happening. Very good. Your number, your 10. I'll go through my 10. So, like you, I, I avoided any of the main character names because I didn't know, like, Amuro Ray is an amazing name. Like, Amuro as a first name is perfect because it's very good to be sung. Amuro. Amuro. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, in Char's novel, Bright Note, like, a lot of the, the main character names I avoided. They're, they're great, but I just didn't know how to rank them. But there, of course, is one that you cannot ignore, which is my number 10, Frau Bo. There we go. We both have the same thought. (laughs) Frau Bo, it is, especially because for the first time I watched the show, it took me the longest time to realize, or I just couldn't figure out, was Frau her first name? Or is she, like, is she German? Like, because it's clearly supposed to evoke some sort of vague Germanness, which is true of most of the names in Gundam, is either they have a name that is just literally Japanese, like Hayato Kobayashi, or they have a name that is evoking some sort of nationality, like Frau Bo. Frau is a German term for, like, Mr., basically. I don't know why that's part of her name, but it's spelled differently. It's F-R-A-W, not F-R-A-U, so it's just a totally differently at some point. I would love if there was just Frau Bo. I would love if there was just this random teenage girl on a space base and they all run run around calling her Frau Bo, but her name is just Bo. Yes. And she's Frau Bo. But yeah. she's, she's very proper German etiquette. It's it's yeah, it's a very weird name. I love it. Frau Bo and and just hearing people say Frau Bo. It's awesome. Amazing name. My number nine is Lieutenant Woody because because I think it's even funnier just saying it in English because Lieutenant Woody, I don't even need the... Like, Malden is a great weird last name that they never say on the show. But just 
them showing up and meeting a guy named Lieutenant Woody is so funny to me. And also brings a thing I guess I just should also say is for me the eternal struggle of figuring out how surnames and given names work in the Gundam <laughs> universe That's very true. next to military ranks and knowing Japanese name orders. Because in Japanese, the, the surname comes first and the given name comes after. So, you you know, so, so technically, like, if you're saying Hayato's name in Japanese, it should be Kobayashi Hayato. But in Gundam, as is, like, common with a lot of anime not, like, set in, like, a contemporary or historical Japanese setting, the character names have a Western order of the given name and the surname. So Hayato is a given name in Japanese, and it comes first order in Gundam, so it's Hayato Kobayashi. The problem is, though, that in Japanese and in English, when you say someone's name and give them a military ranking, you would say their surname and then give them their military ranking. So someone like Bright Noah... Noah is his surname, so you're supposed to, you're supposed to say, like, Noah Concho for, like, Captain Noah, but everyone calls him Bright Concho for Captain Bright. And But then you have some characters like General Revel, where he only he's called Revel, so I don't know, is his last name Revel or is his first name Revel? Is everyone in the Gundam universe weirdly impolite to everyone and just give a saying, like, like Lieutenant Jonathan is basically what they're saying? <laughs> It's very weird. It's like if you said instead of General Patton, you said General George. Exactly. It's like, what? like and it just feels like something that I don't know if, uh, uh, I don't know if Tomino ever sat down and actually thought about how weird that was. Because also I want to make it clear, like there are lots of great weird names in other Gundam properties, but it is Yoshiyuki Tomino is the man who is the master of naming. He names most of the mobile suits. He was the one who named most of these characters. He is the guy you come to in any show headed by fucking Tomino. Tomino, Tomino is the only person who would give... The, the, the protagonist of Turn A Gundam is a boy named Lauren. He's the only one who would ever do that. And it's spelled L-O-R-A-N. But it's supposed to be pronounced Lauren. It comes, sometimes goes undercover as a female character that's supposed to be Lauren spelled L-A-U-R-E-N. Because Tomino is a fucking genius. So, sorry, I just had to get all that off my uh, head. No, it's good, it's good. My number eight... Is Kukuru's Doan in his Island of Adventure? That's my number eight, also. Yeah, we were... Kukuru's Doan. It's the right place for him. Like it's a, you know, not a great episode, but it is sure is a great character name. My next two are characters who's who's they're only ever their first names are only ever said on the show, and they're very minor characters. But I love them so much. It's our two boys up in the crow's nest that are basically the ones who like you know are telling all the technical information. One of them is named. Oscar Dublin. They only ever call him Oscar, but if you go on the wiki, you find out his last name is Dublin, which is very funny because they do visit Dublin in Mobile Suit Gundam. There's shit. There's a missing episode where he like is visiting the town and feeling a weird sense of heritage. Yeah, maybe he's like the son of like the mayor of Dublin, Oscar Dublin. And then the other one is Marker Clan. I only knew they were Oscar and Marker. I didn't know it was Marker Clan. His name is Marker fucking Clan. And it is just Oscar Dublin and Marker Clan. Oscar is the one with glasses. Uh, Marker Clan is the one that doesn't have glasses if you want to identify them. But it is... They're such good names. My number five is Rambaral. This is fucking... We talked about a lot about Rambaral. He's great. My number four, Job John. Just, you know, it's it rolls off the tongue. It is 
just one of the all-time great moments in Mobile Suit Gundam, the first time that Amuro just says Job John, and you're like, wait, that dude's name is Job John? Again, calling the question, is John, John is his surname? Like, he's, he's <laughs> Mr. John? Like, his, his, you know, his dad is Gary John? Like, <laughs> what is this family? <laughs> My number three is Shalia Bull. Um, another name that just, it's aesthetically so pleasing. It's a name that you can only ever say the full name. You can't, he's not Shalia. He's Shalia Bull. Um, a name so good. This is basically the name of the episode he's in. I, you know, when, uh, I knew that there was an episode coming up called the new type Shalia Bull because it was, I had the, like the file list of all my episodes. And I thought until I saw that episode that that was the name of a, one of the mechs. Yeah. It sounds right. like it should be a mech, but it's a person and that makes it even better. Yeah. The new type of Shalia Bull is just. You know, he's not necessarily an amazing character. It's not one of the great episodes, but it is just a classic name. My number two is Slegger Law because... Sregachui. Yep, because uh, Tomino decided that, well, we need a new someone to replace Ryu. And so what, let's have an American character on the show. Well, we have two American characters. Lieutenant Woody obviously is an American. His name is fucking Woody. Slegger Law is the best fake American character name ever, and this big dopey fucking blonde dude walking around slapping people and eating hamburgers, and his name is Slegger Law, is one of the greatest gifts that that Yoshiki Tomino gave to the world. But there is a, a one name in Mobile Suit Gundam that is better than Slegger Law, Slegger Law, and that's Jim Burrell. You can't, you can't, you can't have a guy named Ram Burrell. And then have him just drop in the middle of a conversation that is Jimba. Because it's so dumb. It's just, you just took the first three letters. And put Jim instead of Ram. Yep. I love also, there's something about Jimba came first. Yeah. Like not on the show, but he was, he, he was named Jimba Rowell and named his kid Ramba. Oh God, Jimba Rowell. Sean, I love that this is a classic, wonderful series with really deep, meaningful themes about war and killing and death and all this stuff. And we, you know, we talk about like war in the pocket and how it like opens a child's yeah. eyes to the realities of war. But it's also got names like Jim Burrell that we can just laugh at. That I feel like is maybe this ultimate secret sauce of Gundam. Because yeah. I have to say, this is the hardest I've ever laughed doing this podcast because holy shit. <laughs> And then there's, I just have to shout out one name because we talked after the recording of the last podcast, we were talking a little bit about Zeta Gundam stuff, Jonathan, and this makes me comfortable saying this because I know that you know yeah. it. In Zeta Gundam, you find this out in the first episode, Char has been going by a, a, a fake name the entire time. Uh, Char is also a fake name. <laughs> well, yeah, he's going by another fake name, which is Quattro Bagina. Mm-hmm. Quattro Bagina, and if you're wondering if Bagina sounds a lot like vagina, it is literally one accent mark away from just the way you'd spell vagina in Japanese, like the English word vagina. And he just goes around calling himself Quattro Bagina. And that, the Quattro Bagina is hands down the best name in the Gundam franchise. You can never be beaten. I, I just love that his, like, he emphatically moves up the ranks of name. He is he is born Casfall Zun. Casfall Rim Daikun. Casfall Rem Daikun, which is a great name. Yeah. He adopts the identity of Shar Aznabel, which is an even better name. And then he adopts the identity, which I don't think he stole from anyone, he just came up with. He just came up with it, as far as I know. Which is Quattro Bagina. Like, that dude has name game going strong. It's very good. 
And now, Jonathan, before we move on to our episode ranking, I do just want to list off some of the other names oh, yeah. that I didn't put in. Some of these are just because the names are so obscure and you almost never hear them that it just felt would feel weird to put them in. But, you know, some of the uh, other crew on the white base include a man named Sun Mallow. Um, you've got Omar Fang. Omar Fang got very close to being put on my list. <laughs> That's right. That sounds like a Hong Kong action star that yeah. we never got in the 80s. Yeah, Omar Fang didn't quite make it past Oscar Dublin and Market Clan. They got, I, as I put Oscar Dublin and Omar Fang, or, or uh, uh, Oscar Dublin and Market Clan on there, Omar Fang didn't quite make it. But so you've got them. That's very good. Um, some of the other Earth Federation people, you've got Gop. That's just his name, Gop. I do remember um, that. Admiral Joaquin is just a good name. I like Admiral Joaquin. Of course, we have Tim Ray. Um, let's move on to some of the other people. Oh, wait. Oh, no. Okay, here we go. This is what I was looking for. The name of Fraubo's mother, which is never said in the show, but her name is Fambo. Fambo, mother of Fraubo. Legend. That is, that's up there with Jimba and Ramba Rao. Yep. Um, one of the children on Cuckoo's Doen's Island is named Rowan Chuan. Um, one of the, uh, admirals for the Zeons is called Admiral Twaining. You've got one of the Zeon pilots who is a Rick Don pilot who is named Buttsham. <laughs> His name is just Buttsham. That's it. Um, that sounds like something you'd see in a Bed Bath & Beyond in the as seen on TV aisle. Yep. It's the butt sham. Butt sham. You've got Lieutenant Slender. You've got Tachi O'Hara. You've got Konskan. Um, you've got Urgan. Uh, some of these are Smith Onizawa. Smith Onizawa. That's just a good name. Um, and then, let's see, where's the... Uh, oh, yes. And then I also really love the names of the three black tri-stars are Gaia, Ortega, and Mash. Which are three good names for three bad deeds. Gaia, Ortega, and Mash also sounds like it could be a folk trio. Yes. And I love that about it. But, you know, just the point being, if you haven't looked at the list of characters from Mobile Suit Gundam on the Gundam fandom wiki, you have not had, you have not lived yet because it is a good fucking time. Sean, you and I have both written a lot of fiction in our lives. Yeah. And I, honestly, one of the hardest things is coming up with character names, right? Absolutely, yeah. I wish I could do it with the reckless abandon that Yoshiyuki Tomino attacks things with because he he has achieved a level of enlightenment with character names that nobody in the history of fiction has matched and I want to know his secret. Like Siddhartha style, I want to go sit under the tree with him and figure this shit out. And he will tell you that if you're going to have a corrupt, corrupt businessman in your TV show, you should name him Bergamino. All right, you want to do the top ten episodes? Let's do the top ten episodes and uh, wrap up. Yes, yeah, so let's let's move through this faster than we did the mechs because we've talked about all of these. Yes, uh, my number ten favorite episode of Gundam is Reentry to Earth, episode five. Good one. Just as solid as it gets, it is. I think one of the most exemplary of like the early stretch of Gundam, like the sort of the most episodic stretch of Gundam and the most formulaic. But here, the for, the, the the way they're operating the formula is that it's not just Shar attacks them when they're, you know, going around the moon or something like that, uh, or when they're going to get salt, which we'll see later on the list. But it is, they're getting down to Earth, and it is having to navigate the gravity well of Earth with flying the Gundam, Shar making an attack, and I think what ties the whole episode together is the end where you find out Shar had this contingency plan the whole time of he steered them down into Garma's territory uh, in North America and fucked up their whole plan. And so even though he lost, he really won. And it is just, it is, like I said, as solid as this kind of Gundam episode gets. 
Yes, and that is also the episode that introduces us to the Gundam Hammer, which yes. is amazing. Uh, also, one thing I do like in the movie, I love the weird film he puts over the Gundam in the yes. TV show to like do the heat sink. But in the movie, they do it more like it's just a piece of the Gundam, and he like turns, like he goes forward and flies, and it's like this shield that comes up. Yeah. It's really cool in the movie how they reanimate that. Yeah, they definitely sort of figured out how to make yes. the Gundam reentry way more plausible than weird like heat coating film that he yes. just pulls out of some like slot. But they also got rid of the Gundam hammer, and what the hell are you doing? Gundam hammer is awesome. Gundam hammer is great. My number 10 is episode 18, Zeon's Secret Mine, um, which is the, the episode that comes between Amaru deserting uh, the, the, the white base and him fighting Rambaral again. And it's, it's one of those episodes that I, one reason I really like it is it's so different for Amaro because he is out of the white base completely. He, he's not on the white base for one second of that entire episode, which is maybe the only episode for which that is true. Um, it's got some great stuff between Amaro and Fraubo and her trying to get him to come back to the white base. But then it's also got um, one of like the all-time great endings to Gundam episodes, which, which Gundam just most episodes have killer endings. But him blowing up this mine, thinking that he's dealing some decisive blow against Zeon's like, sort of whole Odessa kind of operation. And then him realizing that this is one of literally hundreds of mines they have and how foolish and, and naive he has been. And then going and encountering just one random Xeon soldier in the wreckage of all the shit he's destroyed. And just cupping water in his hand and going over and trying to give him some water and walking away is, is one of those moments from a Gundam episode that I will never forget. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorites, not on the list, but it was on my like uh, honorable mentions list. Yeah. Number nine for me is The Winds of War, episode eight, which is the episode where they declare a ceasefire. Uh, this is this is the one where they're looking for salt, right? Um, yeah, there's a couple of episodes where they're looking for salt. Okay, they, yeah. I think this is where it, like the salt thing is introduced. But it's also because they are the the it's it's this whole plot. This is completely removed in the movies, but you have yeah. the other refugees from Side Seven on the ship. They want to get off. They declare the ceasefire with Zeon so they can let the soldiers go. That and then there's a bunch of just really good tactical stuff that is like my bread and butter for this kind of storytelling. Yeah. Where they hide the Gundam in the ship and they have a whole plan to like get back at the Zeons while Shar and Garma are both like kind of manipulating events against the white base. But then you also have this thread through here of this young mother on the white base who is trying to get to her hometown that is nearby. And she goes there on her way there. Two Xeon pilots of like a normal like core fighter style plane come by and give her some help. And we realize these are two really decent men. It's it's maybe our first because Ramba Rao we don't know yet. Yeah. So this is like our first indication of like Xeon characters who are not villains in any way. There's normal guys doing their job and they're very nice to this woman. And at the end of the episode, they get in a fight with Amuro. They don't die, but Amuro shoots them down. And you kind of see the Gundam as something terrifying for the first time. And I think for me, this was a turning point in Gundam just not just being a show that was on its surface amazingly good and entertaining and solid, but the depth it could plumb through these stories was really extraordinary. And I think it's a really important episode for that reason. Yeah, absolutely. Um, my number nine is episode 10, Garma's Fate. Garma Chiru, which is a great, I love, every time you, because you have Suzuki says all the uh, titles of the episodes in Japanese, and Garma Chiru is one of the best. Um, so, yeah, so this is, obviously this is the episode where Garma dies, um, it's where we meet Isolina Rosenbacha um, for, the, for the first time, um, and it's just one of like the great 
tactics episodes of Gundam. Um, and, and just one of the most distinctive looking ones of everything with like the uh, bridge of the white base being in like night mode and then flying through this destroyed bombed out city and then hide, having to hide inside a, a, a just like desiccated baseball dome uh, to hide away from the gun or from the, uh, the all the ships that Garma has brought in. And then this is where Char betrays Garma. The fucking white base comes out and, and this is where Bright gives, I think this is the first time he ever just goes like all cannons fire and just everybody shoots, destroys Garma. Um, and then Char fucking phones up Garma and says, you know, resent that you were born to the zombie family because that is why you died. <laughs> and then Garma says, you tricked me, Char. I'm going to go down with my ship and try to crash into the white base. The, the Bright has the white base do an emergency ascent to try to get up as fast as possible as the sun is rising as all this is happening. And then the gow that, of the giant ship that Garma is in explodes in a massive explosion. And it's just... One of the like great action episodes of Gundam. It has just such a killer aesthetic. It's a huge turning point for the show. It is the first time that Char fully reveals the true dick that he is. And then you also just get a lot of great little moments of the Gundam fighting in urban combat, which you very rarely see. And so him like fighting a or like shooting a Zaku through a building with the bazooka and stuff like that. Also just lots of like lots of those really great little moments. And so as far as like combat and tactics episodes, Garma's Fate is among the best. I agree because it's my number eight. There we go. Is Garma's Fate. Everything you said, so true. If it were just the scene where Shar calls up Garma to gloat over his impending death, that would be enough for this list, right? Yeah. But I think it's everything else. This is easily on the short list of best animated Gundam episodes. I would say this or Duel in Texas, if you're just going for the whole episode, not just yeah. one sequence. Mm -hmm. Those are the two best animated episodes. And you can tell, like, this was a giant turning point for the series, and they gave it all the love and care they could muster. And it is... Because also, like, you list all the things that happen. It's hard to remember that that's all one fucking episode. Yeah. And just, man, oh, man. And also, like, it's so good that Gundam The Origin basically devoted an entire hour to prequelizing this 120 minutes of Gundam. Yes. It's it's that good. So, absolutely. That's my number eight. Your number eight. Interesting, because my number eight is episode eight, Winds of War. Yes. That you talked about. Like, obviously, it's, it's one of those... It's, it's one of, like, the more standalone episodes of Gundam, but it is... Like, among, if not looking at my list, it maybe is, like, the best of the, like, truly standalone episodes of Gundam from that earlier part of the show. Um, and it, it is, as you talked about, it is the episode that first, like, fully kind of starts to humanize the idea that while Xeon are definitely not great, the the individuals fighting in that army are not all evil. Like, many, like as the one Xeon pilot says to his buddy as they're, like, going to go drop supplies for that woman and her child, is like... Hey, man, the people up top don't understand the way that, like, people with families like us, the way that we think and the way that we care about this stuff. Um, they had no say in this. They didn't choose to drop the colony or start this stupid fucking war. Yeah, they're just trying to do what they're what they're doing. And, they, and they're clearly, like, so happy that they get to be on what is effectively a humanitarian mission in the middle of this all this shit. Um, and so everything you said about Winds of War is great. Like, it, it's also, like with Garma's Fate, a great example of tactics being used by the members of the white base all the tension of like Amro sneaking around with the Gundam and trying not to be seen and then like the light reflecting off the scope on his beam rifle tipping off um the the pilots in the ship and then that kind of kicking everything off but then also this is again another 
uh, Gundam episode that whose ending stands out so much in memory of the wife and child wandering through the like kind of wasteland at night trying to find the the whatever town it is that her husband was from and the the Xeon pilots finding her and giving her the supplies and then saying like oh man this area used to be this town and then they leave and she says oh like it was Saint Elmo or whatever the fuck it was and then collapses to her knees crying realizing that the tour of the war has not just taken the life of her husband, but like the place where he literally grew up, like the whole area has been destroyed and transformed from the horror of this war, which is a theme that is also picked up from the episode that deals mostly with the salt stuff, which is where like the rivers are like so different at this point, like rivers and lakes have been literally created from the bombed out craters of this war. Um, Like that sense of the cost of this war, I think is first made most poignant by winds of war. Absolutely. Uh, my number seven is the series premiere Gundam Rising episode yeah. one, which is as good an anime premiere as you could ever hope to have, cramming into 22 minutes what I think most anime would take five or six episodes to get through. Yeah. Um, maybe that's on the high end, but I don't know because you meet Amuro, you meet Char, you kind of get the two sides of the war, you get uh, Frau Bo losing her entire fucking family before our eyes, which is really, I think, the uh, claiming what kind of show this is going to be yep. moment. And poor you get, Fambo. Poor didn't, Fambo. Fambo didn't make it. Didn't even hear her name. And Amuro getting in the Gundam, that first fight is so fucking good with him blowing up the one engine, realizing he has to stab more precisely through the other engine, and just how much this episode plants a flag for what kind of show Gundam is going to be. This is as confident as I have ever been saying this. Watch episode one of Gundam. If you like it, you will like the show. If you don't like it, the show is probably not for you. There are not a lot of shows where I could say watch 20 minutes and that's all you need to give it to know if you're going to like it. Gundam is that kind of show. Absolutely. My number seven is episode 28, Across the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, High on my honorable mentions. Yes. So this is the episode where Miharu um, meets her her unfortunate fate. Um, This is one of those, like, oftentimes you can kind of judge the quality of an episode of Gundam by how much they just put the episode in the movie, now that we've watched the movies, because most of this episode is just in the movie. um, And, you know, it focuses in on Kai, who is one of my favorite characters. Uh, and so him getting like this big story about him and Miharu is great and it is you know it is one of those where you get to see a lot of things around the white base from a slightly different perspective because you're focused in on him and Miharu you have some of those like good little scenes where like Amuro pops in this is one of the episodes where Amuro is like the most absent in all of Gundam and him just sort of seeing Kai sneak into the room with Miharu and him mistaking it for um, it being his girlfriend that he's kind of snuck on board but then of course it is like the big standout sequence of the episode is the fight um, where Miharu is in the gun parry and is firing one of the torpedoes manually and then gets blasted off in what is like one of the most shocking deaths in the whole franchise. And then the whole sequence afterwards of Kai on the floor of the white base just in tears and him having this weird sort of surreal sequence of imagining Miharu talking to him. You have like this very strange kind of portrait of Miharu in like very high detail. Um, her face and in, in portrait uh, behind him talking to him about her children and then Kai using this as this moment to find strength and to just dedicate himself to making sure that other people will not have to live a life like Miharu and her younger brother and sister had to live because of the the war and it just packs all that into a fucking ridiculously packed episode that delivers a real real gut punch 
Absolutely. So, my number six is episode 21, Sorrow and Hatred, which is the death of Ryu, but it is also the death of Hamon, and symbolically, Ramba Rao and his legacy, yep. and all of his soldiers, obviously. And this episode is great for so many reasons. The big action sequence where Ryu dies and the information promulgates throughout the White Base crew. And then one of my favorite moves in the show where uh, Amuro in the Gundam just kicks Hamon's ship away and shoots it. Which is pretty fucking cool but also sad. I think the biggest thing this episode does for me and why it is the emotional centerpiece of the middle arc of the show. Is it's not just Ryu dies. It's also Hamon. Like you can't separate those two and that the episode where Rambaral dies the previous one is not on my list but Rambaral I feel like his death is almost this episode yeah. because that's like his legacy and it is putting these two groups of characters who you love in conflict I don't know about anyone else I, I know you agree with me on this I don't want Rambaral and Haman to die God, no. I don't want anyone on the white base to die I want both of these people to go live in harmony because there's absolutely no reason they should be fighting they are two good groups of people who have like a strong moral consciousness and it is the utter stupidity of war and this pointless, dumb war that, that the, the Zabi family has started that puts them into this conflict and makes for an unwinnable situation where both side, one side is just completely decimated and the other is left so broken that the stoic Captain Bright is finally pushed to his knees and, you know, forced to utter a primal scream. There is a power in that where I feel like that is one of the most elegant statements Gundam makes about war is is what everything builds up to and then culminates in this episode. It is absolutely incredible. Um, and it's it's one of those things where it is thematically it is Gundam in a nutshell. Hell yes. <clears throat> My number six is episode 37, The Duel in Texas. What is the second... There's one better title I think that we'll get to, but The Duel in Texas is sure is a hell of a good title for an episode. Um, this is you know it's the only title that could be both for Gundam and for Walker Texas Ranger exactly right? yes um, we talked a lot about this episode already with like the Gyan in Makabe and everything but it is just you know if you're just if you want to watch an episode of Gundam for the action like this is the one to watch I think it is like a centerpiece of really great action choreography as the Gundam and the and the Gyan's duel moves from you know, them fighting in space to moving into the colony and then uh, Char getting involved and Lala sort of observing all of this happening and there being weird sort of like new type friction between Lala and Amaro. Um, it has one like a great villain death in Makave where his last thought is about the priceless vase that he, he wants to be sent to Cassilia and his last line is, it is priceless as he explodes. Um, and it's just the, 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 the animation of the fight between the Gundam and, and the Gyan in this destroyed, um, you know, space colony fallen into ruin because the mirrors have been misaligned. It is just one of the best settings of any kind of sci-fi episode you could find. The way that things like the horses and the oxen that are still alive on the colony juxtaposed with the size of the mobile suits is a great visual tool to make the sort of the enormity of these two battling uh, sort of like creatures effectively feel. Um, and so having that reference point is great. But it's also maybe actually my favorite part of the episode is just the buildup of the um, of, of Amuro and the Gundam going in alone. And all it's some of the most artistic shots that don't go to like totally surreal spaces in the whole show of the, the just... While the Gundam itself is huge, the space colony is much bigger. And the way that they sort of 
move through that he moves through that space as it starts just like metal and sullen and forlorn and and his shadow is long and dark and then he goes from that space to slowly working his way into a space colony that is brown and dead and decaying it's just a beautiful visual space that this episode takes place in and i love it agreed we'll get to that one a little later my number five is episode 19 Ramba Rao's attack you get so much good stuff in this episode. The first half, you get this big scene at the pub in the rundown town where Amaro, where Rambaral and Hamon come in. Amaro is having some food, and they come in with all their troops. And you, this is the best scene for the characterization of Rambaral, I think, and what a good dude he is and how much his men trust in him for his good qualities. And also you realize what an interesting kind of offbeat character Hamon is. You have Frau Bo comes in, and how that whole scene plays out I love. But then later, the fight between Gundam and Ral's goof and uh, Amuro having to come back to the white base and fight, and that being maybe the best battle in the series, tied with the fight in Duel in Texas. But I think if you're just taking one standalone fight, nothing quite beats the choreography of cutting off the goof's arms, the stabbing through the cabin, and Ral like moving across the molten, you know, uh, metal, and then them seeing each other. And that tying into earlier in the episode, it is so fucking good. So that's why it's on my list. Dad, that that one is not quite on my list, but it's definitely a, a high honor. I'm shocked. It is so good. It is. It is very good. The reason why it's not on my list is because my next episode, episode twenty one, sorrow and hatred, which for me was like I had to kind of narrow it down to the best Rob Morale dissection episode, and sorrow and hatred was it for me because it is. It's the turning point at the middle of the show. It's everything that you talked about, um, like Ryu's sacrifice and Hamon, like because because Ryu's death and Hamon's death literally happened at the same time because yes. it's, it's his suicide attack on her, and so like those two deaths, as you said, together end this like whole first stretch of the show, and is the first time that the white base sort of pays like a very deep personal price because Ryu has been the one who has kind of been the glue that held everything together. So the way that that sequence is filmed and edited is just utterly extraordinary. Um, and, and again, the way that like nobody quite knows what has happened and is everyone's trying to figure out what the f- who was in that core fighter and, and how that happened. And then everything building up to it of Ryu stumbling around, like mortally injured around the white base and trying to just get everybody on the same page, trying to get Bright and Amuro to stop being idiots and to work together. And he can't quite get it to, to, to happen without just sacrificing himself. And then, of course, the ending where Bright, you know, everybody takes it hard, but no one more so than Bright, who his entire facade is crushed by the events and... You know, Sorrow and Hatred is a very appropriate title for what is a really brutally sad episode of Gundam. Number four for me is The Duel in Texas. You already talked about it. I have very little to add other than I totally agree with your assessment that really what makes the episode is the long, slow sequence of of the Gundam entering the, the colony. And I think the whole conceit of the episode that Makuve is laying this trap and, and Amuro is coming in. It's like the end of Empire Strikes Back with Darth Vader leading Luke deeper and deeper into the heart of Kur- not Coruscant, the Cloud uh, City. Bespin, yeah. Bespin, yeah. I, I think it is done so extraordinarily well. And then that you get the second half payoff with this big fencing duel in this like old west colony that is dilapidated. It is so unique. It is so well animated. I love it to death. My number four is episode one, Gundam Rises or... Gundam Daichi Tats, which is a, just a great title. 
Um, it is it is maybe the best first episode of any TV show ever. It is fucking absurd how much it does. And it is also maybe the best directed episode of Gundam. And this is like common for a lot of anime series. The, the first episode tends to be the one the, the most directorial focus goes on. Because so the have, pilot of a, an American show. Yeah, exactly. And they just have the most time to deal with it. And so, you know, there is a reason why the entirety of this episode is just the beginning of the first movie. With basically no changes whatsoever because... The animation is already gorgeous. It is so well put together. And that sequence that introduces us to our characters of the Zaku's coming in, being juxtaposed against nature. Uh, I think it's uh, a Slender Chewie sees Fraubo coming into Amaro's house. And then that is the window through which we enter the story. Is like one of, like, it's such a stylish, artful move that like I remember just sort of taking me um, off guard immediately when I first watched the show that I would not have expected expected a kind of relatively low budget TV anime from 1979 to do a, like a cinematic move like that that is really smart, really cutting. The whole episode is just fucking fantastic. My number three is A Cosmic Glow, episode mm-hmm. 41, which is sort of the heart of this last push of the series, the episode that does the most with the new type conceit and benefits the most from the show's experimental streak down the home stretch. It is an aesthetic marvel, even if I think we both agree that the movie version makes a lot of improvements, maybe directorially, in some places. In some places, the TV version is even better. It is such a bold, artistic statement of an episode in its original form. It is such a raw gut punch of an episode with what happens to Lala. It is an episode that shows that Gundam's thematic concerns go so far beyond the physical and the tangible into the metaphysical and the philosophical in a way that I don't think you could have predicted up until this point. Um, It is a beautiful, beautiful work of art that is constructed pretty much perfectly. It's one that challenged me on first viewing. You heard me talk about it in the last episode of Weekly Suit Gundam, where I wasn't sure about how it all fit together, especially seeing it play out in the movie and thinking about it and rewatching parts of it again and how it ends with... This is the light of hatred from yeah. Amuro. Um, you know, this is this is peak Gundam. These top three were really hard to rank. Yeah, I mean, my top three, I'm mean, really my top four with Gundam Rises were always my top four. I've in, in this order, like I've known this forever. Even if I've never sat down and made a list, I knew this. Um, so Gundam Rises, the next is my number three, episode 43, Escape, the finale of Mobile Suit Gundam. Um, which, if you could not ask for a better first episode, you also could not ask for a better last episode, because holy shit. I mean, we talked about basically everything, because the movie, again, it reanimates some of this stuff, but it is all the same beats. Um, I mean, everything with Amuro and Char and Sela is amazing. Amuro and Char get in a fucking actual real sword fight. The final moments of the Gundam, which I have actually posed my um, the Gundam gunpla in the, the, the final shooting of the Gundam to take out the Zeong, a fucking sharp blowing off Cassilia Zabi's head. But then the payoff of Amuro using his new type abilities, not for war, as Char is afraid that this is what like new types are doomed to, is just to be the most frightening weapons of war. But he uses his new type abilities to save all of his friends and gives a single personal message to each of them. And then he finally escapes and leaves his last message for Lala which is, I can come visit you anytime, but I have a place to go back to. And then particularly his last line, which is, there is nothing happier than this. Like, I could not be happier than with, with this outcome, effectively, is such a beautiful, beautiful ending to this TV show. 
My number two is Coming Home, episode 13. We have talked about it many times. I don't think we need to restate it much. But this is... If, if Winds of War was the episode that shows you how deep they're going to go with the two sides of this conflict that's going to pay off later in episodes like Sorrow and Hatred, Coming Home is the episode that's going to fully plant the flag on where Gundam is going to draw the lines. And the lines it's going to draw is... Amuro is a fucking kid sent to war and that is terrible and it is scary and it is heartbreaking and we do that in the real world because 16 and 18 aren't that fucking different and kids grow up and they kill for us and that is a heartbreaking thing to try to come to terms with and I think the way Coming Home paints all of that you know in many ways this episode is the beating heart of Gundam as a franchise and is a beautiful beautiful thing Definitely. My number two is episode 41, A Cosmic Glow, Hikaru Uchu. A Cosmic Glow being the best title of a Gundam episode because it has a dual meaning. It is both the cosmic glow of Lala and the new type powers and the cosmic glow of the light of hatred uh, eliminating the Federation and uh, General Revel and Deglin Zabi. It is, you know, we talked about this episode a lot because it is just so fucking good. But it is, I mean, everything in it is amazing. Is particularly that fight, um, the way it is edited is so impactful. Like, I just cannot, like, I watch it all the time because it is, it captures something in editing to me for combat that is like so few things can kind of grasp on um, the emotional clarity of everything that's happening, even though it is a complex scenario. And then the standout sort of psychic sequence between Amuro and, and Lala and some of that imagery, like his eyes against the wave filling up his mind as he's killed Lala and the weird image of an egg being impregnated. Like, all those things, like, they're, they're images that sit with me today that I think about all the time. Um, and, and Amuro coming in screaming, it is like, run away, run away, it's the light, it's the light of hatred. is such a just, like, stark, just definitive statement for, like, of many things that Gundam is about. And that, like, one of the defining things that Gundam, need, that, that Amuro and these characters need to fight is not just the enemy. It is they have to fight hatred itself and the hatred that this war has bred between everybody. And it is just a, it's a shocking, dark, intense episode that, like, when I watched it, I knew it's like this, this is something really special. Absolutely. My number one is Escape, episode 43, the finale because and it's 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 just a perfect ending. Yep. In every way, it packs so many great things into one 22-minute chunk. And I really do think it is such a perfect landing that as good as everything is up to that point, it elevates all of it. I don't think great stories necessarily need great endings. Like I'm not someone who says like the ending is the most important part. It often isn't, and it depends on what kind of story you're telling. But it is true that sometimes the best stories have the best endings. Because that's where you tie it all together. And you just feel like you are so in the hands of master storytellers through every second of escape. And feeling like they are bringing this home expertly. I agree with everything you said. I think the dual arcs for Shar and Amuro going into that episode with one motivation. And coming out with a different motivation that is so much truer to who they are. And for Amuro, it is this beautiful, beautiful motivation of using those new type powers to reunite his constructed family. And for Shar, it's blowing off Cecilia Zabi's goddamn head with a bazooka. This show knows what it is fucking about. 
And there are two shows in my life where I would say the best episode is the final episode. It is such a rare thing. One of them is the CW's Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, the musical show, which has a similar effect for me of being like such a great ending that it elevates the whole show in a major way. And one of them is Mobile Suit Gundam. And those are very different shows. Yes. Which should speak to you of how rare and wonderful a thing this is when you could argue. And whether you agree with me or not, Sean, like it's clearly an argument you could make that this is the best episode. There's very few shows where you could plausibly make that argument. Yeah. And it's not because I even think endings are frequently bad. I'm not one of those people. It's just endings are not the fun part of the story frequently. Mm-hmm. Endings are not usually where you shoot Kaisuke Zabi in the head with the bazooka. You know? The Wire doesn't get to end like that. Mobile Suit Gundam does. Maybe if The Wire had some fucking mechs in Baltimore. Fuck hell yeah. Fuck hell yeah. Yeah. That's my number one. My number one, it could never be anything else, is episode 13, Coming Home. <gasps> Interesting though, I, I love that our top like these. It feels like this must be the definitive top three episodes of Gundam. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's, 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 yep. it's like whatever, however you order it, it is clearly these three. It's episodes. It's hard to those are like the three beating heart episodes of Gundam. I feel yeah. like just distributed in in a weird way, but yeah, like those are the ones that are most Gundam to me. <laughs> Absolutely, and for me, coming home. I mean, it is part of it for me. The government coming home. Why it is like a number one with a bullet for me is that. Well, the first episode of Gundam Rises was the one I watched and I was like, okay, I'm definitely watching this whole TV show. Coming Home was the one I watched and was like, okay, I'm definitely watching this entire franchise. Because any franchise that could produce an episode this interesting is worth studying and like worth seeing all the way through, through good and bad. Like, I am married to Gundam now because this is, this is my life. Because it is just like, it's a... It is like a deeply complicated episode, and it is it is maybe the most complicated episode of the entire franchise in that it is presenting all these sort of competing issues at, at the heart of this, of like the tragedy of Amuro, that you so desperately want him to be able to go home and rekindle this relationship with his mother, leave the white base behind, leave the war behind, stop killing people, and become like a good kid again. But then, but you know that he can't do that because there's so much more at stake, whether it's the war at large or just the lives of all these other people we've come to know and that Amuro is instrumental in keeping them alive and, and maybe one day finding some kind of happiness. And Coming Home is the episode that deals with all those issues. It is the episode that deals most directly with the issues at the heart of the franchise about adolescence in trauma and adolescence in violence and war. And the complicated relationships that these kinds of protagonists have with their parents is never more interestingly presented in any mech show. I don't care how much you want to talk about fucking Shinji and Gendo in Neon Genesis Evangelion. It is Amuro and his mom that just presents this deeply troubling, conflicted, powerful split where Amuro has no choice but to leave his home behind and to leave his mom behind and you both want to see Amro go onto the white base and you want him to see him stay on that beach and there's no better scene in the entire franchise to me than the ending of coming home where Amro makes that choice he and Bright salute her Bright says we will be taking care of your son he spins around they both walk back to that white base and it flies away into the sunset from the beach massive dwarfing everything and Amro's mother collapses to the ground crying and and Fraubo looking back at her a very telling shot zoomed in on her and her kind of coming to understand maybe what it is to be 
close to Amuro and what could be in her future if she keeps on being close to Amuro. Everything and the symbolism of the fucking wooden doll, like Coming Home is just a truly masterful episode of television. Um, and it is, it is my number one. Absolutely. Love these lists. Love that we reached that consensus on the top three. Yeah. Completely independently. We hadn't even talked about making these before the last couple of days. No, I like, I, both texted, yeah, I texted yeah. you a couple of days ago to like be sure, like, how, okay, what lists are we doing and how are we doing them? Okay, I'll yeah. make my list then. All right. Uh, I did put out a question on Twitter to see if anyone had any questions for this episode. We didn't really get anything. I did get one, and I just wanted to throw this to you, Sean. Okay. Uh, Billy on Twitter asked, have you two watched the NHK documentary special, The Making of Gundam, The Inside Story? It aired last week, and I think it's up on YouTube now. No, I have not. I will have to go seek that out. I did watch a, um, there was a 40th anniversary special they did earlier this year where they got a bunch of the, um, they did like a big poll of like people's favorite scenes and stuff, and they got a bunch of the voice actors to like do live line recordings, and there's some, there's some cool. good stuff from that with uh, uh, Amuro from Char's Counterattack. It's very good. Awesome. But yeah, right. I will definitely have to check that out. That is good to put on my radar. Thank you. Well, Sean, this was planned to be the final episode of Weekly Suit Gundam. I mean, but, it, but I mean, I don't it, want this party to end. Yeah, where we go from here, John? Like, I'm the one who lit the fire, but where we go from here is 100 percent up to you. Like, you, I am not going to tell you how to watch Gundam from now on. It is, it is now. I have passed this baby on to you, and it is up to you to raise it. Well, I got good news for you, Sean. Yes. As of this taping. I am seven episodes deep into Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam. Okay, very good. And it is fucking good. It's really fucking good, huh? And when I'm done with all 50, would you like to come back and do another uh, Weekly Suit Gundam discussion? I think I would, Jonathan. It's, this has been a long journey, but it's far from over. We have survived for now, but it seems like we will also have to see the tears of time. Amuro, Amuro. うちの彼方に輝く星はアムロ。アムロ。お前の生まれたふるさとだ。覚えているかい少年の日のことを温かいぬくもりの中で目覚めた朝をアムロ。振り向くな。